Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Telus. This is being broadcast live and recorded live on December 4th, 2020. The time right now, 10.13 p.m. You've got two minutes to get into the free roll. We have a $51 free roll this week, and you have two minutes left to get in because it started at 9.50. I should just start this later because this keeps happening where we start the show after the free roll begins. This time we I, – I almost reset it, to be honest, but – uh uh, you know, bad guy said there's hardly anyone in there. Well, bad guy, that's good for you because rather than reset it on you like I did a few weeks ago, I'm just going to let it go. So if there's like five players, there's five players, and uh, it'll be pretty easy to win. There are three prizes this week, 26 for first, 15 for second, 10 for third, 26, 15, and 10. You have until 10.15 to get in, then registration closes. It's 25 minutes of late registration, but it started at 9.50, for those of you that are wondering about uh, my choice of the song this week, no real reason for it. I just uh, came across that song and had forgotten about it. I went to Boston for the first time in my life in the year 2007, and I was 35 years old. And one of the things I wanted to make sure to do when I was in Boston was to go to Cheers, because the Cheers bar is a real place. It's not quite like it's depicted on TV. And, of course, the uh, bartender and the clients there are not the same people as uh, you would see in real life. But there is a bar called Cheers, and the exterior is identical, or at least it was, uh, identical to what you saw on the TV show. And when I say the exterior, I really mean the exterior, not the inside of it. So when I went there, I did notice the Cheers sign and the exterior of it looking just like it and i had a picture taken of me in front of it and then i tried to go down there because at the time i didn't know that the inside was different so i tried to go down there and it says there's a dollar entrance fee i said what the hell is this crap a dollar entrance fee to go into a bar i'd never seen that in my life i i've seen cover charges for clubs and stuff like that i've never seen like a regular bar is a dollar to get in now of course a dollar is not very much but it, it kind of just annoyed me but i figured they probably charge it because there's a lot of people there like me who really had no intention to buy anything. You just wanted to see the inside of Cheers. And I was about to pay the dollar, but I was able to get far enough in without paying the dollar to see that it looked nothing like the Cheers, the TV show. The interior is completely different. I I don't mean it's a little bit different. I mean, it looks like a completely different place. It might as well not be Cheers. So the only thing that resembles Cheers, the TV show, is the exterior. So... That's, uh, that's where I stayed. I said, why, why, why would I want to go down here? I don't even drink anyway. Why would I even want to go down here if it bears no resemblance? Now, had they made it look like the interior of Cheers, they would have gotten my dollar. In fact, then I probably would have ordered a drink there. See, that, that would have been smart on their part. I don't know why they won't do that. It's a huge mistake on their part. I think, I think a lot of people would want to spend time there if it really looked just like the TV show. But if it looks like just like a totally different bar, why bother? Anyway... I just made sure to do it. Some of you may not know that it was not called Cheers when that bar uh, first opened. It actually opened in 1969, and it was called the Bull and Finch. And then uh, it changed to be uh, called Cheers after the TV show, long after the Cheers TV show was off the air in 2002. The Bull and Finch pub changed its name. In the theme song, it does look like the Cheers goes way back to, like, the early 1900s. That is not true for the actual building. They, as I said, that bar only started to exist in 1969, which, of course, did precede the TV show, which is why they had that exterior. They were looking for a, an exterior, and for some reason they uh, 
they chose to they chose the Bull and Finch, changed the the sign for the Bull and Finch uh, for the TV show theme, and for the exterior shots, and then they changed it back to the Bull and Finch until 2002, and they said, you know, why why not? imitate the TV show and get some people over here, which was half a good idea. You just got to change the inside too. Anyway, I was happy I went there. Like it, it was kind of cool to like stand right outside that exact same Cheers bar I'd seen on TV so many times in the 80s. Okay, well, we have uh, no interviews scheduled tonight. I know we've had some interviews lately, but we haven't had – we don't have an interview scheduled tonight, which is fine. We can do without an interview. I will try to find Trader Ruski. Then I'll give you the usual intro and agenda, and we'll get going. It looked really, really light on topics this week. Like, it looked like it was going to be like a short show, because there was really not, not much to talk about. And then in the last 24 hours, so much stuff came together. I'm so glad I didn't have the show scheduled for yesterday, or I would have had very little to talk about. A lot has happened in the last 24 hours. Uh, in fact, the most interesting stuff, in my opinion, on the show, at least as far as current gambling and poker-type events, happened in the last 24 hours. So... We will have a lot of stuff to talk about tonight, and you'll hear about these on the agenda. But uh, let's look for Trader Ruski first. I got to get him before he falls asleep. Kind of like the old days of Calwatt, except now Trader Ruski's going to bed early, and then he wakes up at weird times and shows up uh, like three or four a.m. on this show. It's very bizarre what's happening these days. I have my Starbucks draft, but. I'm not sure how long it's going to last. Uh-oh. Okay. Well, at, at, least we, at least we have the outside shot of picking you back up after you've got a full night of sleep. So it depends how long okay. I, can, I can keep talking. So here is the usual intro, and then we'll get going. The phone number to the show is 775 775-372-8355 is the number. You can also call the Mount Charleston line. That's an old 70s rotary phone which sits on top of Mount Charleston and forwards to me wherever I go. That phone number is 702-430-1808, 702-430-1808. The snow has melted. The snow off Mount Charles, Char- on Mount Charleston has melted, as has the snow in the California mountains. I, I got to it fast. I have pictures of myself in uh, early to mid-November in a lot of snow in California. And that, that's, all, that's totally gone now, too. It's all dirt. So I, I acted quickly, and it paid off. The text number is the same as our main phone number, 775-372-8355. You can text me at any time, before, during, or after the show. Just whenever you feel like texting me, you can do it, and there's a good chance I will respond to you. And if you re- if you send the text during the show, there's a good chance I'll read it on the air, unless you ask at the beginning of the text, please don't read on air. The call to listen line is a way to listen to the show. It does not require a smartphone, a data plan, a computer, an internet, uh, connection, an app. No, 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 no. None of that stuff. All you need is a phone that can dial a number in the U.S. The phone number is 605-313-0736. 605-313-0736. And also the alternate call to listen line, a second line into it. 641-741-1095. That's if the first one doesn't work. You can find all these numbers that I've given out on the Poker Fraud Alert radio tab near the top of the screen on Poker Fraud Alert. Just click on radio. You'll see them all listed there. The call to listen line never buffers, never freezes. It just works. You should give it a try. We have a free roll tonight. As I mentioned, $51. If you're already in, you're already in. Otherwise, uh, I, I have to imagine it's a pretty small field tonight because uh, the show, I, I didn't really officially announce it was today until today. 
though I mentioned at the end of the show last week it would be on Friday, and we've been on Friday every day for a while except last week, which was Saturday, but I know it confuses people, and I didn't really announce the show until shortly before the show, so it's not surprising if the free roll is small, but we are giving $51 away either way. It is happening. And uh, the money this week, $30 came from Midwest Hustler. That was uh, not voluntary. He just didn't collect his prize from January. So I took it and repurposed it, as I told you guys I will after six months pass. Then also, uh, voluntarily donated, Vet Guy gave $11, and Reno gave $10. So thank you to uh, Vet Guy and the city of Reno. Not the person named Reno. I wish it was the city of Reno. That'd be cool. But I'll take it from the guy named Reno, who I've met before. I met him one time at the World Series. Let's see what else we got before we get to the agenda. Oh, we have a chat room that now works without Flash, really. You can go in there. You can even scroll back a little bit. But you can go into the chat room. does not need Flash. It works on any device. Really, any device. Tell me a device that doesn't work. You'll surprise me. You do need a Poker Fraud Alert forum account validated and in good standing to get in, but that's it. Any device works, and there's no more Flash anywhere on Poker Fraud Alert. Same with the radio player. You can now play the radio live through the radio tab on any device. Just go there and press the little play button, or it may automatically start, depending on which device you're on. In the archives, many ways to listen. We have iTunes. We have TuneIn. These are apps, of course. Stitcher. We have Google Podcasts is a new one. Spotify. iHeartMedia. And we have the Bullhorn app, which you should give it a try. It's not very well known, but the Bullhorn app not only lets you listen in normal podcast format, but you can even use a call-to-listen line within the Bullhorn app, a different call-to-listen line they provide to listen to the show. If you want to listen to the archives in a call-to-listen format, then you can do that. They provide like a temporary call-to-listen number. It's all automatic. You just press the button and it works. Great thing to use if you don't have the strongest internet connection. A lot of ways to listen to the show. Of course, you can always play or download the MP3 file of the show. Go to the Poker Fraud Alert Radio Archives Forum or just click on the MP3 button on the radio page of Poker Fraud Alert. You'll get there and you can just click on the MP3 and it'll automatically play from whatever device you're on or you could download it too. You can download it and keep it if you like. You can't reuse it. I do not give you authorization to reuse it, but you can listen to your heart's content. Though there have been some sites like PokerFuse that have just grabbed Poker Fraud Alert Radio and slapped it up there as if uh, they are an authorized broadcast location. And they are not, but I decided not to complain because they do bring new listeners. I've had people who listen and have told me they found it through PokerFuse, so whatever. If it brings more listeners, then fine. I mean, yeah, they have some affiliate links and people, they probably made a little money off of Poker Fraud Alert and I haven't gotten a penny of it, but I will say that if it brings more listeners and if it's I'm not giving permission, but I'm not going to do anything. Let me just say that. Uh, Just let it stand. Now, this becomes a huge show, then I might change my mind. But at the moment, as uh, I value listeners, because my attitude about this show and number of listeners is that we have enough to where I feel it's worth doing. Because if we had like 50 people listening every week, I wouldn't do it. It's just not worth putting in the effort and the hours just to broadcast to 50 people. It's just not enough. So since we have probably, I'm guessing, maybe 2,000 listeners every week, I could be underestimating, I could be overestimating. I, I don't think overestimating by very much because I've every once in a while I check into this as well as I can, and that's usually around what I come up with, but then there's some ways I just can't tell. Like, for example, PokerFuse. If you listen to, if you use it to poke, if you use PokerFuse, I can't tell if you're listening to the show. 
So there's some people probably listening in ways that I cannot uh, access. But you know, at least 2,000 people probably every week. And that's fine. That's not like a gigantic audience, but it's not a tiny audience. And, of course, this is kind of a niche topic, gambling and poker. So I'm happy to have that listener base. But it's also small enough to where I'm happy to get new people. And I know that we lose listeners over time, as does every single show in existence. There's there's no show out there of any type that keeps every listener it had uh, previously. There's always people who lose interest and stop listening. As long as we pick up as many as we lose, or more, hopefully, then we're fine. But if you'd like to spread the word, then that's good. It's always nice to hear when just kind of randoms know about the show and tell other people. So, like, I mentioned very quickly Ashley Hine, Action Ashley, uh, in, in, that she had responded to one of Bart Hansen's tweets. I, I mentioned it really fast because it had nothing to do really with Ashley. It's just that he was responding to her in that whole thing between Bart and Jeff Madsen. And she was playing at a poker room in Texas and someone, uh, two different people, I think had nothing to do with each other, told her, hey, you know, you were mentioned on Poker Fraud Alert Radio this week. So, like, I think two entirely different people that listened to the show both had heard it. And I'm like, oh, that makes you feel good that she just goes to, like, a random card room and two people at her table listen to my show. Great. I'm always happy to hear about things like that. Anyway, uh, remember if you call the show... Try to do it in between segments. Don't hammer me while I'm in the middle of talking about something. Because it seems like half the time when I answer it has nothing to do with the topic and interrupts the topic. That used to drive Daredevil crazy. I wonder if that's why he, he left the show. <laughs> he, uh, he he was the official host for a very short time, official co-host, and then he kind of fell off. Actually, I, it wasn't why. I, I know why it happened. It, was, it didn't have to do with me. But... Uh, he was annoyed by that. He, he vocalized to me privately that he was annoyed with the interruption of topics when I just throw calls on there. And I thought, you know what? He's actually kind of right. So I, I stopped just taking calls during segments. I would say I'm going to take the calls if I'm asking for calls or we're kind of between segments or almost done with a segment and I might as well be done, then I'll take it too. Okay. I think that's about it. Let me go to the agenda and then we'll get going. The first topic we're going to have this week is going to be about Dan Bilzerian. This is one of those topics I talked about that came across in the last 24 hours. Dan Bilzerian is now an ambassador of GG Poker. He is one of the faces of GG Poker that has been officially announced. And that was going to be a story by itself, but we now have a side story that branches off that story that when poker pro Vanessa Cade, a Canadian poker pro you may or may not have heard of, when she objected to this and said that uh, he's a misogynist, it's not a good look, blah, 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 he told her, quiet ho, nobody knows who you are. Ugh. Pretty harsh. He's, he misspelled ho, by the way, but H-O-E. If you're going to call someone a ho, you got to spell it right. Just H-O. It's like Maria Ho. I'm not saying Maria Ho is a ho. I guess she is a ho, but not that type of ho. You know what I'm saying. But definitely H-O-E is not involved with Maria or with Vanessa Cade or really any woman who doesn't do farming work. And that really enraged a lot of people. So I'll tell you all about that in our lead story here. I have an update on the Tony She death story. And the picture as to what occurred is much clearer now. We don't know 100%. I don't think we ever will know 100% because I think the only one who would know this would be Tony and even some things I think he didn't know because he was passed out when some of this happened. But 
it has become a lot more clear what likely happened, and there's a much clearer picture of his life because some journalists have looked into it. And let me tell you, he didn't exactly have the most stable life in 2020. He uh, declined a lot, shall I say, and it eventually led to his death, which was an accident, I will say that. It was not a suicide like that idiot Vital Vegas was saying, but that looks like this happened as a result of a lot of bad decisions that he was making throughout the year 2020. And uh, in fact, uh, it, it bears some similarity to what happened to Elvis Presley, who also died unnecessarily early in his life. So I'll tell you all about that, what's been discovered. Here's another update. Remember the segment we had about the cheating Cubans who traveled across the U.S. and were cheating in card rooms pretty much everywhere. The first sighting of them was at Commerce in October 2019, and they've just been hitting a lot of different places, a lot of different states. They just keep moving, moving, moving. Every time they get caught, they just move on. doesn't deter them. Two Cuban guys don't know their name. They're, there's a picture of the two of them at a table in the Poker Fraud Alert thread about it. This was brought to us by a listener who goes by Kanish, and we had him on the show. Well, I have an update that the Cubans attempted to cheat in Texas and a poker fraud alert listener caught them. Yes. He was a dealer and he caught them and he got them booted and the deck that was being used that was probably marked, that is now being analyzed and it is believed is now known how they did it. So we're going to talk about that developing story. We don't have all the details yet, so I I don't want to falsely advertise this story and then you'll be disappointed but I'll give you all the details I have that I got today and we may have more next week depending upon what this guy finds out but it was thanks to this show that they were ejected from a Texas card room and that more information I think has already been found out about uh, the way they're doing it so that's very helpful that's why it's good to publicize things like this and I'm very happy we did that segment I'm very happy Kanish brought it to Poker Fraud Alert so I'll tell you about that Two plus two. They banned me. I do not have a fake account there. I don't post there. I'm, Mason doesn't want me there. If he's going to be a dick, he's going to ban me for no reason, even though he promised this would not happen when we made our agreement a few years ago. You know, F him. F him. F two plus two. I like some of the mods there. I have nothing against them, but, uh, Mason's a complete dickhead. I've always thought that. I've made attempts to make peace with him and he just, he won't have it. The guy's just a jerk. He has major personality flaws, but that's all pretty well known by now. Why am I bringing up right now? Well, they 2 plus 2 is getting desperate for money, apparently. They have added a really, really obnoxious ad that you cannot dismiss and stays at the bottom of your screen. Go check it out, provided it's still there. I'll tell you that uh, ridiculous story and what Matt Skolansky has had to say about it. A former employee of an armored car company pulled off a $1.7 million burglary in broad daylight without using any weapons. This was at uh, Bally's in Atlantic City. You may say, wait, you did that last week. No, I meant to do that last week, and then I completely forgot the topic. (laughs) The whole time I was like, did I forget something? Did I forget something? No, 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 I covered everything. I I was like... The whole time I had this nagging feeling that I had forgotten something during the show. And I did. When I went to go archive it, I'm like, crap, I forgot the whole thing about the Atlantic City burglary. So, okay, we'll do it this week. 
Seth Polanski. I've mentioned that name many times on Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I'm sure you know he is a vice president who was uh, in a very high position at the World Series of Poker and WSOP.com. He was mainly in charge of uh, communications from the World Series of Poker. He was the VP of communications. But uh, really, he was a bigwig at the World Series of Poker. He was uh, kind of tied for number two in power. Ty Stewart was on top. And then uh, Jack Effel and Seth Polanski were uh, on the same level, both with different duties. So they, these, these were all executives at the World Series of Poker. They all had a lot of uh, input into the decision-making process. Seth was the one I always had contact with regarding uh, communications with the World Series. And he, he took a lot of criticism over the years, some of which was valid, some of which wasn't. But why are we bringing him up? Because Seth Polanski has left the World Series of Poker and moved on to a different company. And I'll tell you how I feel about that. Very uh, surprising development, which isn't really getting very much publicity right now. And by the way, he verified it on his Twitter. There's not a rumor. Eric Baldwin, longtime online poker player, had an unfortunate thing happen on WSOP.com. He won a satellite to the main event, and he was also supposed to get uh, a lot of cash for his satellite win, and then he didn't. He did not get the posted payout. WSOP.com claimed it was a mistake, and they redid the prize pool. It was it looked like a winner-take-all thing, and it got changed to something else after the tournament was over. He was really mad, and he has a right to be mad, and I hope that he wins... Uh, I, I assume he's going to be making uh, some kind of complaint to gaming in Nevada, and he deserves to win, to be honest. So I'll tell you all about what happened there. A female poker player in New Jersey whose name is Anna Antimony. I don't really know her. I think I've seen her around before at the World Series of Poker, but I don't know her. She made a claim of staking impropriety against Clayton Jang. Remember that name? We had him on the show. He talked about this private game that uh, had a cheater in it that was ripping people off and that he lost $90,000 out of the whole thing, and then he started getting threats. Remember that whole story? We had him on here. It was a very interesting segment. Well, Clayton Jang, who's, who sounded like a good guy, uh, he is accused of kind of trying to recoup some of that money from someone sort of involved in that whole thing, not someone who was uh, cheating there, at least uh, – it doesn't seem like they were, but remember he mentioned a girl. He wouldn't say who she was, but there was some girl that was described as being really good and that he didn't know who she was, but he staked her anyway because it was recommended he stake her. And then she got clobbered in that alleged cheating game. Well, that apparently was Anna Antimony, which I didn't know at the time we did the interview. But now she has her own accusation against him from something uh, that is not from back in those days which was early this year, but uh, is something that happened more recently between the two of them. And uh, I'll tell you that whole story. And it even has uh, a conclusion to it. So I'll tell you if that conclusion was positive or negative, and I'll tell you what I think of Clayton Jang now that all of this has come out. Pennsylvania has released their revenue numbers for their online slots in recent times, and longtime industry figure Jessica Wellman, 
she uh, posted this on Twitter and pointed something out, and I agree with her, that if you look at the difference between what slots are making, I'm talking about online slots, and what online poker is making, which of course that's in Pennsylvania as well, there's a tremendous difference. It, it One dwarfs the other. So the slots are way bigger, which is going to make the future of legalized online poker look questionable. So I'll tell you more detail about this when we get to that segment. But a great point by Jess Wellman. She's a good person to follow on Twitter. She always brings out good stuff about the gambling industry, and she's a, a smart girl. She's been around for a long time in, in poker and gambling. Coronavirus news. Record deaths per day going on right now, worse than in April. The other disturbing thing is that it's spread out more throughout the U.S. Uh, before in the spring when it was similar levels to right now, it was mostly the New York City area, and the rest of the country wasn't that bad. That's no longer the situation. Now it's really spread out. Everywhere is bad at the moment. Some places worse than others, but everywhere is bad at the moment. And it's probably going to get worse over the next one to two months until the vaccine starts to get more widely distributed. Right now, it's not distributed at all, but it's going to start soon. But until all that gets going, and since we're entering winter, it's probably going to get worse. So I'll tell you about the current numbers and what the concern is and what numbers we might see until the vaccine really gets going. And, you know, I have to say, it's very good timing, at least, that the vaccine is about to be released. Imagine if they weren't going to be done with it till like, July. Then there'd be much more death. So that's, this is looking uh, very grim at the moment, though. It's going to be very tough months ahead for the United States and other parts of the world. Speaking of the vaccine, it's going to cause major but temporary side effects in some people. Some people will actually feel like they have the coronavirus when on the vaccine, Though unlike the coronavirus, they really won't have it. They're just going to feel like they have it, and the symptoms will go away in about two days. But how will this affect the cooperation of taking the vaccine? Will people start to hear about this and refuse to take it? Remember, you have to get two doses of the vaccine. I'm talking about the mRNA ones, the, the better of the vaccines, the either the Moderna or the Pfizer one, the ones that supposedly have the 95% uh, success rate. They will get you sick, most likely. Maybe very sick, maybe a little bit sick, but very likely to get sick. It'll resolve itself. You don't need to go to the hospital or anything. It's not going to threaten your life, but it's something that's going to be very unpleasant. Some people may not want it, and some people may fear it, like almost like they're putting the coronavirus in their bodies. I think this is going to be a real problem. So I'll, I'll tell you more about that when we get to that segment. And then I'm going to tell you about a personal situation I have going on. I've got to make a decision involving a colonoscopy that is scheduled in January, my first one ever, that's likely to be right around what I assume will be the peak of COVID problems in the U.S. Do I dare go in for a voluntary procedure when the coronavirus is at its worst point, or should I delay it? There are reasons to delay it. There are reasons not to delay it. I will go on, and you can text me how you feel, whether I should go ahead with the scheduled date or not. Finally, I have an editorial. The editorial is about voter fraud. It's when voter fraud and non-voter fraud claims and common sense don't match up. Because I have seen on both sides a lot of idiotic claims about voter fraud in this past election. And people, I've just noticed, especially this year, people had a real hard time 
admitting anything that could make their argument look slightly worse. So if your argument is correct, but the other side's argument has a small amount of truth in it, instead of saying, yes, what you're saying is true, but it doesn't change my point, people have a very hard time with that in 2020. People have a very hard time conceding that. Instead, they live in fantasy land where they just completely deny what the other side is saying. Nope, 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 wrong, wrong, nope, nope, wrong, nope, 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 that's not happening. No, 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 no. That's what you get. They, they don't want to admit it because they're afraid if they admit to the, the slightest bit of validity of the other side's point that uh, it, it will destroy their point and nobody will believe them anymore. So that's become the new tactic is just deny everything the other side says, even if they're right. You just deny everything because you don't want to confuse anyone into thinking that maybe you could be wrong. The only way you can assure that people will believe you're right is if you just deny everything the other side says. And it's it's really frustrating. I've dealt with this with several subjects, but uh, this is going to be about voter fraud. And I'm going to tell you two opposing but both absurd claims, one from the left and one from the right, about the voter fraud in 2020. So that's our agenda tonight. Let's get going here. So Dan Bilzerian, we've talked about him on the show for the last month and a half or so. We've put on those Tom Nash videos where Tom Nash exposes the company Ignite that Dan Bilzerian has been running. I don't know how much he's actually running it actively, but uh, Ignite is his legalized pot company. There's been a lot of criticism of it, and it seems like the company's in trouble. And this Tom Nash, I mean, he's, he's going for clickbait, Definitely the guy is trying to get you to look at his channel. He makes a lot of outlandish claims about Dan Bilzerian, of which are like, kind of like half-true sometimes. But at the same time, he raises some valid points, and I think the general message that Tom Nash is putting out there criticizing Ignite is true, that the company's been losing big money. They're in trouble. They've gone through a ton of different uh, presidents and CEOs and, uh, and other high-level executives there. So... Ignite really is in hot water and probably won't exist for that much longer, and Dan Bilzerian is closely tied to that, and this obviously hurts him and kind of makes him look bad. So, uh, like, all of that, it, it kind of seems like Tom Nash is onto something, and he presents a lot of evidence. Tom Nash also makes a lot of stupid claims or unfounded claims, or he jumps to a conclusion that you can't really jump to. So he, he's definitely going for the attention-grabbing headlines and claims rather than trying to put out the 100% unbiased truth. And he just doesn't like Dan Bilzerian. You can see that, too. So I take everything that Tom Nash says with a grain of salt, but it's, it's one of those things where when you just take a step back and look at all the evidence presented by both sides, go, yeah, Ignite kind of looks like it's in trouble and it kind of looks like it's mismanaged and kind of looks like it was never a good idea in the first place, at least the way they wanted to do it, and that Dan Bilzerian hasn't done a very good job with that. I mean, I'll... I'll Agree with all that. But this is not about Ignite. All of our Dambelzerian co- coverage lately has been about Ignite, but not this time. Dambelzerian has been signed as the face, or one of the faces, of GG Poker, which is the same site that Daniel Negreanu is the main face of. So what does that mean? Now, he's not the only face besides Negreanu. There's Elky... There's uh, a few others. And that's typical of poker sites. That I look at Full Tilt. They had like 120 pros on their roster at one point when they were 
in their heyday. GG Poker doesn't have nearly that many. They don't even have 10. But uh, let's talk about adding Dambolzarian first and what that really accomplishes. The whole thing about adding pros to a site, that's kind of an antiquated concept that Amaya, which owns PokerStars, we now call the Stars Group, uh, they realized quickly after they bought it that a lot of these pros were not pulling their weight. A lot of these sponsored pros were not really bringing in additional business. This was kind of an old model that once you really think about it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Because like minor figures in poker, even ones that might have an online following or that might have some respect as good players, there's a difference between being a good player and a winning player and someone who's being on the roster is going to bring in additional business, or at least enough business to where you're bringing in more business than you are paying that person. And stars quickly realize that that was not a, a smart way to bring people in. The reason this wasn't exposed earlier as a stupid thing to do is because online poker sites were making such ridiculous money that they didn't bother to do these audits of, of you know how are we wasting money. They just were making so much, they figured they're doing everything right. They don't want to mess with the formula. Well, once things got tougher, then they had to take a closer look. It's much like when you are playing poker, and if you're making mistakes playing poker, but you're kicking ass at the table every day, you're not going to come home and go, hmm, how could I improve my game? How can I play better? Now, if you're, if you're on a great streak and everything's falling right for you and you're just beating everybody, you don't want to change anything. You're, you're kind of afraid to even look at your game critically because you're afraid maybe you'll change something that's working. And that's a valid approach. If everything's going well, you shouldn't change it. In, in poker, if it works, don't fix it. Even if it doesn't totally make sense to you, sometimes what you would think is a mistake upon analyzing it could be the right thing for reasons you don't understand. You could be accidentally be doing the right thing. So I, I've seen fish do that before. I've seen fish make plays, which are great plays, but they don't even understand why they're great plays. <laughs> they just kind of haphazardly do it. I go, wow, if, if that person really knew why they did this, they would be... This would be an amazing play. Instead, it was kind of like a, a smart play done by a, a, a not a good player that didn't understand why they're making it. So you don't change things when they're going well. But when they're not, you've you got to take a look. How can I improve? And that's what Amaya did. And one of the things they did is they fired almost all of their pros. PokerStars went from a huge roster of pros to a pretty small one. And that was the right decision. That was the right thing to do. It was found that the big names, the ones who have a lot of recognition do probably bring people in. That it's not a mistake to have a big name that you pay a lot of money to to promote your site. Because the average poker player will see that some pro they really like, some very well-known pro they really like, or really find entertaining or whatever, is promoting a site, and they'll give it a shot. So like Negranu is a perfect example. He's a very good face of a site. Despite the fact that Negranu says and does some stupid things, and embarrasses himself sometimes. Despite that, he is a very well-known poker pro who does not have any kind of big scandals following him. As I said, he's been in controversy. There's people who don't like him. There's some people who think he's an asshole or, or he's a, a, a sanctimonious jerk. And, and, and I can understand some people thinking this. I, I don't hate him. I, I see his flaws, but I, I, don't, I don't hate him or dislike him. I'm very neutral on Negranu. But he is an excellent face of a site because he's very well-known and the average poker player likes him. The average poker player knows him and likes him, and if you see he is the face of a site uh, and you're a recreational player, you'll probably check it out. So he brings a lot of value to the table, and he's probably worth the paycheck they give him. To a lesser degree, people like Elky, other recognizable figures, like very recognizable figures, okay, 
as long as you don't pay them too much, then it makes sense to have them on the roster. But the the lesser and lesser known players that you sign, they, they they some of them will bring just about zero value. As I said, just because you're a good player doesn't mean you're going to bring a lot of value to the site. I know some people who are like very big winning online players, and they would make terrible ambassadors for the site. Not that there's anything wrong with these people. Some of these people I like personally, they just are boring. They're not they're not anyone who would bring anyone on to like no one would see that they play and want to uh sign up for the site for that reason. If anything, they could drive business away because people say, Well, look, look this is some some quiet guy who just sits there and grinds all day and crushes everybody. Uh I don't want to play against him. <laughs> if this is who's on the site, I really don't want to play in those games. Like uh, people can think that too. So it, it's exciting to sit at a table with someone like Negranu. It's not very exciting to play against just some online guy who you know wins. You just kind of wish he wasn't there when you see him at the table. So why am I bringing all this up? Well, Dan Bilzerian definitely doesn't qualify as the quiet online game online guy who just sits there and quietly wins while grinding online poker. That's not Dan Bilzerian at all. Dan Bilzerian is a well-known figure outside of poker. In fact, Dan Bilzerian himself is more well-known by the general public than almost every poker player alive. So he is fairly well-known both within poker and outside of poker. He does play poker. He has played poker at high stakes. He's claimed to have won a shitload of money doing so, which is questionable. And if he did win that money, it was probably be because he was playing in very easy yet very high-stakes games where as long as you have the bankroll that the competition is very light because you're against them. Uh, a lot of businessmen who are not very good who want to play in these private games and don't want a bunch of uh, pros in the game crushing them. They want to play against other guys like themselves. So if you can make it into that game, then you can make a lot of money if you're decent. That's what Toby McGuire did. He got into those games because he was uh, famous, and therefore they invited him. And he was the best player there by far, and he won a ton of money that way just because he had access to those games and he had the bankroll to play in them because of the money he made as an actor. So Dan Bilzerian was in these type of games as well, except uh, I believe Toby Maguire is a better player than Dan Bilzerian. So I don't know if Dan was a winning player or there's been accusations that uh, this is actually Dan's father's money, and some people have said that this has been how Dan justifies having this money that his father got to him. Again, I don't know if that's true. There have been uh, people saying that, and I don't know what's true, what's false there. But we've never seen proof that Dan Bilzerian has won $50 million playing these private games like he's claimed. So who knows? But it's not really that important what Dan Bilzerian's actual poker skill is. The question is, would... If you sign him to GG Poker, is that a good signing or a bad signing? Now, as far as notoriety, it's good from that perspective. A lot of people know who he is, and provided he promotes it, like I assume he's supposed to, then he will bring people to play GG Poker. Now, of course, you have to be outside the U.S., which is a big problem. Maybe they're hoping they'll be in the U.S. one day, but at the moment they're not in the U.S., and they won't be anytime soon. So you have to know Dan Bilzerian and be living outside the U.S., so that does take away some value. He he has some international recognition, but it's mainly in the U.S. But okay, let's put that aside. He does have some notoriety. I don't know how much they're paying him. That also matters. If they're paying him a ton, 
then it's probably not a very good signing. If they're getting him for almost nothing, then it's not a bad signing. But I have to assume they're paying him some good money, as you think the Dan Blazerian is not going to do this for peanuts. But the problem with Dan Blazerian is that he is a controversy magnet, and he acts in a very brash and outlandish and uh, sometimes childish fashion, and he's never politically correct. And usually I would applaud that, because I, I don't believe in all this political correctness, but sometimes Dan Bilzerian will say things and tweet things which are just, it's just not really appropriate, especially in 2020, and especially to be putting out publicly, especially when you're a well-known figure. So, And, and we're going to go over one of these things that he just did, one of the things he just said today that was pretty bad. So he's kind of a loose cannon who could drive people away. And also some people just don't like his image, his brand. Some people think that uh, he's got like this hyper-masculine guy who always wants to party and have fun and, and, and be around uh, scantily clad women that he objectifies. Like Some people don't like that. Some people uh, find that offensive. Some people find that to be uh, off-putting. Now, to be fair, there's a lot more women who find that off-putting than men, and they're mainly going for men because the truth is poker is mostly men. That's just demographically, that's true. Maybe one day it'll be different. I don't think so. But uh, right now, there's far, far more males in poker than females. So if you're from a marketing perspective, you're looking to appeal to males. So if you appeal to a lot of males and you turn off a certain percentage of females, uh, as the owner of a poker site, it, that's a trade-off you'd be willing to make because uh, it's going to translate into more money. So they, they've got to do these calculations when trying to figure out, you know, do you sign someone like Dan Bilzerian? So when he was signed, there was uh, some negative reaction in the poker world. Some of the negative reaction is that a lot of people in poker kind of see him as a clown. They don't have respect for him. They don't have respect for his poker game. They don't believe he's really won that much money or any money in poker. Or if he did, it was because he played against Fish and nobody else. They think that uh, he's somewhat of a phony uh, some people have watched the whole controversy with Ignite and have lost respect for him. Some people think he's just a braggart and just uh, immature. There's a lot of people in poker who just don't care for him that much. So there are, And there's also people in poker who resent the fact that the general public sometimes believes that he is this great poker pro, is one of the best poker players out there, when he's not. They feel he gets undeserved credit for being a, a great, huge poker winner when uh, he may not win at all. And if he does, it's it's not against tough competition. It's it's pretty well acknowledged in the poker community that if you put Dan Bilzerian in a, at a table with a lot of tough players, that he's going to be the fish there. Even you put him at a table with just uh, normal 2550 no-limit grinders, that he'll be the fish in the game. Maybe it'll be one or two players worse than him, but he's not going to be a winning player like the average like twenty five fifty Bellagio game. So that pretty much contradicts the image he presents of himself and the image that a lot of the public has of him. So some people were upset to see that he is the a face of GG Poker, whereas the other faces of GG Poker are players who have had a lot of success and are acknowledged by the poker community as being. Uh, good players or excellent players. Uh, Daniel Negreanu is a good example. Elke is a good example. Uh, Fedor Holtz recently signed, obviously a, a great young player. So 
no one's going to say, oh, yeah, why, why is Daniel the face of GG Poker? He sucks. You're not going to hear anyone saying that. Or yeah, Elkie sucks. Or Fedor Hall sucks. You're not going to hear that. There's also this uh, Felipe Ramos. I don't know much about him, but uh, um, in fact, let me, I, I don't really know anything about him. Let's let's see about GG. Felipe Ramos is yeah. So he's he looks like a winning player too, from what they what they've uh, in his bio here. I don't really know, but he's not like some guy like Bilzerian who uh, people don't have respect for. He's he's uh, this Felipe Ramos is fourth on the all-time money list for Brazil. And he's cashed $2.6 million. Okay, you know, it's not wonderful. Keep in mind, I've cashed almost a million dollars in tournaments, and I'm not even a tournament pro. But still, I mean, okay, fine. He's, like, probably a fairly good Brazilian player. They're trying to appeal to that market. Whatever. That's fine. So Dan Bilzerian is the only, like, non-poker pro on that list. Here's how they write up Dan Bilzerian. This is just announced that they just added him. This was announced yesterday. Social media legend and poker player Dan Bilzerian is one of the most high-profile members of the GG Poker team. Bilzerian is best known for his lifestyle-themed Instagram page, which boasts more than 32 million followers, but he's also recognized in the poker community for competing in some of the biggest poker games in the world. Okay, see, that's already a little misleading. I mean, all of that's actually true, but he's competing in the biggest poker games in the world because he's backed by, like, massive money that came from his dad, probably. And he gets into these games, which the rest of us can't get into, and which most of us wouldn't have the bankroll to play in, even if we could get into them. Like, I wouldn't play in those games, even if it was just five mega fish and me, because you know, one bad hand and I'm, my bankroll forever is gone. So I, I couldn't play in a game like that. But and, and most of you couldn't either. In fact, I would think almost all of you couldn't either. So you have to have a massive bankroll to be able to play in a game like that. But even if I had the bankroll, they wouldn't invite me. So... If you get in that game, great for you, but that doesn't say much about your poker skill. That doesn't make you deserving of accolades. That just makes you someone who's fortunate and gets an opportunity to make a lot of money at poker that the rest of us don't have. Which, again, I'm not jealous of. If, if you are able, if you you get access to it, great. That's great for you, and I give you a thumbs up for managing that. But I'm not going to say that any winnings you get in that game would make me admire you as, as for your poker skill. Bilzerian, also known as Blitz, is always on the move to find the best poker games wherever they might be. Well, I guess. I mean, you, you, know, you heard what I just said about how he does that. From his L.A. home, Bilzerian can get to high-stakes live games in Las Vegas in less than an hour on his private jet. See, that's stupid. I mean, you can also do that on a commercial flight. <laughs> you, can gra- you can quickly book a Southwest flight and... and Speed down to the airport, and Burbank at LAX, and you can get there also in, in pretty quick time. A, a lot of the high-stakes games have moved online to GG Poker in recent years. Yeah, and if, if Bilzerian plays in those, he'll get crushed. Now, those are good players. Those, those are not the fish for the most part. Bilzerian is not one to miss out, so you can bet that he will regularly fly that private jet to Mexico to grab his share of the growing nosebleed action at GG Poker. Of course, they're saying this because you can't play from the U.S. So saying, he lives in the U.S., so... They're saying he's going to probably fly to Mexico and play. I I, I want to see if that's going to happen. I want to see if he's going to go sit in those tough games against those crushers. It's not just about the money for the Instagrammer. Bilzerian truly loves the game and likes to interact with his fans. He will play at any stakes if the game looks like a good time. If you're lucky, you may just find yourself in a wild game with him at micro stakes. Instagram is Bilzerian's bread and butter, but he has grown huge audiences on Twitter and Facebook. 
He has more than 45 million followers combined between the three social media platforms. In addition, Bilzerian is a business owner and actor. <laughs> He's a business. Okay, well, you know, you know about the business owner part and what's been going on with that and Ignite. Uh, what about the actor? He was an actor because he paid a large sum of money. He made an investment in a film which uh, needed investors. So he made an investment of... One million dollars. And he made that investment contingent upon them promising to give him a set amount of screen time. And actually had it written in the contract that if they don't give him the screen time promised to him, then he gets a rolling amount of money back depending upon how much screen time they short him of. And then when they did short him because the director wouldn't listen to this and just cut out scenes because they didn't like Dan's acting, then Dan sued them. And I think he won. I mean, he was in the right. He was legally in the right because that was the agreement and they violated the agreement. So I was actually on his side there. But I wouldn't call him an actor. If you if you buy your way into being in a film because the film needs investors and you go, okay, I'm a crappy actor, but you're going to put me in it because you need money. And the only way your film's going to exist is if I put my money there, then uh, they put you in it. You can claim you have an acting credit, but you're not really an actor. Let's, let's face it. In fact, I... If I had Bilzerian's money, I wouldn't do that. And again, I was on his side when this happened because a deal's a deal. If you if a place takes your money, if a filmmaker takes your money in exchange for putting you in there, and then they stiff you on the screen time as you were promised, then they screwed up. That's part of taking the money, that you have to keep whatever agreement you make. Even if Bilzerian's a horrible actor, you've still got you've still got to put him in or give back the money. But if I had that money, I wouldn't do that. It would just—it just wouldn't feel like I accomplished anything. It just wouldn't feel right, you know. Like I might, if I wanted to be in a film, I might like bankroll an entire film and then put myself in it. That's a little bit different because then it's your film. But I—I I wouldn't buy my way into somebody else's film and say, "Give me screen time because I'm making this investment." That—that's different. That's different than making your own project and starring in it or making yourself uh, a character in it. Anyway, right? But it could have been just that the guy came to him for money, and he's like, "All right, look, put me in. I'll give you the million." Well, it, there was a whole right. contract, though. I, I saw the contract, so. Right, but I'm not right, but I don't know that he was necessarily fishing for it. I'm sure the guy was hitting him up to invest in the movie, and then he probably said, "Okay, put me in it," and then I'll, you know, then I'll put the money. Yeah, it's a good question. Which one happened? Did he go to them and say, "Hey, I'm hearing that you guys need money, so here's my conditions. If you want my money," or did they say, "Hey, Dan, we hear you have money. You, you want to invest?" And he's like, "Yeah, if you put me in it, it could it could be either one." I'm not. Uh... That sounds more likely. <laughs> And then it was in the contract. That's so funny. It was, it was really funny, too. It's like, if, if Dan gets this much screen time to this much screen time, then uh, this much money must be refunded. And it's like it's like a whole list of different uh, consequences, uh, financial consequences, if they don't give him the amount of screen time promised. So if they short him by like a second, they got to pay this much. If they short him by, by a minute, they got to pay this much. Short him by, by three minutes, they pay him by this much. And, uh, and then there's some, some director, some like really arrogant director is like, no, no. He sucks. He's not going to be in this. He's a. I'll give him a tiny bit of time. French director. Bah! Yeah, I don't. I don't care. This is. I don't care. I cannot work with this man. I, I'm going to cut it all. You. You do what you want. You. You fire me. I'm not. I, I, can, I can picture the whole thing. It's. A, I can picture like the big fight between 
the the backers of the film and, and the director <laughs> going and going shit. He's going to sue us for this, and this director just won't agree. And I I, I bet they probably browbeat the director into agreeing. And then when Dan's acting was horrendous, the director's like, "No, can't do it. No, 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 no. I just I, I'm not going to put my name on this if we have to have this much of Dan in the film." So that, I bet it was something like that. <laughs> then there's a big standoff between the director and the, and the, uh, the producers right, of the and film. The money people, because they're getting stiff with the whole thing. They don't get the million. Yeah, what a mess. Like they, they should have at least like watched a sample of his acting before agreeing to this. I, I bet they just blindly agreed because they were so desperate for money. By the way, uh, the, this is a little similar to the first Nightmare on Elm, Elm Street film, which nobody wanted to back because. Nobody had any faith in it. So it was a very low-budget film. They actually did a lot with what very little budget they had. Like, the special effects were a lot better than you'd expect for what... If there was, like, tiny budget on that film. And they, in fact, were not even able to do the film because they just could not raise money. But finally, they raised money from some investor who demanded that they give his girlfriend a major role. But I, I never found out who the girlfriend was. But there's there's some girl in the film who has like at least a semi major role, not like an extra or someone who's there for like a minute, who is only there because they were the girlfriend of one of the people backing it. And then of course the film ended up a huge hit and spawned a bunch of sequels. And uh, it's funny how like a lot of people passed on backing that, assuming it was going to be a flop. You never know. But definitely there there is an actress in that who had significant screen time that only had it because of a similar demand. Like, I'll invest, but my girlfriend wants to be an actress. And it was probably someone young. It was probably some older dude who had a young, pretty actress girlfriend who wasn't getting roles. And uh, he's like, okay, yeah, if you, you, you stay with me, honey. I'll get you, I'll get your roles, but uh, you got to stick by me. And then he said, okay, here, here's your opportunity. I've bought your way in. He probably didn't even say that. He probably told her I used my influence to get you in. But I never found out who it was. I tried to look into it. I never found out which of the actresses in Nightmare on Elm Street got there that way. But one of them did. That's for sure. Okay, so back to the Dan Blazarian. So there's some objections to this. Some people were just joking around on Twitter. Some people were raising serious objections to the whole thing. And I, I, I knew I was going to talk about it on the show. But to me, I'm like, okay, whatever. You know, like uh, He's a known name in poker. GG Poker wants to sign him. Maybe they think his massive social media reach is going to be worth something to them. I'm sure that's the main reason is to get the social media following. It's like free advertising on his social media, which is worth a lot of money these days. That's why I think they paid him a lot. And he probably has a good number of followers from outside the U.S. I know that Tom Nash says that a lot of those were bought followers, but... There's still got to be a lot of followers that he actually has that are uh, are real from outside the country who would be interested in playing poker. They tweeted out yesterday, December 3rd, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, breaking, GG Poker welcomes Dan Blazarian as our brand new ambassador. Stay tuned to all our channels over the next 24 hours to find out exactly what he'll be getting up to. There will be something for everyone. <laughs> and then uh, D- uh, Daniel Negranu... And you have to wonder if Dan Bilzerian's recent beefing with Doug Polk might have to do with this deal being in the works. Remember, he's been bashing Doug Polk recently and very much rooting for Negreanu. Uh Daniel Negreanu tweeted, GG Poker making all the moves. When it comes to poker and mainstream reach, there isn't a bigger influencer in the world. Welcome aboard, Dan Bilzerian. Stay tuned for some sick promotions. 
This is kind of interesting because these two are nothing alike. They're nothing alike. Daniel Negreanu is this sensitive, uh, liberal type of guy. And Dan Bilzerian is this very brash, like, uh, hyper-masculine guy who wants to go and, and, and shoot guns and be filmed uh, partying with tons of chicks in bikinis. So he's kind of like the, the, uh, like a frat boy from the 80s, Dan Bilzerian. And Daniel Negreanu is like this, like, 2020, uh, sensitive liberal guy. Like, they, they really don't have much in common. Daniel Negreanu has to act so excited to have him on the team because he's the face of GG Poker. What's he going to say? Oh, terrible signing. What an asshole. <laughs> he can't say anything like that. Now, I've never seen the two of them feuding before. I'll say that. But still, and, and I think if they were, like, like there's no way GG Poker would ever sign Doug Polk. No matter how much they would like Doug Polk, there's no way they would do it because Negreanu would scream the bloody murder if he, they tried that. So Daniel Negreanu does have input on this. And if he hated Bilzerian, he would not allow this. So I think... Personally, he didn't mind Bilzerian, but they have nothing in common, and a lot of what Daniel stands for, Bilzerian is kind of the opposite. It's kind of a a weird thing here. Uh, Doug Polk, of course, had to take a shot because he does not like Daniel or Dan Bilzerian, as you guys well know. He wrote, Dan Bilzerian becoming a GG Poker ambassador is the equivalent of me becoming an ambassador for GQ. Max Silver said, hot on the heels of Dan Bilzerian, who would GG Poker sign next as their next ambassador? Wrong answers only, and then just you know, hoping to get ridiculous answers. But then the the real tweet starting the shitstorm started. Uh, here's the one that uh, really got the shitstorm going. This was from Vanessa Cade. Now, Trader Risky, have you heard of Vanessa Cade before? K A D E is her last name. I haven't. Okay, some people have heard of her. Some have not. I will admit that I had heard the name, but I knew nothing about her. I just knew of some woman in poker named Vanessa Cade, and that was all I knew. Then I see one day, Vanessa Cade followed you. I have no idea why she followed me. I never interacted with her, but she followed me. And she's not one of these people people like following 30,000 people. She has like 400 followers. So she's 400 following. She has a lot of followers, but she's like following like 400 people. So I was one of them. I, I don't know what led her to do it, but okay. Great. So I followed her back. So I started seeing her content. Again, I, I have not once ever interacted with her directly. I may have like responded to tweets that she's written, but uh, like we've never had even a, a public conversation. That's to this day we still haven't. But I've seen a number of her tweets over time. And uh, at first, when I saw what she looked like, I thought, "Oh, this is going to be someone I'm not going to like," because like like her look. She so she has pink hair, and uh, and and. She has pink hair, and I saw some of her other tweets. At first, I thought, oh, this is going to be like some pink-haired extreme feminist who hates men and is always tweeting out like super left-wing stuff. And I, I, I have a feeling she's going to annoy me and kind of dislike her. Well, it turned out that wasn't true. So I don't I don't understand the pink hair. I don't know why she has that. but uh, and, and she does seem to be liberal politically. But she seems like a nice person. Like She seems very easygoing and gentle and upbeat. She always seems happy, always seems positive. And maybe some of this is an act for Twitter. I know some people on social media like to act like everything's great and they're happy and in reality they're miserable. But I don't know. I, I get the idea that this is at least fairly close to her true personality. She just kind of seems like a like a happy, upbeat, positive person who kind of has like a, a gentle, mostly non-confrontational personality. And, and if you go through her Twitter, it, it mostly is that stuff. So the, 
the, the tweet I'm about to read you is unusual for her. She doesn't usually tweet controversial things. She doesn't usually tweet uh, criticisms of other people. It, it's usually, uh, as I said, very positive stuff. And, uh, and she'll tweet pictures of her hanging out with her boyfriend or her friends or wh- whatever it is. It's like it's very upbeat stuff. It's kind of someone who looks like that they generally enjoy life. They're generally happy. They're generally positive. And, and they generally see the good in most people and in everything. That, that's the impression I've gotten of her. She's from Canada. She's from BC. And I, I was never able to really determine her age. And I assumed from looking at her that she was probably early 30s, but I, I couldn't tell. I could also tell she was filtering a lot of pictures that made it tough, too. So, but I, I, I didn't put the effort in at the time to really look up much about her. But from what I did see, I liked. I actually got a positive opinion of her pretty quickly. And she she's never won anything big on the tournament scene. I think her lifetime cash is like 126000 and. I, I think she does play online and wins cash. But again, I don't know all that much about it. But I, I will say that she, of the people who know her, she's well-respected and well-liked. That they're, You're not, you're not going to find many people with a negative opinion of her. So that, that's what I knew of her. Well, this is what she tweeted on December 3rd, about three and a half hours after the announcement of Dan Bilzerian being the new ambassador. Yuck. This guy's audience is a bunch of toxic losers. Literally the worst we could add to our community. Feels extra gross given how he treats women like literal props. Super disappointing, GG. A lot of us love what you've been doing. Well, I guess she hasn't paid that much attention here. I, I haven't loved everything they've been doing. There, there's been a lot of things I've complained about with GG Poker. They're not like scammers, but they've, they've done some things that I feel are unethical and some other things I feel are stupid. And there's there's been a, some degree of incompetence there too, so uh, that's it's not like GG Poker has made all the right moves up till now. Maybe she hasn't paid as close of attention as I have, but that that's the most critical thing I've ever read from her at any point. Just really like scroll through her Twitter prior to all this. It's just like all sunshine and rainbows. In fact, even her main profile picture is her sitting in like a zen-like pose on the top of like some water feature in a backyard pool. I think her pool. That, that, that's pretty much what her life is like. That, that's pretty much that, that picture pretty much represents her from what I can see. So then came the big thing that uh, blew up. Melissa Burr, who I also like, by the way, I, I played with her. I played with her at a main event once, and I, I always like to say that Melissa Burr probably thinks I'm a fish because, like, she just saw me lose like every hand on day one of the main event. But she tweeted back to Vanessa Cade, saying they really do care about the women over there, and then put a, an eye roll thing, which she's saying it sarcastically, and she put a screenshot of someone asking, "Are the girls coming too?" regarding Dan Bilzerian, and they said yes. So Melissa was mocking that they're saying that the those girls they hire to hang around with Dan, as as Vanessa said, like props, that they're actually going to be part of the GG Poker world now. So Melissa didn't like that. So then Vanessa said, "Yeah, I saw. I don't know why this has disappointed me so much. I think because the site has been clearly all about trying to get the best version of itself." I think in my mind, it was the future of poker in a lot of ways. So then Dan Bilzerian could take no more. Even though he didn't know Vanessa Cade, he did not like her criticism. 
And what did he say back? He said to her, Quiet, ho! Nobody knows who you are. He spelled ho, H-O-E. Not H-O. H-O-E. Quiet, ho, E. Nobody knows who you are. Well, that's pretty much validating what everybody's been saying here. That's exactly the criticism that people have been throwing at GG Poker. Like, hey, why did you hire this guy? He's a misogynist. He's a sexist. He's a, he's a boorish jerk. Blah, blah, blah. And then, quiet, ho. Nobody knows who you are. Like, yeah, this, this is what we mean. This is exactly it. Dan just demonstrated what the problem is with hiring him. Now, if Vanessa Cade actually had the reputation of a, quote, ho, without an E, of course, I, I guess if she had a reputation of a, of a ho, like the gardening tool, I guess that would be okay, too. But if she had a reputation for being that way, uh, it still wouldn't be appropriate to write that, but at least you could semi-understand this response, because she did start it. Like, I, I will concede for Dan that he didn't just pick on her out of nowhere. He, uh, she was saying some pretty nasty things about him. And then this is his response. So he did have a right to respond to her, and he did have a right to respond and even criticize her back. He could, if he knew her, if you don't know her, there's no really point to criticize her back. But let's say he knew her and knew some things about her that uh, were also like not very flattering. Uh, He would have a right to respond and say, yeah, well, let's talk about you now and stuff you've done. But there really wasn't anything that I know of. And I I think she didn't, he really didn't know who she was. When he said, nobody knows who you are, he didn't know who she was, and she's not super well-known. As you see, that Trader Ruski didn't know her. I bet a lot of you had not heard of her until this. She was kind of like a little bit known, but not uh, not a, a major name in poker. So that really kicked off a shitstorm. A lot of people responded in really angry fashion to this. I was surprised to see Dan Blazarian writing that, but also... I wasn't that surprised because it was Dan Bilzerian. It was just kind of who it was aimed at, like of all people to call a hoe. Like she, she really isn't. She's just kind of like this upbeat, gentle, like Canadian girl who plays poker and has like a long-term boyfriend. And like, like I, I really don't see that. I mean, yeah, she posts some bikini pics on on Twitter and likes to yeah people admire how she looks, but I, I don't really get this. I don't get that hoe vibe out of her at all. I, I really don't. And. Uh, I looked into her a little bit more ever since the situation, and I, I did learn some things about her which are kind of surprising. First of all, she's apparently a lot older than I thought, so like props to her if she's really as old as I think she is. I looked at her LinkedIn, and it said that she was working a job. like They look like a regular job. It doesn't even look like a summer job. It's not like she was working at a grocery store. She was like working like a regular tech job in 1999. Now, if you're working a regular job in 1999, you can't be that young. <laughs> that's, that's 21 years ago. I, I had thought she was early 30s. Apparently not if she was working somewhere in 1999. So I guess she just looks very good for her age, or maybe she uses really good filters all the time. I, I don't know. I was very surprised to see that. Like, if, if, she were, that was, if that was her first job out of college, if she graduated college at 22, that would make her like 43 now. She looks nowhere near 43. So I, I don't know what to say. I would have never guess she was around there. I would never guess that she's like five years younger than me, but uh, maybe she is. So that was the first thing I noticed. Also, apparently she has a software background. She says she, she's worked at uh, Disney, at LucasArts, 
So that's a pretty impressive background. And then I, I guess she hasn't had a job since 2014 and has since become a poker pro. But that, that's apparently her story. Response to Dan Bilzerian was incredibly negative. And I think one of the reasons that the response was so incredibly negative was that since she's well-liked, since there's not anyone who has an issue with her, since those that know her think highly of her and think she's a, like a sweet person, like for him to call her ho just seemed especially degrading. If he said this to somebody who was kind of off-putting, like let's say he said it to Kate Hall. Okay, Kate Hall's always said, hey, everybody, I'm a slut, look at me. You've seen her type of tweets. And I think there would be some people that would say things like, that's, that's pretty bad. Like, you should never say that. To a woman you're arguing with on Twitter, and I'd agree with that. Like you don't, you don't see me using this language. You don't see me calling people "ho" on Twitter, except Maria Ho. But at least if it's said to someone who's kind of off-putting and who constantly flaunts sexuality in your face, okay, yeah, you can kind of understand it. So again, if he said it to Kate Hall, I bet there'd been much less of a fallout. But he said this to somebody who really does not have that reputation. It's like really the opposite. This she really seems like just a respectable woman, and that has pissed people off. So. Uh, she was very happy that she got a lot of support, a lot of backing. I couldn't find very many people who were taking Dan's side on this. Yesterday she wrote, Weird day, surprised and overwhelmed by the nice things people had to say. Thank you for that, genuinely. A couple people fretting I might be upset. All good. Can't be hurt by someone I have no respect for. Just want better for poker, that's all. This hoe's going to sleep now. Good night. And then she, and then she started tweeting pictures of hoes, and she she made a hoe her uh, her main picture on uh, one of her main pictures on Twitter. So she, she's having fun with this, but of course it's easy to have fun when someone attacks you, and then like everyone takes your side. I believe she's not upset because if if everyone is responding positively and saying Vanessa is a wonderful person, and Dan Bilzerian's an asshole when he attempts to attack her, that's very vindicating. That that feels good. Then you you feel on top of the world if someone tries to attack you and they get stomped on for it. Now, if a bunch of people agreed with Dan and said, yeah, she is a hoe and nobody knows who she is, yeah, I'm, I'm sure she'd be like super upset right now. But that's the, the opposite happened, so she's happy. So I, I, I believe she's happy, and I'm glad she got the support. Like She didn't deserve this. She Something Dan also has to understand. He's, he's the Instagram king there with the 32 million followers, and he's someone who is very brash and who really makes a spectacle of himself on purpose – for social media and has been successful in doing so, very successful in doing so. So when you do that, you are also also opening yourself up to a lot of criticism and a lot of people saying mean and bad things about you and people disagreeing with the brash lifestyle choices that you are expressing on social media. And if you do not want that criticism, then there's a very simple way of handling it. Don't put yourself out there on social media and don't try to get millions of followers. You're going to get a lot of criticism if you get tons of followers by being brash and controversial and crazy. So you can't be thin-skinned at that point. So that's why he has to say, okay, well, this Vanessa Cade person, I don't know who she is, but of course I'm going to have haters. Of course I'm going to have people who don't like me. Of course I have people who won't agree with a lot of what I do because I'm kind of controversial. So okay, I'm just going to ignore it. He should have just ignored it. If he didn't want to ignore it, he could respond back by saying, hey, you don't really know me. You know, if, if, if you get a chance to know the real me, you'll see that uh, I'm not a bad guy or something like that. So it's to kind of defend yourself and say you don't really know me. You're just uh, judging me unfairly. But 
you, you can't call just some woman who's criticizing you a hoe because you're mad at her. Especially if you're in a high-profile position like that. Vanessa's also been going through Dan's old Twitter to mock things that he wrote to kind of prove her point that uh, he's a misogynist. So, for example, she found one from 2017 where he wrote, It's National Women's Day. Be thankful. They are good for so many things. And then he follows it up with a picture of where he has a woman, this looks like in a uh, hot tub, that she she has her, uh, she's almost naked, and she has her head underwater and her back up, and he has like a tray of food on her back. So he's using her as a, a, a tr- uh, as a table. He's actually using her as a table. Now, this is obviously a, a stage because she's kind of sitting on the edge of the jacuzzi. So I, I guess she, I guess she could have been a table for the long term. This is clearly a staged picture, though. Like, like all of Dan Blazerian's pictures are staged. If you ever look at him and go, oh, my God, this guy is like he, – he parties with like ten hot chicks at once. And they're all like super hot. And they, you must picture that they go to bed and he has like an 11-some. It's just him and all girls. That's nothing like that. They are all hired. There have been, in fact, uh, articles of uh, women who have – talked about the process of getting hired and being, you know, that they sign up for a modeling agency, the modeling agency contacts them, would you like to be on a Dan Bilzerian's Instagram, and they tell them what they need to do, and it never involves any sex with Dan or any sexual situations, it's just kind of provocative looking pictures, very posed stage things, but okay, that's part of his brand. As long as you know it's phony, that's part of his brand. I, I don't know... In his real lifestyle, like how much he actually gets. I, I don't know how much sex he really gets, the type of women he has sex with. I'm sure being as well-known as he is and have as, as much money as he has uh, and, and that some women may just want to be there anyway. Uh, he, I'm not saying he doesn't ever get any. I'm saying that it, it's not like what's depicted. So she, she found that funny picture from, from March 2017. You'll find a million of these here. She, he, he definitely objectifies women. Now, these women are being paid to be there. They're voluntarily there. They know when they're there, what they're doing there, and what they're there for. And in fact, it's like in a contract they sign. So he, he's not exploiting women that uh, have no choice. These are basically modeling jobs. And there's a lot of women who would be happy to take that job. So they they get paid decently and they uh, – um, you know, it's, it's, if they don't mind being depicted in that way – which isn't horrible. It's not like doing porn. They don't let mind being depicted as like one of uh, Dan Bilzerian's uh, girls there. Then fine. They agree. They get paid. It's part of the job. He gets his Instagram uh, pictures and that's that. It's it's a business transaction. But is he really putting out a, a message that women are kind of props to him? Yeah, he is. And I can understand people who criticize that message. I'm not offended by it. I, I, when I see it, you know what I think? I just think, oh, this is so phony. That, that's all I think. I don't think, oh, wow, I wish I was him. I don't think, wow, I wish I was there. I don't think, oh, my God, this is objectifying women. I just go, this is so phony. This is so staged. And I just kind of dismiss it. I just kind of laugh at it. I don't think it's really doing a lot of harm. I don't think, like, I, I know there's people who say, oh, this is this is making everyone think that, uh, this is all women are good for. Like we're, we're way past that. Like almost nobody thinks that way anymore. Like Dan Bilzerian putting up a picture of himself with girls in bikinis uh, in, in suggestive poses. That that's not going to convince people to show little respect to women. Those that see that and do are already going to act that way anyway. But, but at the same time, I, I can see where some people don't like that. Where some people have criticism for that. 
I got a message from someone here. Just spent a couple weeks with Vanessa, as Vanessa Cade, of course, while she was here visiting my roommate. Super attractive in person and super nice. Yeah, like, I mean, that was kind of the impression I got. That's why I was even kind of taken aback by the quiet ho thing. Because really, there's there's a lot of girls in poker who, I, I, if, if I had seen it said to them, I would have said, okay, inappropriate, shouldn't have said it, definitely wrong, but... I don't really feel bad for them because they're obnoxious. Like there's, there's, an, there's certain girls in poker I would think that about, like Kate Hall. Vanessa Kate is like, so not that. I was just thinking she just seems nice to me. <laughs> she just doesn't deserve that. Even even with the critical comment, she doesn't deserve that. So there's all these people in poker now just really ripping on Dan. So if they, they didn't like the signing before, they hate it now. They hate it. And there's a lot of people now putting pressure on GG Poker to get rid of him. And he put them in a bad spot. Phil Nagy, uh, the CEO of ACR, he uh, jumped into this. And, of course, he has a reason to jump into this because he's the competition. Now, I know he's not as much competition because ACR is mainly aimed at the American market, which GG Poker is not. But they do also take people from outside the U.S., and that part does compete with GG. So, of course... Uh, it's to Phil Nagy's benefit not to make them look good. But uh, Phil Nagy wrote, I'm happy to back Vanessa Cade if she wants. 2550 heads up no limit versus Dan Bilzerian. I don't care what site they play on. What now? So he's even trying to say, I'm not trying to promote ACR either. Just uh, yeah, play wherever. I will back Vanessa 2550 <laughs> against Dan if they want to play heads up. So uh, then, believe it or not, Bill Perkins actually responded as well that he would back Vanessa here. I don't have the tweet in front of me, but he said he would back Vanessa, which surprised people because Perkins is friends with Vilzerian. But he's saying, no, I'd back Vanessa here. <laughs> so the poker Twitter is saying that they think Vanessa is a better player and that uh, they would actually put their money where their mouths are and back her in a heads-up match against Dan. That shows you what respect they have for his game. Not that she's a bad player. I'm just saying that uh, even probably not knowing that much about her game, they are uh, willing to back her in a match against Dan Bilzeri. Not that such a match is going to occur. People are saying it should occur. It'll be more interesting than Negreanu against Polk. But that they would. I have a feeling if she got in this into this with Doug Polk, that there would not be such offers to back her. But Dan Bilzerian, they're like, yeah, we think she'd win. Very possible that's true. So this is uh, an interesting situation because this shows you the hazards of signing someone like Dan Bilzerian. Now, has he represented other sites before? Answer, yes. He was once a pro on Victory Poker. Back in 2011, he was one of the faces of Victory Poker. Victory Poker was a cake poker skin that was run by Dan Fleischman. And it was so stupid because cake poker wasn't a big network in the first place. And here they were a skin of cake poker. And somehow Dan Fleischman treated the site like it was uh, this high-budget, high-flying thing was going to take the poker world by storm. Well, there are several reasons why it wasn't going to. The software sucked. The cake network had all kinds of problems. It was already on the decline in 2011. At one point, like in 07, 08, some people thought it might be a future player, but no, it, it didn't really go anywhere. By 11, it was clear it wasn't going anywhere. So he was a skin on a network that was already declining and was never all that big in the first place. And somehow he thought that was going to work. Well, of course, Victory Poker failed. But Dan was signed as one of the ambassadors. 
And some controversy came up when Joy Miller raised an issue that Dan had posted like kind of a semi-racist joke on his Twitter. And then Joy did what Joy always did at the time. She would use her power in the poker media to ban people from coverage, which, of course, she can't do. She can't just say, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm in the poker media and I don't like this person, so they're just not going to get covered. That's not her decision. If she owned the publication or was the top manager of the publication, yes, but she was just an employee who would just say, okay, you're not getting covered. And by the way, guess who one of those people was that she did this to? Me. And uh, she also did it to David Skolansky. She did it to, other, to anyone she had a, a personal dislike for. She would tell them they're not going to be covered. She's just going to shut them out. So she did that to Dan Bilzerian and told him that he's not going to be covered and no victory poker pros will be covered until Dan Fleischman fires him. Well... He said, you know, Dan's never going to, he's, Bilzerian's never going to ESPN. Dan Bilzerian won't get into bluff. That he's going to be shut out of almost all poker media. And that, uh, all victory poker pros will too, unless Fleischman fires him. That was her ultimatum. So, guess what? Instead of hiding from this, Bilzerian said, screw this. I'm going to play this crazy voicemail she left. And I'm going to show everyone that she's abusing her power like this. And he put it out there and she looked terrible. And everyone took Dan's side, and Joy was pretty much run out of poker. And then she eventually got pregnant and married anyway and moved out of Vegas, and that was that. He was part of controversy then because of things he was tweeting. I understood, actually, why Joy Miller found that tweet a little offensive. It was an off-color joke. Even back in 2011, it it was on the racist side. It was a joke. It wasn't meant offensively. But I, as I said, I I understand why some people wouldn't like that sort of thing. But it's just the way she reacted of, I'm going to ban you from everything now, even though she's just an employee there. Just a typical situation of like a very power-hungry, like mid-level employee who just uses it for personal grudges. I mean, I know she did it to me. She did it to others. And she was an awful person. Everybody who worked with her hated her. She was abusive to people at work. Just everybody hated Joy Miller. Talk to, talk to anybody who worked with Joy Miller back in the day, they'll all tell you the same thing. That she was awful, that she was abusive, that she was power hungry. And, uh, so she tried it on, on Dan and it backfired. He just met her head on. <laughs> so, so, but the, the point is though, this has happened before. He just ended up coming on top there because Joy Miller was so awful and everyone woke up to it. And then everybody showed up with their own Joy Miller stories about how terrible she was. Dating back to 2007 when she cheated Terrence Chan out of a poker seat at the main event so that when uh, they, they held this uh, tournament at the Playboy Mansion. like she, she had this long history of treating people like crap. So that took precedence. That was, uh, it was more of like everyone opens up their eyes to how awful Joy Miller is. That was the result of her battle with Dan Bilzerian, and people really weren't focusing on his off-color joke. So, okay, he got away with it there because the opponent there was so unlikable and had such a poor history. But... Uh, here, the opponent is the opposite. It's someone who's very likable, someone who's very who's soft-spoken and gentle and uh, very non-controversial, and it seems like doesn't even have a big ego, which is again like the opposite of Joy Miller, who thought she was like the best person ever. So that was kind of the wrong person to do that to. And I think he didn't even understand that when he did it. 
But uh, good luck to GG Poker. They're going to be dealing with this for a long time. Not not just this Vanessa situation, which will blow over, but uh, th- there's going to be things like this that keep happening when people give him a hard time, especially because he's been having issues with this Ignite company, which, number one, puts him in a bad mood, and number two, gives people more ammo to insult him. And he's been reacting angrily to some of that, too. He's getting he gets pissed when you mock him about the ignite thing or or mock ignite itself or say ignite's about to go bankrupt. Like if you say these things, he 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 gets mad at you. So he kind of is uh, like a powder keg about to explode, and I don't think for that reason it's a good signing. I can see why they did it, but I believe they weren't looking at the bad that comes with signing Dan Bilzerian. The good is the huge Instagram following. The bad is everything he's going to do representing you. And everybody else on that team, with the exception of Negranu, is not going to get into this hot water. But even Negranu is not going to do things like that. Negranu is not going to say, say someone's a hoe. He'll, he'll post stupid things and he'll say weird things that people can mock, but uh, it's, it's not on the same level. It's not going to be like brash and super offensive. It's not, he's not going to attack women. If he does attack women, it's just kind of like him having a beef with someone, not just attacking them in a in a, in a misogynist a shorter way. Like, yeah, I know Daniel has some beefs with like like Daniel Anderson and or, or not? Is it Daniel Anderson or maybe, maybe it's no? It's Jamie Kerstetter. I, for some reason, I get the, those two kind of I, I get them mixed up sometimes. I know the two completely different people, but just some, sometimes like what happens with one uh, kind of makes me think of the other. They, they have some similarities, those two. You have Jamie Kerstetter, who had the issues with Negranu. So, like, Negranu will, will bring up issues like that, but it's not, he's not fighting with them because they're female, or he's not referring to them in derating ways like that. He just has beef with a lot of people. Overall, as I said earlier, Negranu's still a good signing for a poker site to have. He's still well-liked by the public, and he's not going to do anything outrageous, and he doesn't have any history of, of scamming or, or doing anything really awful. Negranu, the worst thing about Negranu is just the type of stuff he puts out on social media. And maybe what he does on Twitch sometimes when he can't control his temper. So we will see how long Bilzerian lasts there. You know who didn't last was Trader Ruski, because we lost him during this whole thing. Trader Ruski, you're back. Yeah, I got cut off. Okay. What, what, what do you think of this whole thing? Do you think Dan Bilzerian was a good or bad signing, given all this? I don't know. I mean, you could say any PR is good PR, but... I just don't know if it's worth it. Yeah, they got to be. I don't know what they're paying him. I mean, what could they possibly be paying him if he has so much money to make it worthwhile? I, I don't know. Well, that would actually that actually might uh, validate some of what Tom Nash is saying. Tom Nash is saying that Dan Bilzerian is near broke and that uh, he's just feigning having a lot of money, and that uh, the money is really comes from his father, but that Dan really has very little. But may, maybe Dan just wants to be part of it. You remember, Dan does like poker. He does like being part of poker. So maybe may just. He, he, it's appealing to be the face, one of the faces of GG Poker. It could be not even about the money so much. True. But it's, that's, that's not a good start. Not a good start uh, to call Vanessa Cade a hoe on the first day that you're a pro- poker. It's the first day that it's like, it's not even like this happened a year into his tenure there. It happened on the first freaking day. <laughs> you can't even go 24 hours with, without doing exactly what people were complaining about might happen. It's like, hey, you don't respect women. Hey, we don't like this. That's not very good. Shut up, ho. Oh, boy. We're going to move on here. I'm going to give you an update here about uh, Tony Shi and what it looks like the situation was with his death. 
I've said before about people who are very innovative, very creative, groundbreakers, that sometimes what is good about them is also what's bad about them. Sometimes whatever is in their psychology, whatever flaws they might have, actually are what allows them to excel, allows them to stand out, allows them to succeed because they do things differently than other people. They have their more motivated sometimes they 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 have more drive there there can be many things many traits one can have which can be flaws and assets at the same time we see this in poker we see this with certain great poker players whose uh, style that makes them great also isn't very compatible with real life outside of poker and they end up with a lot of problems with uh negative EV gambling problems, with drug problems, with alcohol problems, with uh, just a lot of bad decisions are made. And yet, at the poker table, they're great. But you can see how one bleeds over to the other, where sometimes uh, traits that make you a great poker player, unfortunately, make you an irresponsible person. So uh, I've said this before about poker players. What's good about them is what's bad about them. And it looks like that is the case, or was the case, with Tony Shee. He had already some kind of bizarre ideas and uh, lifestyle decisions. He wasn't a conventional guy by any means. So some of this was positive. He, uh, he had an obsession with making people happy, with being happy, with making people happy. In fact, he incorporated that into Zappos. A lot of the company culture was about making employees happy and about making customers happy. He was very, very big on the whole concept of happiness. And he said, well, how, how can that be criticized? Well, it depends which way you come to the happiness. So I had already said on the last show that, that I already started to see some cracks in the way the company was managed in that uh, where, where I talked about the situation where there was a bug that remained there for years with the gift cards that the developers would not fix, the website developers would not fix because they didn't feel like it. And there was, there was no way that the customer service department could get them to do it because – Basically, the developers managed themselves, and they could do what they wanted, and basically Tony said, okay, you guys are your own bosses. You you do what you think is right, and they're like, okay, well, we don't feel like fixing this bug. That's what we think is right, and so it doesn't get fixed. So that's the type of thing that can happen sometimes if, if there's too much obsession with keeping everybody happy, but uh, – For the most part, from a business standpoint, he did things right. He did things in an unusual fashion, in an unconventional fashion, but it worked. And Zappos was one of the few uh, e-businesses from the early 2000s that didn't fail. Remember all the 2000, 2001 businesses? uh, They vanished very quickly after the dot-com bust. Zappos was one that did not and grew and grew and grew and eventually was sold to Amazon for $1.2 billion. And then Amazon said, you know what, Tony? We like the way you do things so much. We're not going to, we could, but we're not going to come in and take over and tell you how to do things. The way you run things isn't how we would run things, but you do you. You, you continue running it the way you are. You're profitable. You're doing well. Everybody likes you. So you know what? You just keep running it. We're, we're just going to be the owner, but you, you keep running it as if you're the owner. And that, that was back in 09. So that's why Zappos didn't change much in the past 11 years. So it was successful what he was doing, even though there were some flaws with it. And uh, so, so everything seemed to be going well. But uh, along with this came some 
general uh, bizarre and destructive behaviors. Some of them were just weird and some of them were self-destructive. Now, I will say that everyone who interacted with him for the most part uh, has good things to say. So he was very nice to people. He was very generous with people. He uh, didn't screw people over. He wasn't this like ruthless businessman type who uh, crushed people who were in his way. That, that wasn't him. He was the opposite of that. But at the same time, uh, he was very undisciplined, and he always liked drugs. He was always big on uh, using drugs to increase your happiness, which, again, the, where the happiness problem can come in. You, yes, maybe doing drugs can make you happy while you're doing them, but there's a lot of consequences for doing drugs, especially if you uh, do them to excess. So uh, he he was open about that, that, that he did drugs. Then he went to Burning Man, did drugs there, that he'd do drugs other times. So uh, he, he was... He was a drug user, and there was some concern about that, but he didn't let it completely get out of control. He also had this weird thing about uh, his living circumstances. This is a guy who had $840 million net worth, and he lived in a trailer. I kid you not. He had an Airstream trailer, which is it's a nice trailer, but it's still a trailer. He had an Airstream trailer that he lived in. That, that was his actual home. And he, I think he had some weird thing of being, he didn't want to be part of the power grid. So a lot of bizarre ideas he had that I, I don't even know where the, some of these came from. But despite all of his wealth, he was living in an Airstream trailer. And uh, he just, th- there were a lot of odd things about him. He was very far from a conventional person, and in some ways it was harmless, and in some ways... These were things that could come back to bite him later, especially the drug use. Well, he was generally okay to where he was he was functional. There weren't major problems from his lifestyle. The, the problem actually came because of COVID. This, this was really an indirect death due to COVID. And if you read the story that is on Forbes, Forbes did a very intensive and detailed examination of his life over the past week. More than anyone or any organization I've seen do so far. It's very impressive what they came up with. So if you just Google Forbes Tony Shee, H-S-I-E-H, as he spells last name, I'm assuming that's the correct pronunciation. I, I knew somebody in high school who had that last name, and that's how he pronounced it, but maybe I'm wrong. But anyway, uh, they did... Uh, a full investigation about his life by talking to a ton of people who knew him over the years, ones who knew him this year, ones who knew him in the past. They wanted to get a full picture of his life to figure out, did he really die uh, due to his own irresponsibility? So the theory of how he died was that he was in this shed, in this home in Connecticut that he didn't own. It was a, a Zappos employee that uh, he was visiting her. But he was in the shed with locked doors, and the theory was that he had candy candles on to kind of set the mood. He was there by himself, but he, he had candles on while huffing nitrous oxide. He was doing what's called whippets, and that he overdid it and passed out, and then the candles ignited somehow in there, maybe because of the nitrous, and created a fire in there, and uh, by the time the fire department was over, able to get down there, actually, they, they got there very quickly because they happened to be across the street. But they, by the time they got in there, he had been there for like eight and a half minutes, and uh, he had 
suffered enough damage from smoke inhalation to where uh, he was going to die, and nine days later he died. So that's, that's what the working theory is right now, that he was doing nitrous oxide for fun with candles in there, passed out, and then the candles ignited something in there, and he was unconscious, and they by the time they got him out of there, too late. That's the working theory right now. So it was an accident. It's not believed he, tr- he tried to kill himself. In fact, the, while he was kind of in a spiral in some ways, it is not believed that he, he did this to kill himself, and that would be a weird way to kill yourself. Most people don't kill themselves with a, a, by, by setting a fire in the room that they're in and locking the door. That's just a, It's a very unpleasant way to die. So usually uh, it would be a very uncommon way for one to kill themselves. So this really does look like an accident, but it does look like an accident because of irresponsible behavior. But how did he get there? Well, as I was saying, 2020 was a tough year for him because the stuff he was doing before to kind of unwind, to create happiness for himself, to party, to basically go out and have fun, a lot of that became unavailable because of COVID and the shutdowns. And he started to get more and more frustrated and feel more and more trapped and get more and more depressed. Apparently, he suffered from depression. And that was also driving some of this behavior. And the depression intensified with the COVID shutdowns, which interestingly, a lot of people who are anti-shutdown have been saying this. A lot of people who have been anti-shutdown say, you don't know the mental health problems that are, are worsening because of this. That it's kind of like an invisible consequence of COVID. And an invisible consequence of the shutdowns is that the suicides are going up and that people's levels of depression are going way up. People who are already predisposed to depression or have dealt with depression are now experiencing a much worse version of it to the point of it getting dangerous. And that seems to be what was happening here. But it goes beyond that. Uh, When this was going on, apparently he... uh, he, in order to cope with this, he decided that he was going to bring a bunch of people around him and, quote, be happy with them. So he thought, okay, if I can't go to my normal places and hang out and have fun, I'm going to bring the fun to me. So I'm going to find people that I, I like, and I'm going to pay them to move from wherever they are to hang out with me and have fun with me. And to make sure that they're willing to leave their jobs, I'm going to pay them double of whatever their salaries are. So it was said that he went to Park City, Utah, and that he offered that certain people, this wasn't open to anyone, of course, but that certain people he liked, he said, tell me what the highest ever salary you made. Not even what you're making right now. What's the highest ever salary you've made in your life? And then when they told him, he said, okay, I will pay you double of that if you get up right now move to Park City, Utah, and be happy with me. Really? He made that offer. I don't know how many people took him up on it, but a number of people took him up on this and said, oh, sweet. (laughs) So my new job is going to be double my highest salary ever, and I just get to hang out and be happy with Tony Shee. Not even do any real work. Just just be happy around him. That that was the job description, be happy. So he was basically bringing the fun to him so he could make his own little bubble of, of having fun. But what's the problem with this, aside from it being a little bit crazy? <laughs> what's the problem with it? Obviously, he could afford it with all the money he had. But what's the problem with this plan? The problem is you end up with an Elvis 
end-of-his-life type environment where you're surrounded with yes-men who will never tell you that you need to moderate. They'll never give you their true opinion. They'll never tell you, hey, you need to watch out. Hey, you're, you're not handling things well. Hey, you're, you're engaging in dangerous behavior. If you're surrounded with real friends who are not getting anything out of the friendship with you other than just your friendship, when they see you start to behave in an erratic or irresponsible manner, they will tell you. They will usually tell you that they're concerned for you and try to give you advice. They won't always do that, but usually you know, at least some of the friends will. But he surrounded himself with people who were terrified to say anything because when people would start to bring up anything, he would shoot them down and, and not want to talk about it. And, and uh, it was kind of made clear being happy means you come here and do what I want. You don't, uh, you don't question it. That, that was part of the be happy job description. Not officially, but unofficially. That was the, that's what was understood. You, you don't come here, you don't go to Park City and say, Tony, I, I think you do too many drugs, man. You, you, gotta, you gotta cool down with this. It's, I know you wanna have fun, but maybe do a little bit less. That's, that's not being happy. That's being a wet blanket. He doesn't want, he's not paying you double your highest salary ever to, to, to criticize his drug use. You're, you're supposed to come there and have fun with him. So what one friend said to Forbes was, in the end, the king had no clothes. And the sycophants wouldn't say a fucking word. People took the deal from from somebody who was obviously sick. They're referring to his uh, uh, his drug use and his depression. And in fact, saying that these people were encouraging the drug use, even if just by going along with it and saying nothing. He fost- he fostered so much human connection and happiness. Yet there was this void. That friend said it was difficult for him to be alone. So that that was a problem here. Is that uh, well, one of many problems. His obsession with being happy involved being around people, uh, socializing, doing drugs, and really just kind of living this uh, free-spirited, wild lifestyle. And if he couldn't do that, then he got really depressed. And then he came up with this plan. Hey, I have $840 million. uh, Why don't I just pay people to come to me? And that's what he did. Jewel, the singer Jewel. She actually was a friend of his, and she actually hung out with him somewhat. I don't know how they got to know each other, but they were friends. Jewel went to Park City and put on a private concert for she and about uh, 50 friends at one point. Well, she abruptly left Park City in August, and this is what she wrote in a letter to him. I'm not sure how they got this letter, but they got this letter that she sent to him via FedEx, She wrote, I'm going to be blunt. I need to tell you that I don't think you're well and in your right mind. I think you are taking too many drugs that cause you to disassociate. The people that you are surrounding yourself with are either ignorant or willing to be complicit in you killing yourself. She was right. That was back in August. And she... That's crazy. She she basically... said, Jewel, the singer, told him she doesn't want to hang out with him anymore. And uh, she said, when you look around and realize that every single person around you is on your payroll... You're in trouble. You're in trouble, Tony, she repeated. By the way, they asked Jewel for comment now, and she would not comment. <laughs> but that, that was a real letter. Good for her. I mean, she tried to step up and do something. She yeah. She's the only one who would say anything, it sounds like. Yeah, I guess because she was Jewel, she was like, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm a famous singer. I don't, I don't need to be on his payroll. I'm just going to – I care about him. I, I think he's a good guy, and I, I, I'm watching him destroy himself, and these idiots around him just want money. And they don't want to say anything. They they love the 
being paid double their highest salary for doing nothing. So uh, they're not going to say anything. I will. So she tried. But the problem is it fell on deaf ears because, number one, it's kind of hard to get people to change when they're in a spiral like that, especially hard when they're surrounded by yes men. So even if Jules telling you you're, you're screwing up, she, he's like, ah, you know, Jules doesn't know what she's talking about. She, she's just uh, she's just no fun anymore. So that uh, that's what was actually happening there. And uh, it looks very likely that what occurred in that shed was uh, something like what's theorized. And it, it will never be known for sure because they're... they're, well, they're but they, well, but if they... I mean, if he was doing whippets, they'd have all those little uh, containers. Yeah. Little uh, metal things that I heard they come in. Yeah, they, they probably but, would. They, they probably would. It's just that, uh, I, like, as far as the actual cause of the fire, like, uh, you'll never know for sure what exactly happened there, or you know, maybe maybe he had the whippets, and maybe you know, he he maybe it wasn't he passed out. Maybe he he bumped against, uh, or maybe he fell down and hit his head and knocked the candles down in the process, and it, it lit things up. Like it could have been something like that well, too. But. And it could be too drop because you know the candles are sucking a certain amount of oxygen out of the room, and then with whippets like that replaces oxygen. And you can, you know, people have died, like, by doing that in the car. I had a kid I grew up with die, and he did it in the car. The windows were up and just removed the energy, and he was unconscious and died. You know? It's crazy. Yeah. That's, that's but true. But I think your scenario, and then he would have fallen over, so I think it's the same type of thing you say anyway. Yeah. And uh, so, so his history, by the way, he was, uh, he originally majored in computer science, like I did. Uh, he's, he's close to my age, a little younger than me, much very close to my age. Uh, his big break actually came not from anything with computers. It was from pizza. Believe it or not, he figured out that in his dorm that he, uh, he could sell pizzas to people in his dorm. So he actually got the rights to sell pizza to that dorm. And then that idea caught on and he made money from that. So he made enough money to then start up a company called Link Exchange, which I remember from the mid '90s because i i had a, a i had a, a chat room I was co running with somebody else. I, I wrote it, and somebody else was uh, helping me manage it. But uh, I remember Link Exchange. Uh, we actually dealt with them a little bit, and uh, I didn't remember that he was the one in charge there. But he and and a friend of his that he met at that dorm started Link Exchange. Which was a digital advertising network, and then right. I think that was that right before Double Click. I think it was before Double Click. Yes, it was. It was before Double Click, right? And then, uh, and then, when he was twenty-four years old, he sold it to Microsoft for two hundred sixty-five million dollars. And of course, this was during the dot-com boom, so that that explains why uh, Microsoft bought it for that much. That that was back in the days when it looked like internet, like advertising on websites, was the future of the internet. You may say, "Well, wait, it was." We see ads all the time. No, nothing like they thought back then. Like it was, it was assumed back then that advertise like banners on websites was going to generate just a fortune for everybody. And so they're they're still they're still there, but it's uh it doesn't make as much as was projected back then. That was the flaw with the industry back then. It was too ad based. Well, I think it just didn't ramp fast enough. You know, where it is now it's making money, but I think it was just, you know, there wasn't bandwidth to support the growth 
of you know involving companies, right? Well, for for what I saw, it was that the the rate expected for the ads was was too much. Like there was too much value on these ads. Uh, that that uh, um, like just on I understand like on things like Google where there's massive value and you, it's very expensive to advertise. Like every click you get can cost you like a dollar on Google if you're advertising well, right. it. Right. Well, that's because now you can be so much more targeted. But you're right. Back then, it was just putting a flyer up. Yeah. And who knew? You couldn't really get analytics even. Right? So it was kind of more of like attitude. Yeah, and, and I know because we, we had we had Link Exchange banners, and we, we slapped them up on our site, and we, we'd, get, uh, right. we'd get money for each one. So that's oh, because wasn't that on Excite? Wasn't Excite? I think Excite had a bunch of those. It might. I, I don't know much about it. I, I think I knew of Excite. I didn't really look at it that closely then. But yeah. It, so anyway, he he sold it at the at the height of the dot com boom of the of the late nineties, early two thousands. The age of twenty four, he sold this for two hundred sixty five million. So obviously, right there, uh, he's already set for life. He could he could never work. He could have just said, okay, I'm retiring at age twenty four and, and uh, two hundred sixty five million. He could never even invest it and be you know super rich the rest of his life. Uh, but he didn't. Then, then he went on to Zappos, and uh, and then he took Zappos to uh, the next level. When he joined it, it, it was nothing. It was just uh, oh, so he didn't found it, huh, Jeff? Uh, he he uh, he was. I thought he founded it. There was. Uh, let me think. Here. He joined it a slightly after it started. So I, um, it was called ShoeSite dot com, and. Uh, there was a guy named uh, Nick Swinburne, I'm seeing in this, who said that he wanted to start a shoe company. So I, I, like very soon after uh, Tony joined it, he probably bankrolled it. That's probably the, why they're saying he started it. But it was actually right. this Nick guy who said – Yeah, I'll bet that is. Yeah, and so he didn't – I know he didn't join it right away. I know like like very soon after it started, he joined it. But anyway, he it, it was pretty much him. It was pretty much his site. He, and he's, I don't know whose idea was to rename nope. it to Zappos, but very quickly it got renamed nope. Zappos and – what year was that, Truff? That was in uh, 99 or 2000. Right. And then, what? so, right. And then Amazon probably started a year or two before that, maybe. And then eBay, right? So bookstore, Pez, and that, and then shoes, right? And then those were like the three left standing, you know? Yeah. And then and then Amazon, they, they, they've branched out to sell everything. Zappos branched out to sell other things, but not as many things as Amazon. But and Amazon bought them in '09, as I said. But uh, but that was for 1.2 billion. So, I mean, obviously, this guy had a real talent for seeing things that uh, were going to be successful and even uh, driving them towards uh, uh, towards actually. It wasn't just he wasn't just an idea guy. He actually was good at implementing it to to working out too. So I mean, here you had three big success stories that people who were on the internet at the time probably heard of. Link Exchange, especially if you were uh, on the web development side or ran a website, I'm sure you heard of Link Exchange in the 90s. And then, uh, and then you had uh, Zappos. So these these two things here were uh, both great ideas that were implemented correctly and and made him a fortune in each case. So th- this wasn't just luck. This wasn't just a guy who happened to have an idea and and, and it worked out. I mean, here two different things. He uh, he made huge at the right time, and and was able to outlast others who tried it and failed and went broke. So obviously he had a lot of talent in this, and his management style, while uh, unconventional and, and somewhat flawed, uh, managed to work. And uh, Sanomar on our forum, his daughter worked for Zappos, and he said that she described it as one of the best experiences of her life. 
and that she made friends there that she's still in touch with and that uh, she left the company for something else. But uh, she uh, she said it was a very, very positive thing for her and that uh, a lot of the people who even ones who don't work there anymore, uh, they have like lifelong friends and and and. Uh, they see each other like family. So very interesting environment over there and different from most companies you would have known of. And then, of course, he also got this this uh, obsession with downtown Las Vegas and decided to invest a lot of money. He invested $350,000, a million dollars in, in downtown Las Vegas and is celebrated there for that. So it, all these things, had they not also been incorporated with the drug use you know, and, and, and would eventually killed him, you would say this is just a, a really, really great guy without any major flaws. But unfortunately, I, I think that some of the drive that brought him to do these things, some of his obsession with being happy and all of this, some of which led him to a lot of these positive actions, unfortunately, were also personality flaws. In fact, he, he hardly slept. He, 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 uh, he slept very little each night and, uh, he didn't like to sleep. It's just a lot of weird quirks he had, which I think uh, unfortunately led him to the path of uh, of, dr- of heavy drug use, and then uh, everything fell apart because of COVID because he wasn't able to just go out. I think it was he may have gotten here anyway with with drug addiction, but. Up till this point, and by the way, of course, he resigned from Zappos in August, and people are now attributing this to the decline he was in. It was, I was wondering if this was a coincidence, because I, I hadn't even heard that he had resigned until I read that he died, and then I saw he was the former CEO. Somehow I hadn't heard of yeah, that. Yeah, I hadn't either. I hadn't either. And the reason you hadn't heard is that it wasn't a big deal. They didn't make it, it wasn't publicized very well. It was meant to be kind of a quiet step down. And it was never really explained. Even he didn't explain at the time why he was leaving. But it was all part of this spiral. It was all part of that he, he couldn't stand the way life was under COVID, that he just couldn't deal. And that's when he created his little uh, Park City uh, group of yes-men and, and bailed on Las Vegas because he couldn't stand being there the way it was. And he decided to create his own reality. I'm not sure why he did it at Park City, but uh, that's, that's what was happening. And and this this is the problem. This is if you uh, you can say, "Oh, what a happy-go-lucky guy!" And uh, but if if you have an obsession with this, with always being in the state, and then something like COVID hits, and then you can't go out and and uh, go out to places before where you were doing this stuff, then if, if this leads you into an intense depression, that's a big problem. And there's a lot of other ways this can, this can become a problem, where the slightest thing that can disrupt it can really screw you up. Or you could just uh, get out of control anyway and, and start going on a path of uh, major drug addiction. So that's why you're always teetering on the brink of disaster if you're living this way, no matter how rich you are. And sometimes being rich can actually be a hindrance because you can get whatever you want. Where if you're a regular person or even a person who doesn't have much money, then you're limited with, with what you can afford. If you have $840 million, then you go, okay, well, I can solve this. And then you start to find whatever ways seems most convenient to solve it. And if you think, think if you had $840 million, think, think of how many times you'd be tempted to just use your money to take care of things that are a pain in the ass. And sometimes it could be a positive just to 
stop from having to do unpleasant things. And, but sometimes it can start to become a crutch. It can start to be where you're always paying people for things. You're always using your money as a tool to get what you want. And then this starts encouraging unhealthy behavior or starts uh, attracting people who are going to use you for it. And there's a lot of downsides to being super rich. Obviously a lot of upsides, but you, if you get like super rich, you have hundreds of millions of dollars or a billion dollars or more, you've got to be really careful how you use that money. And that really the healthiest way to go about it is to try to mostly live a normal life and forget you have that money. And uh, try try to just not always have that as something you can use to uh, always make your life easier or you're going to start running yourself into trouble, especially if you do drugs. But this really reminds me a lot of Elvis's story. That's exactly what I heard about Elvis. Was Elvis was addicted to pills. He got really fat and was addicted to pills in the in the mid seventies. And uh, nobody around him around him wanted to say, "Hey, Elvis, you're this is unhealthy. You're going to kill yourself." Because they knew if they said it, Elvis would say, "Okay, well, I don't want you hanging out with me anymore. Goodbye." So the yes men hung around Elvis. Oh yeah, Elvis is great. Yeah, have a lot of fun. Huh? And one day he's dead. Age like forty three, I think he died. So a similar story here. Like some, sometimes, if you use money to solve problems, it can actually uh, it, it can be useful. It, it can be sometimes even ways you won't think of it. Like a, I was in New York City in 2002. It was a brutally hot trip I had there. I'm never going back in, in the summer to New York City. It was super hot. It was like 95 and super humid there. But uh, anyway, one thing we did on the final day. So we're, we're going to like fly back in the evening, but on the, so we still were doing tourist stuff on the final day. One thing that looked really fun is you could go on this uh, really fast boat, like kind of the ones they would be on in Miami Vice, that uh, kind of almost float above the water. They weren't airboats, but they're you know those super fast boats. I don't know the name of them, but uh, they had this where it was twenty. It was I don't know twenty something dollars a person. And they zoom around uh, the harbor there. And uh, uh, on, on that day, it was especially nice because it seemed like it would be refreshing to have the, like a lot of water splashes up at you. But it was like 95 degrees and humid, so that it wasn't even the – like I wouldn't want that. It was 50 outside. But that it seemed fun and it looked kind of refreshing and it just – we were over there. We weren't there to do it. We were there to see the uh, – uh, I think some kind of uh, – ship that was over there, but uh, we saw that. We wanted to go on it. Well, the problem was there was a tremendously long line, and uh, it was going to be like 90 minutes on the line. You had to buy a ticket, and I think the next ticket was 90 minutes out, and you had to line up. Whatever it was, it was going to be like a long time on the line. So number one, it would be unpleasant to stand there in the heat on the line, and number two, uh, we weren't going to be able to do it in time because we were going to have to leave pretty soon to go to the airport. To, we remember we had to go to go back to the hotel, get our luggage, which they're holding for us, and then go to the airport, and you know, you know the whole process. So we were no chance we had ninety minutes to waste online. So I said, "Oh, that sucks." Well, maybe next trip. We're about to walk away, and I said to my then girlfriend, "Wait a minute, why are we walking away here? We we really want to do this." So I said, "I have an idea." I just went up to a random part, of the, kind of like near the front of the line. I said, "Can I buy out your tickets?" Can I buy your tickets and I'll give you an extra $20? And a few people said no. 
And then someone there's like a, a few spots behind said, wait a minute. So what's your offer here? You're going to pay us for the tickets and you're going to pay us $20 extra. I said, yeah. He said, so I have to go. So, so I have to go buy him again and stand in line again. I said, yeah. And the guy's like, uh, yeah, okay, I'll do it. So I bought out his tickets and I got a spot in line. Totally worth $20 to me. Totally worth $20. So yeah, I paid an extra 20 bucks to get us on there in addition to what they cost. But, uh, Boy, was that a good expenditure. And I was, I was very proud of myself for thinking of that. And other people in line were kind of like, what the fuck? <laughs> there wasn't anything they could do about it because I wasn't cutting. I was actually just taking their place. And they, you were allowed to transfer the tickets. You just uh, – so they, I wasn't even doing anything like wrong. I, did, they just, I just bought the spot. I just replaced them. So no one – I didn't cause anyone else to wait any, anymore because uh, these people basically went to the back for an extra 20 bucks. So you, you use money for that sort of thing. In this case, it was only 20 bucks, but use it for that sort of thing. You know, maybe everybody benefits. Maybe somebody who couldn't really afford these tickets and was kind of regretting paying for that just for a short ride, they get half of it back because uh, a guy's giving them 20 bucks oh, for it. How much for the tickets? So they're 20 each? Yeah, it's probably around 20 each, and I gave them 20 plus the, the, the cost of the tickets. Right. So they're basically so they're getting like... Right. So, so they getting, saved like, 50%. Yeah, they've got to wait online again, but yeah, maybe if, if that was a lot of money to them, that was a great deal for both of us. So the, like that type of thing, everybody can benefit. But you know, when you, when you start doing it for every little thing, you start paying friends to come over and, and do drugs with you and not say anything about this reckless lifestyle you're living that you're, you're just you're, you're going to put yourself in danger and that's what happened here so it's 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 a tragedy now given what we know here should las vegas still do something like name a street after him to change fourth street or something else to be uh tony she drive or whatever they want to call it i would say yes like uh, this doesn't really affect his legacy in las vegas this doesn't change how he treated people and how uh, and the, the contributions he made to, to downtown Las Vegas and to the many lives that he made better of those who worked at Zappos. This is all still the same. Really, the... And, and you know... Oh, sorry, John. You know, he had a leadership... You know, he did... They had, like, a leadership company, too, where people would come in and could take their training for their companies. Did you know that? He had like a whole... Oh, no, I didn't, I didn't know that, no. It was like, yeah, yeah, it was like five or six grand, I think, for a three-day weekend. Hmm. Interesting. He, uh, really, his problems, if you think about it, were really problems that hurt himself. He didn't really hurt other people, from what I can tell. It, was, it seemed like he did a lot of good for other people, but he was bad at managing himself. And that ultimately killed him. So it's sad... And unfortunately, he, the, the personality aspects that drove him to the success that they did also came with these, uh, it also had these issues. It had these side effects. He was just an unusual person who, uh, some good came with that and some bad came with that. And fortunately, the bad only hurt him, so he wasn't harming other people. And fortunately, even the fire only harmed him. In fact, if you look at the, a picture of the house, you can't even tell there was a fire there because the fire is like contained within the shed. So even the house wasn't hurt. He hurt himself in a shed, basically. The, the woman who owned the house, his name's uh, Rachel Brown, and it's still kind of a mystery what her situation was and where she, what she was in his life. She rose quickly through the ranks of Zappos, going from a low-level phone rep to a top manager. And it's not clear what kind of relationship she had with him 
It was some kind of very close relationship. But this was her house. It was never clear even how she rose through the ranks of Zappos so quickly. And there is some belief that they were romantically involved. And that will, would have something to do with why she rose through it so quickly. However, if you haven't seen a picture of her, she's not what you would think would be someone who would rise through the ranks quickly because of a relationship with uh, the CEO. So she, this was not some young, hot chick that he was using his position at uh, Zappos to keep promoting her and get a relationship going with her. That's not what it looked like at all. Because if you look at Rachel Brown, she looks like a very average, plain, 40-something-year-old woman. This was not someone he went after for her youth or her looks. This was just a, a regular woman who somehow got to know him. I don't I don't understand how, but somehow she went from uh, a low-level phone rep up to upper management, like very top management, incredibly rapidly, and they became very close. He had told a friend that he was visiting Connecticut to, quote, visit family and be with my soulmate. And it is now assumed, though it's not certain, that the soulmate was Rachel Brown, and that was the house where he died. She would not comment on his death or anything involving it. Nobody else was harmed in the house, by the way. As I said, the house itself was not even harmed. It's only him. It's not clear where she was. There were other people in the house when the fire broke out. They all exited the house as soon as they heard about this. They did try to ask him to come out, and he wasn't responding, probably because he was probably already unconscious. But it does seem that he was probably there to be with this Rachel Brown, who I'm assuming he was probably dating or it was his girlfriend or something. But that, that's interesting, too, because uh, you would assume someone with that type of money and that type of notoriety, especially one who likes to throw their money around to uh, make themselves happy, you'd think they'd say, oh, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be like the hottest chick possible. Because obviously he didn't seem to care about being used for his money, but it looked like, no, it looked like that what he wanted was a connection. It looked like he probably just wanted a, a personality connection. If this was a situation, if this was his girlfriend, then he wasn't dating her for looks. He was definitely dating her because they had some kind of personal connection. So presumably that's what made him happy. He wasn't that interested in being with... Uh, with pretty girls. There were some people who said that he was, that they thought he was gay. And, uh, I, I don't know. Like I, I, looking at him, you could believe that he was gay. There was, I, I had thought that at one point too, but if, uh, if his soulmate was Rachel Brown and he was, uh, going there to be with her and he promoted her through the company, then I would guess not. I would guess that, uh, he probably, uh, he probably was, interested in her for uh, her personality, and he just liked being around her. So anyway, uh, kind of a weird story. The whole thing's kind of a weird story. And uh, so, yeah, sometimes, uh, in fact, a lot of times that people die at a young age, it's through some fault of their own. There are some people who just uh, have unfortunate uh, circumstances, like health circumstances, victims of violence, uh, accidents, whatever, where they just... Uh, it wasn't their fault at all, and they just die young, and that's really, really bad luck for them. And yeah, it's still tragic when somebody dies young through their own mistakes, as long as they're not acting in a criminal fashion. Like if, if you're trying to uh, hold up a liquor store and the owner shoots you, then that's not tragic. It's that's just <laughs> you you trying to be a violent criminal and getting killed. But uh, when when you're just in, kind of engaging in irresponsible behavior, that's not really hurting people and you end up dying, usually having to do with drug use. Uh, 
that's it's still tragic, especially for somebody who otherwise is very well regarded and thought to be someone who's done a lot of nice things for people. I imagine that uh, we'll hear more about this in the coming weeks. I wouldn't even be surprised if we see like a TV movie about this one day. It's kind of a fascinating story, and it's still kind of being unraveled, especially with its uh, parallels to Elvis. So look at the Forbes article. You'll see uh, all these details and more. And the death, by the way, occurred in the middle of the night. The fire department got there at 3.34 a.m. Eastern Time on November 18th. So for some reason he was down in a shed, probably with candles on, doing whippets. And that uh, led to his death. Jewel did post a tribute video on her social media accounts on Wednesday. She wrote, uh, when, the, when all the world is a hopeless jumble and the raindrops tumble all around, heaven opens up a magic lane. So she was obviously very sad about it. His father Richard said, We are so deeply grateful for the outpouring of love and respect shown in the wake of Tony's passing. There is no human that did not fall in love with Tony's humanity, which is why so many have been left heartbroken. By the way, speaking of his father, I think he is in line to get a lot of money. Tony, she is said not to have had a will, probably because he wasn't thinking about dying and didn't have any uh, wife or kids. So that makes you less likely to have a will, especially at that age. So what happens to the money then? What happens to the $840 million of assets? Well, by default, the government has laid out where assets go when somebody has no will. Now, your will can leave it to whoever you want, whoever you want, but in absence of a will, then it goes in this order. And when I say this order, I mean it all goes to someone in this each of these categories by priority – and only if there's nobody in these categories does it go to the next category. So the first category is spouse. If someone has a spouse, it all goes to the spouse automatically. Now, if there is no spouse, as there was not here, the next one is children. So in the absence of a spouse, then it goes to the children. It would split evenly among them if there's multiple children. However, he had no children. So next one, parents. I'm not sure if his mom's still alive. His dad's definitely alive. He commented in that article. So looks like his parents are going to be getting this $840 million fortune. If uh, the parents are not alive and there are no children and no spouse, then the next would be siblings, depending on how many. That If there's only one, it goes all to that person. If there's several of them, they split it evenly. There's no spouse, children, parents, or siblings around then it would go to nieces and nephews equally. If there's none of those, then to grandchildren. If there's none of those, then grandparents if they're alive. And then if there's none of those, aunts and uncles. And what if there's no aunts or uncles? What if you have no spouse, no children, your parents are dead, your siblings either never existed or are dead, you don't have any nieces or nephews, you don't have any grandchildren, your grandparents are dead, and you have no aunts and uncles that are that are alive or ever existed, then the state gets it. So the state's not going to get it here since he's got a living father for sure. I'm sure his father did not want this, but that's what looks like is going to happen in case you're wondering what's going to happen to the money. Something you may want to keep in mind if you have 
money, and I don't mean Tony Shee's type of money. I doubt any of our listeners have $840 million. If you do, then uh, donate to the free roll. I think you can afford it. But if you have even okay money, if you've got any kind of real savings, like I'd say six figures or more, uh, you may want to think about doing a trust. Because uh, if you die, and even if you have a will and it goes to your kids, uh, then uh, the problem is that it will go to your kids on their 18th birthday, or immediately, if they're over 18. Now, if you have a spouse, it'll go to your spouse first. But then if your spouse dies shortly after, then it automatically goes to your kids. And I actually personally know some families where this happened, where uh, kids got access to large inheritances at their 18th birthday. Um, For example, uh, their grandparents would leave it to them in what's known as uh, generation skipping. So there's not inheritance tax paid as much. Because the, the, the theory was, well, we don't want to leave it to our, our kids who are already getting older because you know, they'll die soon enough too and the inheritance tax will be paid twice. So let's just skip it and leave it to the grandkids. Well, the problem is, what if the grandparents then die before the kids are 18 or when the kids are 18 and then they inherit a ton of money when they're 18 and not ready to be responsible with it? So whatever you're going to leave your kids, you need to make sure that uh, they don't get full access to the money at 18 if you have an untimely death. Now, if you, if you have a spouse, then you don't have to worry about it as much. It's not that much of a chance that both of you will die abruptly uh, before something like this could be set up. It's possible, but you and the spouse would have to be together, basically, and die in an accident or something like that without the kids present, or, or the kids don't die and you both do. But it can still happen. Like, you could be in a car accident where both parents die and the kid survives. You, you just don't really want it where a kid is going to get... Uh, a lot of money on their 18th birthday. They're not going to go to college. They're not going to get a job. They're going to just say, oh, look, look at all the money I have. And then they're going to, almost all 18-year-olds are going to spend it responsibly too. So that's something to think about if you've got kids and have some money you're going to leave them one day. You don't want them getting it all at 18 if you happen to die earlier than you expected you're going to die. And there are, there are ways to have this distributed at certain points. They can get some when they're 18, they can get some when they're 25, they can get some when they're 30-something. You can even put a term in the will, it's kind of hard to enforce, but you can, you can try to put it, you can put a term there that they, they are not allowed to take a loan against it, or otherwise they don't get it. So you, you can put you can put terms there, but there are, there are companies that will that will give loans to people who can prove that they have money coming to them in some kind of trust, but uh, you, you can combat that somewhat by putting those terms in. But the more you put in, the better. You, you don't want your kid inheriting like a bulk of money at 18. By the way, I'm seeing in chat... The Southern California Regional Stay-at-Home Order has triggered for COVID that uh, ICU capacity has fallen below 15%. I, I saw it was getting very close, so I knew this was coming. So there's uh, automatic lockdowns that come into play in California based upon the ICU capacity. So once, uh, once they have uh, 85% of the beds full in the region, then this automatically takes place. Benjamin actually asked me about this because me and his mom were telling him about it. And he said, well, what's going to change for us? What's this going to mean for us now? And I said, well, actually, pretty much nothing. <laughs> I said, because we don't go anywhere. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's not going to mean very much for us. What, what is annoying is that 
they 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 are bringing back these restrictions on being outside, which is stupid. So you, you know, parks are closed, and you're not supposed to be going on hikes and all this other crap. And I go, come on, like, this is, there's a lot that's being closed that shouldn't be. There should, these are things that should be encouraged. You should encourage outdoors and discourage indoors, other than like super crowded things outdoors. But like the park, don't restrict that. You're not going to have like wall-to-wall people in the park. It, it's done. Especially in you know, like a hiking place. Like, no, it's not going to be 100% safe, but it's a hell of a lot better than people going to hang out indoors somewhere. And what's going to happen is people are going to go, screw this. You know, we, we're tired of these lockdowns. We're tired of not being able to do things. We'll t- take a chance. And then they'll hang out indoors where the government can't see them. And that's a lot more dangerous. That's, that's where there can be, uh, incorrect thinking regarding these lockdowns. You've got to, you got to be sensible and say, what are people likely to do? Not what we, what do we hope they do? What in a perfect world should they do? It's what do we think they will do if we pass regulations like this? And if they, if you think they're going to do more dangerous things as a result of the regulations, you should rethink them. So I, some of this I don't agree with. But for me, it's not going to matter much because I, I'm, I'm actually not going to. I, honestly, I won't follow some of this. Like, if I want to take a hike, I'm going to take a hike. You guys, you know, you know how careful I am, but like that—that's just stupidity. I don't. With things like this, I don't let stupidity deter me. I, I know what's safe and not safe. There's some things that are allowed that I won't do. Like I could go to the supermarket now. I won't do that. I don't think it's safe. It's a hell of a lot safer to go hiking than in the supermarket. Yet one isn't allowed and one is. Very bizarre. Okay, let's move on to our actual next topic here. If you want to call in the show, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355, the Mount Charleston line, 702-430-1808 is the number. I want to give you an update about the Cubans. Remember we had Knish on here, and he talked about those cheating Cubans that went around the country that were cheating in some way. They would sit uh, together at the table, usually in the one and six seats at the table, and they would go from casino to casino. They would often be suspected of cheating and thrown out. It's not known if they've ever been arrested for it, and their name their names were not known and still aren't known. But they have been kicked out of a number of casinos. There's been poker players all over the country who have identified them and have been suspicious of them, dating all the way back to October 2019. And yet they persist. On Poker Fraud Alert, you can see a picture of one of them, a pretty clear picture of one of them, on the thread called Two Cubans Cheating at Live PLO Throughout USA, started by Kanish on October 26, 2020. That's in the Scam Sandals and Shadiness Forum. So we had that whole segment on the radio, and it was it was interesting, and I learned a lot from it. And I was hoping that a segment like that wouldn't just be entertainment, but that it would actually do some good, that maybe some people would see them playing and call them out, maybe even get them arrested. Well... It happened. Poker Fraud Alert Radio actually did some good. So if you remember, we had a segment on Poker Fraud Alert Radio on the show that was on uh, November 1st. And if you go to the 3 hour, 28 minute, 44 second mark, you can hear this interview we did with Knish about the Cubans. Actually, it wasn't November 1st. It was, it was October 30th, but whatever. Close enough. And then I hadn't heard much other than that the Cubans were spotted in other places since then. And the last I had heard from a new poster on the forum named uh, Joker Wild, 
is that uh, they were seen in Texas. This is what uh, Joker's Wild said. Actually, he's been on the forum for over a year, so I guess he's been around on Poker Fraud Alert. He hasn't. He's posted very little, but uh, he must listen to radio and came forth with this information. I think I saw two individuals doing the same routine in Texas, both Spanish speakers in the one and six seats. The guy in the sixth seat was doing quite well before I got there. He went all in one hand right after I got there with ace-king no pair on the flop, hit a king, and beat the other guy's top pair. The individual with the ball cap in the one seat suspiciously tilting his head down and looking directly at the dealer's cards. I was in the five seat and leaned down to meet his gaze on purpose when checking my cards a few times. By the looks he gave back, he knew that I knew what he was trying to do. That's interesting. So Joker's Wild had heard about him on the radio and was like, like, I bet this is the freaking Cuban cheater. And it's got like staring at him and the guy's, the Cuban's like, oh shit, this guy's onto me. I saw a couple of damaged cards on one hand, possibly marked and damaged after a hand in the muck and called them out as damaged. With no provocation, the guy in the six seat said something like, yeah, those are bad ones, almost as if to agree and make himself look good because he was calling out the damaged cards. Interesting. I then began to observe individual in the six seat was the individual marking the cards. I called out the obvious edge mark when he made it and tossed his hand into fold. He said something like, oh, sorry. Like he accidentally marked it. (laughs) After that, they both started acting odd and taking long breaks. Additionally, if a dealer with larger hands that covered the card edges deals, they seem not to do as well. I'm almost 100% sure these guys are up to no good. I had to rack up and leave after a while. If I see them around doing the same routine, I'll know it and call it out to the management. Well, here's an update. A radio listener in Dallas, a different guy, not this Joker's Wild guy, but somebody else in Texas who's actually a dealer, said that he saw the Cubans in his card room, that he was dealing to them. So he went and informed management of this, and management kicked the Cubans out, confiscated the deck, looked at the deck, and supposedly they have determined what the Cubans were doing, and he thinks he's going to find out shortly what exact method of treating they were using. So he got him. Unfortunately, they were not arrested. But he said, I was dealing a, damn, a game in Dallas yesterday, and thanks to you, I was able to catch the Cubans. Just like before, they were in the one and six seat. It's 100% them. My bosses won't let me talk about it until they finish the investigation. They looked at the deck today while they were playing and found out how they were marking the cards. They escorted them off the property. Wow. So thanks to Poker Fraud Alert and thanks to this guy dealing, they were uh, kicked out of the room before they could do anything. And they can't come back. So whoever was in that game, they have Poker Fraud Alert Radio to thank for not losing a bunch of money to these guys. We save people money, they don't even know it. So thanks to that dealer and uh, good thing he's a listener here. This is exactly why I do segments like that exactly what I was hoping for when I did these segments. Actually, I'm hoping for even more than that. I'm hoping they eventually get arrested. I wish one of these places would detain them and then look at the deck and call the police and then show the video to the police and show the markings, witnesses, whatever, and finally get these guys put in jail where they belong. But these guys have been doing this for over a year. Who knows how many rooms they've hit? But they definitely have been in Texas because uh, this Joker's wild guy saw him. And then separately, this person uh, who's a dealer in Dallas found them at his table. So this is why it's important to put this information out there. So I thank Kanish for making this public and posting that picture of them. 
describing it so well, what's done in this way, uh, their MO was so well known that uh, people are catching on to it. The word's getting around. So this is great. I'm, I'm really happy to hear this, and I am looking forward to finding out the update as to what exactly they were doing. It's obviously some kind of card marking. It looks like it's something having to do with the edges of the cards to where they can see what's coming. And that's why they can play crazy and then get there, because they they see what's coming out on the on the uh, turn and river, and probably sometimes when they do it and don't get there and lose, I have a feeling it's just they're wrong. Like they, they kind of have to estimate it. They see a card coming up. They think it's going to be the one dealt on the river, but maybe it's the cut card. You know, maybe it's the burn card. It's probably things like that. Probably it's, it's an inexact science, but they get it right enough times to where they can put on very aggressive plays where either they get one to fold or they get called and win with these miracle cards. It's got to be something like that. It must also have something to do with two people being there. That's the part I don't quite understand why one person can't just mark it and then also be the one to benefit from it. But for some reason, this seems to be a two-man operation and it needs to have a man at the one and six seats. There's some reason they're always choosing the one and six seats. So we don't know everything about the scheme, but it's some kind of scheme. By the way, uh, the free roll only had 12 players. <laughs> I didn't get third draft, so did I get anything for that? Yes, you, yes, you got $10. Roll it over. Okay, I, pr- I appreciate that. <laughs> I got a brutal beat. My nines got beat by sixes. We're gonna. It's gonna look like we have no yeah. listeners, though. I'm, I'm gonna be embarrassed to have the results posted because uh, there's only 12 players. But this was, I just didn't announce this with enough time. And the fact that we were on Saturday last week, three people off. It's not even. And, and most of our listeners are not live. That's the other thing. But that's always been the case. But. Well, I think you got to update the website. Yeah, I know. It just wasn't. It wasn't updated well this time. Yeah, well, that's the way it is. I and mean, the ratings are a little lower tonight too, and we we get most of our listeners in the archives anyway. Really, the way most people listen is they just see it kind of pop up on whatever podcast format they use. It just there's people who've listened for years have never heard live once. We have people that have listened for like six years and they go, "Oh, I'm going to try it live for the first time ever." <laughs> so, right. I know. I know this is not a, a live show to most of you. But sometimes you miss things. Sometimes the, the benefit of listening live is that nothing is edited. I do I do edit it now. Not not very heavily. Well, well now draft two, everybody on their mobile devices can go in the chat room, right? Yes. That could, that could increase. Uh, right. That's true. That's why I'm pushing it here. Yeah, that's true. All right. I want to talk about the thing happening at 2 plus 2. This is just hilarious. And this is especially satisfying because I got banned there for such BS reasons. If you remember, I'm not going to rehash the whole thing, but if you remember, Mason and I had a little bit of a legal dispute a few years ago where he was claiming that I was violating 2 plus 2's uh, intellectual property by copying and pasting certain posts there. And my argument back was the posts I'm copying are almost all posts from users on your forum, not you. And not other owners of 2 plus 2 or managers of 2 plus 2. I'm copying these posts from users who are just members there. And you have in your own terms of service that they own their posts. And, of course, Mason does this not to be generous to them. He does this to prevent liability if they post anything that uh, could be – they could get sued over. This way Mason isn't liable. 
by making these people own their own content. But you can't have it both ways. You can't say, I don't own your content, so this way you're liable for what you post. Oh, and uh, I have control over what you post. You can't do that. If somebody owns their content, they can do what they want with it. Mason can say, I can use your post whatever way you want, whatever way I want, which is what he does. Yeah, It says that, that you grant us a non-revocable, uh, non-expiring license to use your content the way we wish. You can do that, but you can't tell them how they can use their content. So unless the people posting the messages on 2 plus 2 object for me to me copying and pasting their messages on, two, on Poker Fraud Alert, there's nothing Mason can do. Now, Mason might have had a legal claim if he were to claim that uh, I was copying the structure of 2 plus 2, such as if I were reproduced an entire thread. He can say, yeah, these individual messages are owned by these people, but the thread itself and the format of the thread and the order of the thread, that's all property of 2 plus 2 because that's where it's all put together. But I wasn't even doing that. I was copying a message here, a message there every so often. I pointed out to his attorney that it's been a very, very, very tiny percentage of 2 plus 2 content that I've copied and a very, very, very tiny percentage of Poker Fraud Alert is from 2 plus 2 and that I always add my own original thoughts to it, that I I post it and then post a long original analysis of my own of the situation. I'm not just copying and pasting, that I'm, 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 it's basically a derivative work, that I'm posting someone else's message from 2 plus 2, that they don't object to me reposting, and then I give my long analysis of the situation, which of course that, that is owned by me, and that makes it a different work from a, a copyright standpoint. So they had a very, very weak case. At the same time, I didn't want to get in a whole legal battle with him, and Ma- Mason's such a, a a stubborn asshole. I could see, totally see this idiot suing me over this and me having to mount a whole defense for it. It just wasn't important enough, but I also wasn't going to do what they were demanding. They were demanding that I take it all down, I go back through all the posts of, of many years and remove it and remove, remove when other people have, have done it. And I said, no, I'm not doing that. So anyway, I, I went back and forth with his lawyer, and we came to what I thought was a reasonable agreement for everybody, where I, I was still allowed to copy posts from 2 plus 2 in this agreement, but that I agreed that I would only post one post from each uh, topic, that I wasn't going to post several posts from each topic, and that, that anything I did copy, I'd put a link back to 2 plus 2, which I was doing anyway beforehand. But I, So I agreed to that, and that uh, if I stuck to doing that, then they would uh, drop any kind of uh, claim that I was infringing upon anything. So I said, fine. So that's what we agreed to. So this way I could still do what I wanted to do. You know, anything that was interesting that popped up over there, I could copy the story over and then comment on it myself. I just couldn't uh, you know, reproduce uh, large portions of any thread. It seemed reasonable enough, and I said, fine. Oddly enough, at the end of the whole negotiation thing, they offered something to me, which I didn't even ask for, and that was to unban me and bring me back to the site. I wasn't required to accept, but they said, if you'd like, you, you, this is through his lawyer, not Mason himself, but his lawyer saying that uh, Mason said you, you can come back to the site if you'd like. So I said, okay. Now, I figured this was because the site was dying and Mason knew I brought good content to the site and that uh, he figured having me there could help the forum liven up again. I knew that, but okay. There, there was enough going on there that I'd like to comment on and uh, – I wasn't a regular poster, but I was. Uh, I would sometimes go into threads and, and make several posts if it was a topic that interested me. So I, I came back there. But before I agreed to that, I remembered I was dealing with Mason Malmuth. And I knew that Mason Malmuth, I knew the way he was. I knew that Mason was a jerk, 
and I knew that he held a grudge forever for the slightest thing, the slightest uh, belief that someone had wronged him, which I haven't even wronged him, but he believed I did. And I knew that one day he'd wake up on the wrong side of the bed and ban me. So I said, I don't want to come back just to have him ban me again and put on a whole show about it. Like, I, I don't want to do, I don't want to even come back if, if he's just going to ban me again in two weeks and, and, and uh, flaunt that he's banning me. Like, that, that I have no desire to do that. So the lawyer assured me that part of the agreement is that I will only be banned if I break 2 plus 2 rules. That I would be treated exactly like every other user. That if I break 2 plus 2 rules, I'll be warned the same way other users will and be banned the same way other users will. So I, I wasn't uh, guaranteed you'll never get banned, but basically that I won't be treated differently than anybody else and that uh, I won't be banned if I follow 2 plus 2 rules, no matter what Mason thinks of me personally. I said, okay, great. And I also had to laughably agree to the fact that uh, th- they wanted me to agree not to insult Mason's ter- tennis charity anymore. I, I had to stop doing that as part of the agreement. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then I had to say that I didn't think it was a scam. So I said, okay, well, since I don't believe it was a scam, I believe the whole tax thing that, that was uncovered on Poker Fraud Alert was just Mason's accounting, accountant being crappy and Mason being a moron to not look at his own tax returns. Since, since I believe that it was not a scam and it is a real charity, I, I will go forth and say what I really believe. I would never say anything I don't believe out there, but since I really believe this, I said, fine, I'll say it. So I came out and said it, and uh, I came back to 2 plus 2, and for three years I was there. And then I got banned. Why? Because Mason just kept taking shots at me. He just kept, every time I posted, he found some way to take shots at me or Poker Fraud Alert, no matter what the topic was. In fact, he started finding ways to take shots at me, even if I wasn't part of the conversation. Like in the Jonathan Little thing that happened, he took shots at me in that thread, and I hadn't even made one post in it. He just decided to bring me up. He's just constantly being a dick and taking shots at me. So finally, I came back and took a shot at him about his tax returns, and, uh, and he banned me. And by the way, I was not told, like, I didn't agree I wasn't going to make a joke about his tax returns. I said I'm gonna, I said I would agree not to call his tennis charity a scam, and that I would actually say it was not one. That was my agreement. It wasn't that I can't make jokes. So anyway, he banned me for that. And I said, that goes against our agreement. He didn't care. He just said, uh, I, I've decided you're too much trouble. I, I'm tired of dealing with you. But it was him, like, I didn't start up with him. Go back and look at the post on 2 plus 2. I was kilowatt on there. K-I-L-O-W-A-T-T. Go look at my last post. He starts up with me every freaking time. I, I tried to avoid him. I tried not to interact with him exactly for this reason. He would start up with me, and then he could not take one little rib back after him bashing me over and over and over again. So he banned me. But he admitted. He admitted he was violating the agreement. He just was tired of me. So okay, whatever. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say no. Come on, Mason. You better uphold your agreement, or I'm gonna do this. And no, it's like screw him. If he doesn't want me part of that fail site, then I won't be part of it anymore. It's a. It's got a fraction of the traffic it used to. It used to be so big that it took. Like you couldn't read it all. It, it, if you wanted to read what was on news, views, and gossip, there was not enough time in the day to read everything on there. Now you'll see things on the front page that are like a week old. That's how dead the place has gotten. Well. With the traffic dying, also the revenue has been dying. Now that part's not that much Mason's fault. It's just the poker world has been contracting. The ways to make money through having a site like that have gone way down. It's not like it was during the poker boom. 
and times are much tougher. And also people aren't buying books as often. People have started to buy – first of all, just people buying poker-related products has gone way down. But those that are buying things tend to be buying training videos and things like that. It's not so much buying books as much anymore. So uh, the whole thing about 2 plus 2 being a book publisher, that's not that good of a business to have at this point. So 2 plus 2 has been looking for new revenue ideas, and they haven't been coming up with very much. So uh, they were trying to figure out a way that maybe they could make more money. And they started to invest more and more in uh, banner ads that they don't control. Now, the problem with banner ads that you don't control is not only can things be advertised you may not approve of, but also the way the advertisement pops up on people's screens can be things that are a pain in the ass for the user. I don't like to give that type of control to third parties. I just I, I don't want third parties screwing up my site. I'm not afraid from a security standpoint. I'm just afraid from a standpoint of, of making my site crappy, that it's something I don't want. Mason apparently did not have the same concern. And, and <laughs> this is what happened. They put up a banner ad at the bottom of the screen. You may say, oh, that's no big deal. Tons of sites have a banner ad at the bottom of the screen. I mean, look, look. You have a banner ad at the bottom of Poker Fraud Alert for Amazon. And, you know, if people click on that Amazon banner before they make a purchase, I get like between 3 and 6% of whatever they buy. So that's why I have that, ba- that ad down there. But I don't control what Amazon puts in that ad. But I also know Amazon's not going to do anything besides just make it a banner ad, and it's not going to be anything offensive or obnoxious. So I leave it there. If it was some crappy thing that got in the way of browsing, there's no way I would put up that ad. Well... Two plus two, I don't know what the hell they contracted with here, but uh, they had this ad that was appearing at the bottom that was this big thing that was hard or impossible to dismiss. And my favorite part, you cannot scroll past it. It's always at the bottom of your screen, no matter how much you scroll. <laughs> how the mighty have fallen. How the mighty have fallen. You could not scroll down 2 plus 2. You'd try to read it, and you'd always have this big, obnoxious ad at the bottom. <laughs> it's really frustrating, especially you're like you're trying to read this long thing, and you get to the end of it, there's like an ad blocking the way of part of the screen. I mean, yes, you can still read. It's just it's bothersome. It's a pain in the ass. It makes a site much less pleasant to read. Very few sites do that. You know what sites do that? These awful clickbait sites like uh, these 20 celebrities will have a a fact about their personal life that will shock you. And then you click on that and you have to scroll through each page. Next, 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 next. You've seen that before. Those are full of obnoxious ads. And like you kind of want to see about these 20 celebrities and the thing that's going to shock you. But it's a lot of times not worth going through the the ad-heavy page to get through it all and click 20 times. That's what 2 plus 2 started to look like. This gigantic ad at the bottom. So, obviously, the users were unhappy about this. And this just happened. They they didn't denounce it's going to happen. It just happened. Someone raised an issue. Someone started a a thread about this on the About the Forum section, which is where you complain about this sort of thing. Some guy named uh, Teflon Dog on November 18th said, I just logged onto the web version of the site, and there's a giant ad at the bottom just auto-covering the bottom posts I'm trying to leave, and it's extremely annoying. Get it off my screen, please. It's awful. 
I agree. That's what I thought when I looked at it. Then a guy named Six Four said, similar new ad positioning except on mobile. Another person on tablet here, extremely annoying, and you don't get rid of it. Pops up different versions. I'm sorry, but I can't visit 2 plus 2 as it is now. Another guy said back to the previous guy what he said. Please stop this damn thing for taking up the bottom of the screen. It's super aggravating. <laughs> Can you believe Mason is resorting to this crap just to make a few extra pennies? He's not even making big money off this. He's not. This is really just bringing in very small amounts of money. So then Matt Skolansky actually posted at the time. He actually, it looks like he actually changed his post. Yeah, he changed his post. This wasn't what it was there before. He, he actually said before, he must have, but he must have gone back and edited the post. Yeah, originally on November 18th, it's funny he went back and edited this just recently. Originally on November 18th, Matt Skolansky, which is David's son who's, who helps manage the forum, he posted that uh, he wasn't even aware this is happening and he's not sure how it's happening. <laughs> but that's gone now they, he went back in the last few days probably because I made fun of this on Poker Fraud Alert I, as, before I made fun of this this sat up there for weeks so I, now that I've been mocking it all of a sudden he's gone back and removed this now it just says we're aware and looking into it that is not what it said on November 18th that's not what it said it was like I wasn't aware this was happening I'm going to have to see like what's making this occur and people are like what? what do you, what do you mean? yeah yeah here's, here's the proof okay I, I, he's going to go back and edit this too. I know it, but on November eighteenth at twelve thirty-one p.m., a regular user with ten thousand something post named Alan Bostic posted back, "How could this happen if you did not authorize or implement it?" And so, so that was in response to Matt saying, I, do, "I don't know how this happened," but Matt actually changed it to say, "We're aware and looking into it." So you see, Alan Bostic responding. How could this happen if you did not actively authorize and implement it? You show him responding to, we're aware and looking into it. (laughs) So he actually went back and changed that. That's crazy. The reason they didn't know is because they they had some kind of third-party ad thing that was was, – they just authorized them to display the ad the way they wanted to. And there's there's ways to do that. There's ways to actually uh, put it into the coding – for the site, to put it into the HTML for the site that really gives a third party full power over how the ad appears, even if in a really obnoxious way that blocks out the whole bottom of the screen. Someone named Punkass said, definitely more than a little annoying, not opening 2 plus 2 as much, it sucks so much. This is a guy with like 11,500 posts, by the way, who just said that. So not everybody got it, but most people got the ad. Someone named uh, Teflon, uh, Teflon Dog, same guy who started the thread, said, make it stop. Another person said, very annoying. Hope they correct the issue soon. Another person said, this is awful. These are all like regular posters. These aren't like people with two posts. So then on uh, November 21st, Matt Scalancy said, this will almost certainly be gone by Tuesday. It's something we are allowing to play out for a few days because we need to pay the bills now more than ever. Oh, my. Now, I had to read that a few times to try to understand if Matt is joking. It kind of sounds like him saying, we're, we're, we're almost broke here. <laughs> we, uh, we need this or we're not going to be able to pay the bills. 
I'm going, well, like, is this, is this like self-effacing humor or like, are they just, is he saying something absurd to lighten the mood or is he being serious that they make so little money these days that they've got to have things like this? And if they're going to remove it, they want to at least squeeze a few more days out of it. It's really weird. That's something like, is he joking? And I go, wait a minute. I don't think he's joking because if he was joking, then they wouldn't wait till Tuesday. Like, why would you ever remove a Tuesday if, and that Tuesday was the 24th, by the way. That was the Tuesday he was talking about. Tuesday, November 24th. So why would they wait three more days on this if this wasn't a joke? Or if this was a joke? If this was a joke, they wouldn't wait three days. They'd just get rid of it. So it looks like he's being serious. Like, hey, we got to get every penny we can out of this because we're making so little money these days. They could even be losing money. Who knows? And for that reason, we're going to leave it up three more days and we'll get rid of it. Just let, let us get a little more out of you, please. <laughs> That's really what he wrote. I'm reading right now. This will almost certainly be gone by Tuesday. It's something we are allowing to play out for a few more days because we need to pay the bills now more than ever. Wow. So Tuesday, November 24th was when it was supposed to be gone. So on Wednesday, November 25th, someone named Didace posted, apparently not. (laughs) It was not removed. It was not removed. Tuesday came, Tuesday went, and it was not gone. <laughs> I don't know why I even said Tuesday. Why, why even say Tuesday if that could be gone on Tuesday? Like, like how can you give a specific day like it's going to be gone Tuesday? It, it will almost certainly not be here Tuesday. And then it's their Tuesday. It's their Wednesday. <laughs> what, what a freaking mess. How does this happen? But yeah, he says it's going to be gone Tuesday, the 24th. It is not gone Tuesday, the 24th. They don't even give an update. It's not even like on the 24th. They say, you know what? We decided to keep it. It's like nothing. It's going to be gone Tuesday. It'll almost surely be gone Tuesday. And then it's not gone Tuesday. I'd gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. That was Matt Skolansky when asked about the ad. So when did it disappear? It did eventually go away, but not without a fight. So Matt then said on the 26th, on Thursday now, two days after that Tuesday deadline, Turns out we need to look at this further. The ad can be dismissed. I understand it comes back with a page refresh, and if you find that particularly annoying, it means you have to click it off again. And I understand that can be particularly annoying. I'm sorry, but we're exploring our options right now, and I can't make any promises. Feel free to post and explain if it disrupts your experience here. (laughs) I have to say, I, I laughed out loud reading this whole thread. Because Mason was such a dickhead. Because he banned me, and I was one of the few good posters remaining over there. And he violated our agreement, and he was so arrogant about it. And now they're doing this. They're doing this. So he's actually saying, yeah, it can be dismissed. And yeah, I understand it comes back every time you go to a new page. But uh, you know that can be dismissed too, so no big deal. you got to be kidding me. And then he says that uh, we're exploring our options. We can't make any promises. What? <laughs> And what do you mean, feel free to post and explain if this disrupts your experience here? They, they already did. That's, a, that's what this whole thread's about. The whole thread is not about, hey, Matt, uh, we love those new ads. Love having the bottom of our screen uh, blocked by, by an obnoxious advertisement that we don't want to see. There, no problem. Though. We love it. We love it. Keep doing it. Like the, the whole thread is saying it sucks. The whole thread is saying get rid of it. What do you mean, uh, feel free to explain if this disrupts your experience? That's, that's what they're doing. <laughs> so. So then there was some discussion of, of whether it's uh, desktop or uh, or mobile where this is happening. And uh, there's discussions of maybe you could start charging a subscription fee for 2 plus 2. And, and then Mason showed up and said, we'll never, we're never going to do that. 
very, very dumb discussion back and forth. So then on uh, November 30th, Matt said, I've been told the ad has been removed on mobile devices. Keep in mind, this is now six days after the whole thing was supposed to be removed entirely. And then someone said back, this is a, a green mod. Mad Lex said, still there for me right now on my iPad. <laughs> then uh, someone with a purple name on there with 37,000 posts named Stuck in a Rut. I don't know who he is, but apparently he's someone there enough to have a purple name. He said, uh, still here for me on PC, Chrome, and very annoying, anything being done. (laughs) Someone else said, uh, killing my mobile experience. This is as recently as December 3rd. I don't see it anymore. Now I don't see them. So so maybe they're gone. Maybe they're just not showing up for me. But no one's saying they're gone. That's what I'm not getting either. Maybe I'm just not getting them now. Uh, I think I think it's still here. I think just somehow I'm lucky enough not to get it anymore because <laughs> they're not saying it's gone. People were uh, asking; they don't understand why this is happening. Stuck in a rut said, and again, this is the guy with thirty-seven thousand posts of the purple name. I just don't understand the, why this wasn't a thing for fifteen plus years, and then suddenly, oh, we need some ad revenue, like the sidebar ad and top ad were not enough. And then someone said back, "I guess giant bottom ads weren't invented yet fifteen years ago." <laughs> People are very unhappy about this. Matt Skolansky just said, thank you for the feedback. It is appreciated. So I, I don't know where this is going to go. I, I think people are still getting the ad. I'm not seeing it. Trader Risky, you, you try to go there. Tell me if you see the ad. Go to just two plus, forumserver.2plus2.com or go to the 2 plus 2 forum. Tell me if you're seeing the ad. Because I, I was seeing it every day until now, and now I'm not seeing it. I even tried two different browsers. But then there's people still complaining they're seeing it. So I, I don't know what's going on. What a mess. I, I don't, I, unless they're getting big money from this, this is a huge mistake. Because for everybody that goes into that about the forums thing and complains, which, by the way, not many people know on 2 plus 2 that's even there. So most people just see it and think this sucks and just stop coming. Like, I don't see how that could be worth it to them. Apparently, Mason and Matt think it is. Stupid. Talk about little pride in your product and your site. I understand running ads. I mean, I don't run ads here. You you see, like, I take an ad here and there to put, like, a top banner ad. And I have that Amazon thing at the bottom. I would never ruin the browsing experience on Poker Fraud Alert to make money. And something else I would never do is advertise something that I don't approve of advertising. So if I did ever run ads that just uh, feed ads that I don't control, one, if it ever disrupted the browsing experience, I would never allow it. And two, if it was advertising things I didn't approve of, I wouldn't allow it. I get solicitations literally every day, every single day, from shady gambling sites that want me to give them, quote, article space on Poker Fraud Alert. What they want to do is they want me to publish a front page article advertising their site with a link to their site. Why do they want this? Because it gives them good Google results. It puts them, it puts them further up because they're uh, links into their site by a well-established gambling-related site. So they don't even care how many eyeballs directly see those ads. They just want a site that has been established in the gambling community for a number of years and has decent Google results itself that Google basically trusts to link them because it makes them look more legitimate and helps their Google ranking. That's that's partially how Google works. So I get offers every day, not a few times a week, every single day I get offers about putting these ads up and I just delete them. And a lot of them are very cryptic. Oh, we'd like to be an advertising partner. Oh, we'd like we'd like to pay you to write some articles for your site. So if you don't know better, you think what this really means is someone just wants to 
publish articles for whatever reason, there's some topic they want to write about and they want me to publish it on Poker Fraud and they'll pay me. It's not that. They they want to write, quote, articles about the shady gambling sites that's not going to pay anybody and want to publish it on my site. I'm not going to run those ads because that would be a, a direct contradiction to what my mission is for this site, and that is to warn people about scams and scandals and cheats in poker and gambling. So why would I allow sites to advertise that will cheat you? I never will. So... I just don't even respond. I just delete, 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 delete every day when I get these. They, they send it through the contact form of Poker Fraud Alert. I just, I get several a day. I will not do it. Now, Mason's not doing it either. He probably gets those contacts as well, but he is running things that get in the way of your browsing experience. And this one is worse than I've ever seen. I mean, this is one of the worst things I've seen on any site as far as uh, obnoxiousness with browsing. I mean, yeah, I guess some of those terrible, terrible clickbait sites are just as bad, but this is right up there. So boy, the two plus two world has uh, come crashing down, hasn't it? And I'm enjoying every minute of it. And Mason deserves it. Really gives me a window into how what a fail site it is. The, Matt Skolatsky says they actually have to pay the bills. Just give us a few more days, please. A few more days. Just let us annoy you for a few more days. We need those pennies. We need them to live. We need them to eat. Mason, Mason cannot take this this uh, giant bag of vitamins that he does at the table while he plays poker. He can't afford those vitamins anymore unless we leave the ad up until Tuesday. Please let us leave it till Tuesday. Please. He really does that, by the way. One of my friends played with him one time at uh, 2040 Limit Hold'em, and Mason pulls out this baggie of like 20 pills. And I don't think these. I don't think he has a pill addiction. I don't think he's another Elvis. I, I think. These are all legal. I think these, they like, look like vitamins. It looks like he's like one of these old guys who really takes like 20 vitamins a day. <laughs> he does it at the friggin' poker table. But you can't do this at home. You gotta bring your 20 vitamins. When you see me taking pills at the table, it's one of, it's one of two things. There are two different types of pills I take at the poker table. Caffeine pills and aspirin. They tell you, I, I've told you about my headaches I get all the time. And I've told you about how uh, caffeine, I've discovered, helps me with uh, mental health. And the absence of it does not help my mental health. I make sure to take caffeine, and I make sure to take my aspirin when I, when I need the aspirin. I don't take it for fun, but uh, if I get a headache, I take the aspirin. That's the, only, that's the only pills you'll see me taking at the table. I will not bring 20 vitamins to the table. I do take other pills. I take blood pressure pills. I do take uh, potassium pills, but... I do this at home. I wake up and I take the pills. I don't, I don't bring them to the card room with me, but Mason did that. I don't know if he does it every time, but my, my friend actually sat next to him and actually took pictures of it. He may still have the pictures. He actually posted them on Neverwin Poker back in the day. In case Mason dares deny this, I will have my friend uh, dig up those pictures and I will post proof of Mason with his uh, baggie of pills, which again, I think are vitamins. I think they were all legal, but uh, nevertheless, he brought like 20 pills to the freaking card room. What a weirdo. He sits there taking them one by one. <laughs> okay, let's move on here. I think Trader Ruski fell asleep. I think that's why he didn't look it up for me. If anybody's left in the chat room, go to 2 plus 2 and tell me if you see ads at the bottom. Shoeshine Box said in the chat, My grandkid said at 8 p.m. is your radio show on. I said, let's see. Nope, I would have played, and I listen live weekly when I see it on. Boo, ha, ha, ha. I didn't know you had a grandkid. That I did not know. I didn't hear. How old is your grandkid? I, I'm wondering if my show is appropriate for your grandkid. I've seen Stu Shinebox. I've met him in person. He's older than I am, but uh, I didn't think he would have a grandkid old enough to listen to this show. Okay, let's uh, let's move on to the next topic here. I'm going to drop Trader Ruski at the moment. If he wakes up, he can call back. 
a former employee of an armored car company that services Bally's Atlantic City came up with a plan to steal during one of the armored car pickups at that casino, and it worked. He got away with a lot of money. He committed the crime in broad daylight with no weapons, hurt nobody, assaulted nobody, threatened nobody. It was actually a burglary, not a robbery, a burglary of a lot of money. This is a former employee of that armored car company at uh, 12.30 p.m. How much did he get away with? Uh, You're you're not going to believe it. This is uh, sitting right in front of Bally's Atlantic City. $100 billion. No, it was actually... $1 million. More. $1.7 million. That's pretty amazing that you could steal $1.7 million cash without breaking into any building, without using any weapons, without assaulting anyone, and without threatening anyone. In fact, without even coming into contact with other human beings. This guy was able to steal $1.7 million in cash from an armored truck in front of Bally's. Now, there's many questions I have that are not answered, but I'll tell you the details of what I know. I meant to do this story last week, and I forgot, but that's fine, because last week had more news than this week. So here's what happened. An employee, a former employee of an armored car company called uh, Rapid Armored Corporation, I guess they were too rapid when you hear this story, his name is Dante McClooney, and apparently he knew the way they operated, having worked there before. I don't know why he is a former employee, but uh, that's what he was. He was a former employee. So he came up with a plan, which I guess was pretty smart, that he and two accomplices set up a burglary of the truck when it was to be in front of Bally's at 12.15 p.m. on November 5th. It's 12.15 p.m., not a.m. So in broad daylight, they approached the truck, he and his two friends, and they somehow were able to get access to the $1.7 million in cash that had just been picked up from Bally's, and just they threw it in their car and sped off. Again, no weapons were used, nobody was assaulted, no guards were even encountered. The money was just stolen. Now, how the hell did this happen? Seriously, how does this happen? Does this really mean that the armored uh, the armored car, the, the employees there, that they left the money sitting in the car, $1.7 million, without any person there supervising it? Or was there an employee just in the front of the truck that was so out to lunch that uh, three guys could just steal money out of the back and uh, somehow the guy doesn't bother even looking back at what's going on? I don't know. Like, how do you not have somebody there actively guarding it? With $1.7 million in cash, how do you not have a procedure with a guard standing in front of the back of the truck to where to get access to the money, you have to get past him? In fact, why don't you have two guards standing there? How could you possibly leave it to where these guys could steal the money without encountering any other people? Because there was no fight. There was no weapon used. There was no encounter with guards. They somehow were just able to get in and steal it. Also, how did they get in? How did they get in? Is it possible that Dante had a key from the past? Is it possible they actually are dumb enough to leave the back of the truck unlocked? There must have been something that Dante noticed when he was working there. And he thought... What the hell? (laughs) 
He probably thought this is the this is the worst, dumbest procedure I've ever seen. I can't believe it, he must think. He must have thought, wow, the way they're doing this, it would be super easy for someone to steal if they knew it was this lax. It must have been something like that. He must have come up with that plan because this company was so incompetent that they left a huge, huge security hole to where they aren't blocking the back of the vehicle, maybe, and there's no guards there. It must have been something like that. Now, maybe he used a key that he had stolen from when he worked there, but you would think that uh, they would make sure to collect that stuff, and if the person didn't turn it in, that they would change the locks or something like that. But we, we don't have enough details here to know how he did it. But somehow he was able to steal $1.7 million of cash sitting in that truck without encountering any guards. How do you do that, especially in broad daylight? So how did they catch him? If nobody encountered him, how do they even know who did it? Well, police had to go figure this one out. And they said, well, okay. First of all, whoever did this must have known that these flaws existed. They must have known how to pull this off probably someone on the inside, so either a current employee or a former employee. So they, uh, they they were aware of that, and they said, let's look for evidence that any current or former employees were around when this occurred. So they were looking around the boardwalk, because Bally's is there on the boardwalk in Atlantic City. They're looking around the boardwalk, and they saw a guy who's just kind of milling around in a, in a weird, suspicious fashion. He's just kind of walking around, trying to look natural, but didn't really seem to have a purpose. Now, yeah, there's people who kind of mill around the boardwalk, but something weird looked weird about this to the police. And then they saw him walk in the direction of the armored truck and then meet up with two people, and then they walked to the truck and stole it. So they, they, they saw enough there. I'm not sure if they even had video of the incident, but I, I don't know if they actually had him stealing it, but I know they had him milling around there and then walking in the direction of the truck on the boardwalk. They had that. And they were able to identify him from that video, maybe by contacting the company and saying, hey, do you recognize this guy? And they say, oh, yeah, yeah, this is this is uh, Dante McClooney. He used to work here. Okay, well, that all adds up. This, this guy who uh, used to work there, milling around the boardwalk in a suspicious fashion, like kind of waiting for something to happen, kind of pretending like he's just there naturally and then walks off. And re- really what he was doing, he's just kind of waiting for the right moment. Uh, and then... Uh, and then meets up with two people, and then uh, then they end up. I think they were off camera at that point, but I think it was it was pretty clear what was going on. So they knew who it was very likely him. Executed a search warrant, and indeed they recovered quote most of the cash in Dante McClooney's place. So that pretty much seals the deal that it was him. And uh, obviously he's been arrested. So it's not said how much they have recovered, but they've recovered quote most of it. I don't know if the two accomplices have been arrested. I assume they have. But he was definitely the ringleader. People are very surprised that he didn't just take off. Like, once you've pulled this off, once you've actually gotten away with it, like, I could just picture the guy thinking, is it really this easy to steal this much money? Like, could it really just, could you actually steal almost $2 million without having to use a gun and having to threaten anybody or having to fight anybody? You just, you just walk up and take it? Is, is this really possible? Could this really be? I mean, that's what I saw when I was working there. Could this really be the case? Hey guys, let's try this. Let's, let's, let's give it a shot. I, I think we can pull it off. And then they, they do it. They go, Oh my God, it really worked. It really worked. We didn't encounter a single person. Oh my God, we got it. We got it. Now, at that point, do you go back to your apartment and just like keep the cash there? Or do you think maybe they're going to look into this? You think maybe there's going to be some interest in finding the person who stole 1.7 million in cash? You think there, that might slightly interest the police and Bally's and the armored car company? So that is the time that you get out of there. 
That is the time you uh, you pack up, you leave, you leave the state, you leave the country if you can. That's a lot harder these days, but you, you disappear. You don't you don't sit around in your apartment with the cash sitting there for the police to come and kick down the door and, and find it all there and arrest you. But that's that's what he did. Not very smart. The first part was smart. The, the second part was not very smart. Drawing dead on the forum, he called in last week, said I would I would guess he set up a second number code on the truck when he worked there. Hmm. That's uh I guess that's possible that he could have set up uh some way in there. I thought maybe a key, but yeah, maybe a number code. Walked up and boom, one point seven million. I would have drove straight to Mexico, then took a boat to Colombia where they don't have extradition. Exactly. Like if you're gonna steal that type of money, that's you you've gotta just leave. You don't wait around. I've seen other s- stories like this that have reported on this show where someone's st- stolen a lot of money and then they just kind of sit there and w- wait for themselves to be caught and arrested. There was one we talked about, a guy who had embezzled $10 million and he just kind of sat there in Las Vegas. And eventually they got him. Like, this, this, is, this is when you get out. This is when you say goodbye. You don't sit around and wait for them to figure it out and bust you. And if you're going to stay in the country, you don't stay in the same location you've always been at. These are not very smart criminals. So I give him points for coming up with a scheme which worked, but I give him negative points for then just sitting with the money in his apartment until they uh, find him. And also, the, there was a flaw in his scheme. You, you don't mill around the boardwalk before doing it. You you find a place that they don't have you on video at all, and then you kind of just pop up, even if it means just kind of driving up to it or whatever. You, you don't mill around the area for a while to where they can start examining who was there and how are they behaving, especially if you worked there before and they're going to recognize you. That was the other flaw in the plan. Like, like I don't understand why milling around the boardwalk had to be part of this plan. It really didn't. Like, There's no way that had to do with it. Now, maybe he had to witness something from somewhere, but there's definitely somewhere better he could have hidden and watched instead of uh, right there on the boardwalk where there's cameras and they can pull it up and find him. Because the, the big flaw in this is because they can check this against records or ask people at the company, do you know this guy? So anyone they think acts suspiciously, hey, do you know him? Oh, yeah, it's our former employee. He's not just some random. If it's some random who figures this out, you have a chance of getting away with it if people don't recognize you. But here, of course, they're going to recognize him. He used to work there. So I guess smart in some ways, dumb in some others. So he did not get away with it. Okay, uh, let's take a look if we got any text messages here. The 916, Druff, what is the Mojave history story tonight? Nothing. Nothing. The uh, amount of preparation I did for this week's uh, Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history story is... Zero point zero. Yeah. I said it's not going to be every week. I'll try to do one next week. See, I have to come up with something I think is interesting, and then I have to research it. So even if I think about it like five minutes before the show, that's not going to work. I've got to do research on the topic, unless it's something I know really well already, and then I can do it without research, and I can just kind of have notes or an article with me as I talk about it. Some of you may wonder, the stuff I talk about on the show, are these things that I just know, or are these things that I read from articles, or am I reading it as I do the show? It's kind of a combination of everything. There are some things that I have a lot of knowledge about and just kind of talk without looking at anything. There's some things I've researched already but need the article kind of in the background to remind me of things or to have specific details. And there's other things where I've, I've heard a little bit about it before the show, but I want to cover it anyway, and I'll kind of uh, read it and learn about it as I do it on the show. 
But this type of segment, I really need to, at, le- at the very least, research it beforehand. Okay, well, we have some news. We have some news today that surprised me, and that has to do with Seth Polanski. So Seth Polanski is, or shall I say was, the vice president of communications at Caesars Interactive Entertainment, which owned the World Series. That is a subsidiary of Caesars that owned the World Series and World Series of Poker.com and everything associated with that stuff. So he's been there a long time. My first interaction with Seth Polanski was not positive. What had happened was Dockdown, which was uh, our, uh, or sorry, Never Went Poker, not Dockdown, Never Went Poker requested a press pass, a media pass for the World Series of Poker. And we were promised that we would get one by Jeffrey Pollack. And then we were denied it. We we applied and we were denied it based upon a, a really, really uh, stupid reason, which I, I won't go into the whole story, but basically they just didn't want us to have one and they, they sent us a really lame excuse, like a, you don't have bylines on your site. I think it was something like that. So anyway, eventually uh, Jeffrey Pollock promised, promised us that we would have one and then went back on the promise. And we were saying like, what the hell? You guys promised it, now you're taking it back. So uh, at one point... Seth Polanski had a discussion with uh, Brian Mikon, and Seth Polanski, who I'd never heard of before, but uh, Seth Polanski told Brian Mikon, never win poker, will never have a media pass under any circumstances. He was not a fan of the raunchiness of never win poker and didn't want any association between the World Series and that. And I said, who is this asshole, Seth Polanski, saying this? And Mike on knew of him. Mike on's ah, oh, that guy's a jerk. Ah, so anyway, we we uh, we didn't get one for Never Win Poker, but we did get one for Doc Down when Never Win Poker uh, ceased to have a forum, and we split off to just be uh, Doc Down, and we no longer had anything to do with poker news. So when Doc Down was started, which was then owned by me, Brian, Mike on, and, and two other guys, we reapplied, and. The rationale we gave as to why they should give us a media pass for Dockdown versus Never Win Poker, which they denied, was that we've cleaned up our act. That uh, a lot of the gratuitous uh, nudity and, and, and porn stuff that was posted there, like a, a, a lot of this had been greatly toned down, as has a lot of language on there. That it's a little free speech site, but it's, it's, it's nowhere near as controversial or crazy as Never Win Poker was. So uh, we weren't sure if they were going to go for this, but Seth actually was the one in charge at that point of deciding whether we get it or not. I'm not sure if he was the previous year, but I know for this for sure in uh, in oh in 2010. The, see, Dockdown came to be at the end of '09, so in 2010 we were going for this pass for Donk, for Dockdown, and uh, Seth actually decided to reconsider. And to his credit, he came back saying, okay, guys, we're going to give you a shot. So this is kind of your trial period. We're going to give you a pass. And I'm telling you, if you guys screw up with this or if you do anything that's uh, if, to embarrass us here, uh, we're never going to give you one again. So I'm, I'm going to give you guys a shot with this. But if you uh, make me regret this, regret this decision, you can forget ever having a pass ever again. Now, we weren't going to get banned from the World Series or anything. Like This didn't affect our status as players, but it did affect our status as uh Credentialed media at the World Series. 
So I knew I wasn't going to screw up, but I, I had to have a talk with uh, with Mike on there, and I was like, you know, we, we got to be careful here. We got to, you know, we can't screw this up. We can't do anything outrageous. We've just got to, we've got to demonstrate that we can behave well. And Mike on agreed, and we did, and everything went great. So we applied in 2011, and we got denied. <laughs> so, so we get this denial from from somebody, and uh, I. I Gave the guy. I wrote a nice email back to the guy, and I said, "Seth told us last year that if you know if, if everything went fine with our paths and we didn't do anything wrong, that we would get one again this year, and everything went fine last year. So please talk to Seth." Well, to Seth's credit, the guy went and asked him, and Seth said, "Yeah, I said that. So give him the pass." So they gave him the pass again. Well, at that point, it was pretty well established. So then, uh, I left Donk down in 2011. So. Uh, that was the last time I asked for a knockdown pass. But Poker Fraud Alert started in March 2012. So now I had to go explain this to Seth. Like, okay, I'm not part of Donkdown anymore. But uh, uh, you saw I did a good job with the pass in 2010 and 2011. So please give me one here in 2012 for Poker Fraud Alert. So I uh, sent that to them and I got denied. <laughs> so I, I, again, had to say go ask Seth. And then they asked him and, and they gave it to me. So then every time I applied after that, in 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, every time I applied for one, I just put, if you have any problem, ask Seth Polanski. He has authorized this. But it wasn't. I, I had one every year, and uh, I adhered to the rules. Over that time, I got to know Seth Polanski a little bit better. We were never friends, never even close to friends. But uh, he was the one I at least had a line of communication with. And I will give him credit that he would respond to any email I sent him and would send me often a detailed response. So he didn't just say, uh, I don't feel like bothering with UFU. Like, like he'd always give me an answer. And uh, sometimes I didn't agree with his answer, but I'd always get an answer. And he'd always explain his side of things, the World Series side of things, whatever it happened. I told him, and I think he believed it, I told him, I'm always going to be fair to you guys. I'm not someone out to trash the World Series. I'm not someone out to make the World Series look bad. But I'm going to be honest. If there's something I think the World Series did that you guys screwed up or you did something stupid, I'm going to say so. And on the flip side, if the poker world is uh, accusing the World Series of something where I feel the World Series is not at fault, I'm not going to go with the crowd. I'm not going to say the thing to make myself sound cool or, or go along with the uh, the popular kids. I, I'm going to say, no, the World Series is right here if I feel they're right. And I proved myself over the years. I did exactly that. There were times where everyone's freaking out about something, and I looked at it and said, no, you know what? There's more to this. I, I, I think there's more to this. I think the World Series wasn't at fault. And every time I said that, I was usually proven right or likely proven right. There were plenty of times I also criticized the World Series. And I think it can very fairly be said, and I can prove it, that I have been pro-World Series. I've defended them on some occasions, and I have bashed them and made fun of them on some occasions. So I am neither a World Series of Poker hater, nor am I a World Series of Poker yes-man. I am someone who really tells it like it is. And, and Seth knew that. And he's, he kind of acknowledged to me that uh, he knew that uh, I do that. Because I've, I, when I've told him about things in the past involving Poker Fraud Alerts, I think he said, yeah, I'm, I'm aware of that. I know you're right. So, like, so I think he understood what I had going on here. It was also important to him that uh, the World Series of Poker was not talked about badly on social media, which often it was. So he, he, would, he would get very emotional about this. 
And he and the other employees of uh, the, the other managers at the World Series, Ty Stewart, Jack Effel, they all had a problem on social media in that they they let their emotions affect how they would behave on social media in response to World Series of Poker matters. I'm not talking about attacking them personally. I'm talking about attacking things at the World Series that people don't like. And and Seth has responded emotionally before, which he shouldn't have. Jack just blocked people. <laughs> Jack had the passive aggressive. Uh, Responses block people. Uh, Ty Stewart had uh, responded angrily before. All of them had temper issues. All of them had uh, too much emotionally invested in social media reaction to the World Series of Poker. And that was a flaw they had. And that was why I kept saying they should hire KevMath to operate the WSOP account, which they ended up doing. They actually did it. <laughs> they actually did what I said they should. I, I don't know. I don't think it's because I said it, but I, I was one of the people saying it, that none of them had the ability to deal with a, a lot of this, these complaints in a professional manner to where they didn't get emotional involved. They didn't get emotion involved. They they had a hard time checking their emotions at the door. As Kev Math is the type who could uh, – he, he wouldn't be responding that way. Kev Math always is calm. He's always calm. Very knowledgeable, very good at coming up with any information he doesn't have yet, and he's always calm. So he got – have him run the account. I, I said that. I said him or someone like him. And that's what they did. They actually got him. Now, sometimes Seth would still go on the account or other people would still go on the WSB account and tweet something obnoxious. And I, I knew it wasn't KevMath in those cases. And KevMath didn't have access to it the whole year because he was like a contract employee or something. I, I don't even know the whole story with his employment. But I know that like during the World Series in the summer, it was usually KevMath, but not always. And then not during the summer, it was someone else, probably Seth. So there, there were some stupid things tweeted from there and some obnoxious things tweeted from there. But I will say that Seth, despite all that, did care how the World Series of Poker was seen on social media, the way people would talk about it. And for that reason, he gave some respect to Poker Fraudler and to me for what we thought. And uh, I, I thought that was good. I thought that was good that he would... Uh, that they would actually notice and sometimes react to criticism. And by react, I don't just mean in a bad way. I mean sometimes in a good way. They change something for the better because people complain. And I, I thought the whole thing of caring about the, the things said on social media, there's a good and bad to it. You know, The bad is when you react emotionally. The good is when you actually listen to the customers and, and make changes. I've seen companies that are really polite and professional on social media, but then they won't change anything. They're super stubborn. They won't change a damn thing no matter what you say. And uh, they're super polite to you about it, but they, they won't do a damn thing. I actually had that complaint about Phil Galfon with his run at one site. That Very, very polite, nice guy, Phil Galfon, but uh, also very stubborn. So uh, anyway, back to Seth Polanski. He also was uh, very good at, as I said, was responding to things. I'd say I've heard this rumor about such and such thing that happened at the World Series. And he would have every right to say, sorry, can't comment, sorry, none of your business. Or just ignore me. He could do all those things. He's not required to respond to me. But every time he did, every time he gave me an answer, sometimes a very long, detailed one, and then I'd ask him out of courtesy, I'd say, would you like me to, uh, you know, can I put this out? Or if I can't, what parts can I say publicly? What parts can't I? So I didn't want to screw him over and reveal confidential things he told me. He told me some things which I knew right away I shouldn't say. I didn't even have to ask him. So I uh, 
I didn't want to be a dick and say, well, you never told me not to say it. <laughs> like, I didn't want to do that. I, I wanted to show some respect if somebody's going to give me information who works on the inside like he was, that, that maybe this isn't for everyone to hear. Maybe he's just kind of trying to justify himself to me so I can understand why they're taking the position they are. And I kind of read between the lines that maybe some things I shouldn't say. So some things I didn't say, some things I never will say. But I would ask him, okay, what what can I say to the public and what can't I? Because I, I would like to say a lot of things. I just uh, – I'm not going to do it if they don't want me to. So uh, – and, and again, this isn't to be a yes man. This is because if you're going to give me information, I'm not going to make you sorry you gave me information. I always say don't bite the informational hand that feeds you. If someone tells you something, don't make them sorry they did. Anything I find out on my own is a different story. Like when I found out about Jared Blesnick getting unbanned from the World Series because Phil Helmuth pulled strings, I didn't ask Seth, hey, can I publicize this? I just went and ran with it and publicized it. Why? Because I found it on my own. No one told me this. But if they give me the information, then I'm going to give them the right to tell me what I can and can't put out there. Otherwise, the next time they just won't tell me anything. And it's the right thing to do. But he would give me a lot of responses, and sometimes the responses would open my eyes. Sometimes I would think the World Series is at fault, and after I'd read his response, then I'd kind of look at it again and go, you know what? I think I believe them. I think that uh, this is really not their fault. One of them was when a guy got mugged in the parking lot. And the whole poker world was up in arms. Oh my god, this is so terrible. The Rio doesn't have security in the parking lot. Well, it is true the security in the parking lot sucks. I'll say that, but... I was still wondering, why was this guy all the way in the back corner of the parking lot? Isn't that a little suspicious? This guy got beaten up, was in the very back corner of the parking lot, and when security wanted to help him, he kept saying, no, 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 no. Why was that, if, if it was just some random guy who got mugged? So, of course, my thought went to, maybe drug deal gone bad. And Seth said, yep, that's what it was, drug deal gone bad. So I said, okay. So I came out and said, I've been told that this was a drug deal gone bad, and that... uh we should just basically ignore it. You know, if, if so, it's one thing if somebody gets mugged in the parking lot by criminals looking to take advantage of them, and security's not there to stop it. Yeah, you can blame the World Series somewhat for that. But uh, if you're inviting criminals to go do a transaction with you and then they beat you up, that is your fault. That's not the World Series' fault. That's not security's fault. When you go to the corner of the parking lot, the dark corner, to avoid security, and criminals beat you up, who you are willingly meeting up with there. It is your fault. It is not the slightest bit the World Series' fault. And I put that out there. I said, uh-uh. I was suspicious of this from the start. Everybody else was jumping on this. The World Series is the the, the terrible security, blah, blah, blah. I, I said, this doesn't sound right to me. So that was one of the times when I was suspicious already. And then when Seth told me this, I said, okay, you know what? I believe you. And there's been other ones like that, too. But anyway, why are we talking about all this? Well, as you heard at the very beginning of this segment, Seth's not with the World Series anymore. He left. And I didn't expect to see that. I thought he'd be kind of like a World Series lifer. He's been been with them for over a decade, and he's been a big part of it. He also had a major role in WSOP.com, which I don't think Jack Effel did. But I know that uh, Seth had a big role in that. I'm not sure exactly what he did. Remember, he was like VP of marketing, uh, of communications, not marketing, VP of communications. So you'd get a press release from the World Series. It would come from him. And he was the one who was in charge of all the media passes, of course, as I said. And uh, and I, I think all the uh, – a lot of the like random miscellaneous things around the World Series that didn't directly have to do with the tournament were pretty much under him. That's, I guess that's the best way to describe his job there at the World Series, that Jack was responsible for the tournament play, for setting structures, for making decisions. All, that wasn't really Seth. Seth had some power there, but that really wasn't his area. 
uh, everything else was pretty much under Seth, and then Ty was on top of both of them. Ty was their boss. So uh, another one where Seth uh, was instrumental, he was the one that got a, uh, a, a, a got one of these uh, floor men running sit and goes. He was the one who got that guy fired when it was brought out by uh, a scammer himself, but uh, that, that was unrelated. But uh, remember, good old uh, PSU Mike, nineteen ninety nine, the airport scammer. When he brought out the story before he was known as the airport scammer about a floor man who was uh, demanding tips to start sit and goes, and if you wouldn't tip him, he wouldn't start the sit and goes, which was very very bad. And Seth was actually the one who uh, had the guy fired. Seth also uh, took some action when I told him I directly emailed him that. Brandon, I hadn't even been there yet, but Brandon went to the World Series and uh, was harassed by people who had those booths that people, you know, companies would rent out those booths in the hallway of the World Series and some of them were very obnoxious trying to sell their stuff and wouldn't leave you alone as you're walking by and get in your face. Brandon kept having encounters with people doing this to him, told me about it, and I emailed Seth and said, hey, just want to let you know this is happening. I haven't seen it yet, but a, a friend, referring to Brandon, who I trust, told me this is happening here, and I, I believe his account of it, and I think this is going to be very unpleasant for people, especially for recreational players who are going there to have fun. And to his credit, Seth took care of it. Like uh, By the time I got there, this wasn't happening. I would walk by, and they'd try to make eye contact with me and kind of get me to get try to say something, but they would never get in my face. They were not aggressive. i go, this is totally different than what Brandon described, and I'm sure this is because Seth took action because he told me that they're going to take action. He said, we're going to look into it and take action if this is happening, and then it stopped. Now, it started happening again the next year, and this actually made Chicago Joey do a major expose on the whole thing, and that got even more attention. So it kind of temporarily stopped, and then the next year it started again, and then Chicago Joey brought much more visibility to it because he has a bigger audience than I do. But, uh, you know, credit again to Seth for listening to me. He could have just dismissed it, but he took care of it. So uh, he wasn't a saint. There were some things he said and did I disagreed with. He definitely didn't handle social media well a lot of the times. Uh, he was good at, uh, at yeah the press release type of stuff. As far as, like, mass communications... Outside of social media, he was good at that, and I, I would get that. I was part of the email list, and I, I would get that stuff every week. I eventually was denied credentials again in 2019, but this was not due to anything I did wrong. I was told that uh, after that, some bloggers and vloggers who got media passes abused them in 2018, and they decided that uh, for going forward, anyone who plays in the World Series cannot have them. So you have to make a choice. Are you media or are you a player? You cannot be both anymore. So he told me, you did not do anything wrong. You followed the rules. We're, we're not aiming this at you. We are denying everybody who plays in the World Series media passes. So I didn't love that, but that was their decision. And I talked about it on this show, but you know, I'm not going to be mad about it if it's not directed at me. Now, if they if they unfairly said I did things wrong and denied me, I'd be pissed. But this was not aimed at me. This was because other people screwed up and they made a blanket decision. So whatever. That's, uh, I can understand it at least. I said what you should just do is just re- revoke the revoke it from the people who screwed up and then put everybody on notice that there's no tolerance, that if you screw up, you lose it forever. I guess they just didn't want the headache anymore. 
Anyway, let's talk about where he moved. So why, why would he leave this position that he had at the World Series, which it seemed like he enjoyed for the most part? Now, I'll tell you one thing he may not have enjoyed. Well, two things. First of all, I don't think he enjoyed the fighting on the social media, the people who would bash him. Yeah, he had his critics. He had kind of a high-profile job, and he has kind of a an aggressive personality. So he's someone who doesn't like to take shit, and then people give him shit. So it's something where if it bothers you that people insult you or insult your work or insult your company, if it bothers you then and you're kind of one of the faces of it, then it can – grind on you, so it's possible that that was getting on his nerves. I also think the WSOP.com failure, and it really has been a fail site, even even during this pandemic where it says increased in traffic, it still isn't doing very well, as, as Brandon has told us. So it's been pretty much a fail site, and remember, he has a major role there, and when it first got going and Bill Reaney was just doing a horrendous job and I called it out, Seth actually had a 45-minute conversation with me on the phone. I've, I've talked about this before on here, where he was trying to convince me that, that Bill was doing a better job than I think and that I'm being too harsh on him. But uh, it, was, it wasn't a, like the call. It was kind of a weird call, but I was never uh, threatened or anything. I was never told, you know, stop saying this or we're going to ban you. It was kind of just like, hey, can you listen to my point of view here? Bill's doing a lot better than you think. You know, maybe you can not, not be as harsh on this. You've got to hear our side of it. That, that's kind of what it was. So I, I didn't agree with some of the stuff he said. And I told him I have different conclusions and that even what he's told me, even though some things have uh, made more sense to me now, there's plenty of things I still think Bill is doing wrong. And I still stand by that. And Bill is now gone from the company. He should have been a long time ago. He should have been fired a long time ago. I will say that because of the market size, it was never going to do well there, but Bill definitely did them no favors. But anyway, it was a fail site, and I think just like Bill had big dreams that this was going to be something huge, which is why I think he left it, because he saw it had no future. But just like Bill had big dreams, I think Seth had big dreams that this was a another huge step in his career. That, yeah, he has a high position. Yeah, he's like tied for the number two guy at the World Series of Poker, which is a huge brand. But what if he could be one of the main guys also with the online version, which could be even bigger? So he probably had huge dreams of what it was going to become, and when it was a fail site, it was probably very irritating to him. And maybe he's just bored. Maybe he's just tired, but maybe he just wants to move on to something. I think he's a little younger than me. I think he's like 45 or something. So, you know, there's still plenty of time in his career. It's not like what I was saying with uh, Bobby Baldwin, where he's like 69 years old and shouldn't be moving on to anything else. Uh, Seth, definitely it makes sense that he'd want to try another thing at this point before he gets too old. So he has moved on. Maybe there's more to it. Maybe something happened at Caesars he's not happy about. Maybe the uh, questionable future of the World Series in the COVID world has something to do with it. I don't know. But he has moved on. So where has he moved to and what is he doing? Well, it's not what I would really expect. It does have to do with gaming, kind of. I'd never heard of this before. I've had to, I had to research today what this thing even is, and I'm still kind of confused. So he tweeted... Earlier today, 11.35 a.m., December 4th, beyond excited to embark on this journey, exciting technology products for two industries I love, sports and gaming. So what is this? Conscious gaming. You ever heard of conscious gaming? I bet you haven't. We are thrilled to have Seth Polanski join Conscious Gaming to help drive our responsible gaming message and introduce our innovative technology to the entire iGaming ecosystem, including operators, regulators, and 
and legislators in the U.S. and beyond. And then they have a picture of him. It says, former Caesars and NFL executive joins Conscious Gaming, Seth Polanski, vice president of corporate social responsibility and communications. So he's still doing a communications job, which makes sense. But, okay, let's think about this. First of all, I didn't know he was also, he was once an NFL executive, which, so was Jeffrey Pollock, which might explain how Seth Polanski came to the World Series in the first place. He, he may have come through Jeffrey Pollock. I never thought of that before. I never thought maybe those two had some kind of career, uh, some kind of something in common with their career before, but apparently they did. That's where uh, Jeffrey Pollock also came from. That must have been when when he was younger, of course. He's been at the World Series a while. He may have even arrived at the same time as Jeffrey Pollock. I just may not have known him. But here is the press release on Conscious Gaming, December fourth, twenty twenty, Vancouver, Canada. It's weird. I didn't even know they're in Canada. Conscious Gaming announced. Today, the hiring of sports and gaming industry stalwart Seth Polanski as its new vice president of corporate social responsibility communications. Polanski comes aboard after more than 17 years with Caesars Entertainment and the National Football League to spearhead corporate social responsibility and communications efforts for the recently established Conscious Gaming, a philanthropic organization committed to utilizing advanced technology to propel social responsibility initiatives. What? Now, I read this description earlier today, and I said, what the hell is that? Is, is this a charity? Is it like, well, what's funding? How does this thing make money? <laughs> Let's think about this again. Listen, it sounds noble, but what the hell is funding this and why? Corporate social responsibility and communication efforts for the recent established Conscious Gaming, a philanthropic organization committed to utilizing advanced technology to propel social responsibility initiatives. Okay, but where's where's the money in that? Who's paying you? Like, who are you doing this for? Who do you represent? What is this? Where did this come from? Like, There's a lot of questions I have about the history of conscious gaming and who is paying for it. I have to imagine they're, they're paying him decent money. Otherwise, he wouldn't have left the World Series, where I assume he was making decent money as the number two guy at the World Series and having been there over a decade. So uh, that, a lot of questions to be asked about this, and I, I don't have all the answers. I, I tried to look up the answers, but I, I really didn't come up with much. I'm, I'm, my best guess... Well, let me – I'll continue in a second with what uh, what Conscious Gaming has, uh, what, what they had to say in the rest of this press release. But uh, first I want to play you what Seth Polanski uh, – he had comments. They actually had a quick interview with him on a, on a YouTube video about how he feels about joining Conscious Gaming. <laughs> that was for the old school poker fraud alert radio listeners, the ones who've gone back a lot of years. That was the other comment. That's dedicated to Asian Spa, who's not listening anymore, but might be listening on that uh, big podcasting platform in the sky. That was his favorite sound effect. That it really was Seth Polanski, by the way. <laughs> that part's not a joke. That was really him. Conscious Gaming works with gaming operators, regulators, suppliers, responsible gaming advocacy groups, sports leagues, academics, and treatment professionals to better protect consumers and enhance responsible gaming. Hmm. Just last week, Conscious Gaming announced a partnership with GVC Holdings and BetMGM, who have agreed to deploy PlayPause, a multi-state digital self-exclusion tool for the gaming industry to support responsible gaming. Ah, okay, see, now we're starting to understand. Let's read on. 
PlayPause is an innovative universal cross-state cross-operator solution for user identification created to modernize and strengthen the effectiveness of U.S. gaming industry's responsible gaming programs. The solution is made available via Conscious Gaming, a nonprofit organization established by GeoComply. What is GeoComply? I'm not sure. But okay, let, let's stop here for a second. This is not something being done for charity or for social responsibility. These are not people whose life's mission is to prevent problem gambling or to make sure casinos behave in a responsible fashion. This is a company which is providing tools for the casino industry to feign caring about about uh, problem gambling. Most casinos would be thrilled to take every dollar from every problem gambler they could. When I say most, I say that because there are a few casino owners who actually care about not doing this. Like, like believe it or not, Steve Wynn, for all his uh, sexual harassment issues, one good thing about him was that he actually had enough class to decline action from the biggest whale of all time, Terrence Watanabe. He actually told Terrence that you're a problem gambler. I'm not going to take your action anymore. And he left tens of million dollars on the table. And Terrence then went to Caesars and chucked it all off there. So Wynn banned him for being a problem gambler because Wynn did not want to take this guy's tens of millions because he knew the guy was sick. But most casinos do not see it this way. Most casinos just simply want as much money as possible. They look at the bottom line and say, we win money from negative expectation gamblers, so we want every penny they're willing to lose to us. However, there are laws in Nevada, elsewhere, to help problem gamblers and to prevent them from being too destructive to themselves. One of the things that has been required in most jurisdictions is self-exclusion, that if you notice you have a gambling problem, that you can actually tell them, I want to exclude myself from being able to come back here. So even if I want to come back, do not let me. And you can exclude for a period of time, 12 months, 6 months, whatever it is, and then no matter what, they're not going to let you in. If you try to come in when you're self-excluded, they boot you. So that's been in place a long time. That's not a new thing. The casinos don't want to do this, but they have to by state law. And the casinos don't want to fight this too much because if they fight this too much, if it seems like that they are letting problem gamblers spiral out of control, then laws might pass which are more restrictive to them than have they promoted their own solutions to the whole thing. So the casinos are trying to make it to where they take care of the problem gambling, or at least they make it look like they're taking care of the problem gambling, so this way the state doesn't have to step in and put in more restrictive measures to prevent people from losing money there. That would be a disaster for them. So they want to make it look like they've got it all handled. So this is a way they can make it look like they've got it all handled. So this uh, conscious gaming, I don't know who owns it. I know it's, it's a division of this GeoComply, which I have to imagine is some sort of geolocation checker just from the name. But these are all measures that keep people uh, gambling in the right locations, if it's a state-by-state -state thing online, and even those playing in person or online, that there's measures in place to stop problem gamblers that the casinos can then present to regulators and say, look, we're taking care of the problem. We're dealing with this. You guys don't have to do anything. Just, just leave us alone and 
let us weed out the problem gamblers ourselves. Look at all the things we're doing here. Look who we hired. Look at the tools we're using. Look at this play pause thing. That's 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 what's going on here. So that's what uh, conscious gaming is. I still have some questions about it, like who's behind it, who started it, why is it nonprofit? Is it really a, an arm of the gaming industry? Is it possible that's what it is? It's possible this is really owned by casinos or a co-op of casinos. It easily could be. So going on here is more to this press release. We believe the benefits of offering a technology-driven self-exclusion tool are critical for our industry to ensure we protect all stakeholders, said Anna Sainsbury, Conscious Gaming Trustee and GeoComply Chairman and Co-Founder. That's who's in charge, but I don't know who she is. We are excited to have Seth join us to front our adoption efforts and work with the industry to deliver Conscious Gaming's state-of-the-art solution to help simplify, streamline, and stay ahead of a complex issue. So now why would they hire Seth for this? What does he bring to the table? He's not a programmer. He's not someone who's going to develop uh, technology. That's not his area of expertise for sure. So what does he bring to the table, and why do they hire him? Well, he does have experience with, number one, communicating to the gambling community, because that's what he does. That was his job at Caesars, and he, he had his hand in a lot of things, and remember, he was someone who was very involved with WCP.com. And they had to have their own policies regarding online problem gambling. So he does bring that knowledge over there. Here's Seth's real quote. He said, uh, this is an incredible opportunity to help rally the gaming and sports industries behind this very important initiative. Sports betting and iGaming businesses are spreading rapidly through the U.S. And in order to ensure their longevity... It is imperative that all stakeholders have their responsible gaming initiatives accommodate the modern habits of those users they aim to protect. It's clear Anna and the team are once again prescient in developing this core technology solution to streamline the administrative burden and eliminate the silos associated with maintaining numerous separate state-operated self-exclusion databases. I'm honored to be chosen to help lead this philanthropic cause to benefit the industry, I, the industries I care so deeply about. Okay, so let's unpack this. First of all, there's no chance this is just like an off-the-cuff statement. This is a carefully written statement by Seth that you can tell was written by someone who has a background in uh, corporate communications. So he, they didn't just say, hey, Seth, how do you feel about joining us? Uh, uh, this is an incredible opportunity to help rally the gaming and sports industry behind this very important initiative. Uh, uh, the, the blah, blah, like he, he definitely sat down and took like, probably hours to write out that statement to make sure it sounded perfect to him. But what is he saying here? Okay, philanthropic, that that part's bothering me. This is not philanthropic. A philanthropic organization is one that is essentially a charity. It is, it is an organization that is there to help people, that its only goal is to help people. There's no other side goal to it, that the entire point of their organization existing is to make people's lives better. That's not what's going on here. This has the casino's interest in mind. This is putting together responsible gaming initiatives and building technology to support responsible gaming for casinos to use, for casinos to pay for, and for the casinos to be able to show to regulators that they're handling the problem. That You can't say that's philanthropic. This is something being done for corporations. It's not evil. It's not bad. It's just not charity. It's not philanthropic. It's not noble. It's not about caring. 
I have serious doubts that anyone who works for conscious gaming really cares much about problem gamblers. I'm not saying they hate problem gamblers. I'm not saying they want problem gamblers to ruin their lives. I'm saying these are not people driven by a passion to help problem gamblers. See, real organizations that are working towards some sort of uh, goal that they feel will better the planet, these are filled with people very passionate about the issue. So you have these animal rights groups of people who really, really love animals. And they want to dedicate their life to, to helping animals and, and having animals suffer less. You have people who are part of environmental advocacy groups that are very, very obsessed with environmental issues and care very much about the environment. And this is a, a big part of their being. And that's why they join a group like that as well. Take a job like that. You have uh, groups that fight uh, child sex trafficking. Again, of people who feel very passionate about that subject and want to make a difference. So there's people who will join either organizations or companies that seek to cause some kind of social change or help out some kind of situation that uh, they're joining it because they believe in it. And yes, there may be some people working on the administrative side who don't really care, who just have a job and just need a job, but at least the uh, main people involved and many of the lower employees as well really care about the cause and joined it for that reason. I have a feeling there's not a single person at Conscious Gaming who gives one crap about problem gambling from a moral standpoint. This is a business opportunity. And that's why they hire people who have a long standing in the casino industry like Seth. They didn't hire Seth because he's this empathetic guy who cares about problem gamblers. They hired him because he knows a lot about the World Series of Poker, about Caesars, about WSB.com, about the industry in general. And they say, hey, you know, we, we, we think he can be of use. And uh, he's communicated with a lot of people in the past, so he brings these contacts to the table as well. In fact, that could be a big reason to hire him because he has a lot of contacts from over the years that the same people they're going to want to reach. So this this is really a fake charity. It's a fake philanthropic or organization. It may even be an arm of the casino industry. If you, if you know more about it, feel free to text me and tell me more about it. Again, this isn't a scandal. I'm not trying to unpack a scandal here. I'm not saying, wait till you hear what conscious gaming really is or who's really behind it. Like If, if I find out that, that this is a joint effort by, by several casinos, I'm not going to go, oh, I didn't think of that. Now, I, I think there's a good chance it is, or if it's not, it's someone who realizes the casinos need this and have formed a business around it. And there's nothing wrong with this. Like, had I thought of this, I, I might have done it. And and I will tell you that uh, I probably care more about problem gambling than all of them, but it's still not a huge issue to me. I do like to advise people how not to be problem gamblers. And that's, that's a lot of times why I'll put out information on this show on how to get best value out of your gambling, what games to play, and uh, and, and also about uh, bankroll management. I, I put all this out there hoping that people who are problem gamblers might think about this stuff and then maybe change their ways a little bit. So I, I, I hate to see people lose all their money with problem gambling. But is it something I'm going to dedicate my life to or think about every day? No. But I think I probably still care more than most of these people at this place because this, this really looks just looks like a business thing. But they've got a posture this way. They, you know, they can't say, okay, we're offering play pause for, uh, for, for 
stopping people from uh, problem gambling online. This is our new product, and we're, we're looking in many ways to help casinos deal with problem gamblers. But we don't give a shit about them. We, we don't care about them. It's just dollars and cents for us. If the casinos pay us, we'll develop whatever tools they want. Like They can't say that. They've got to feign caring. They have to feign uh, social responsibility. They've got to pretend this whole thing is about the casino industry caring. Everybody cares. Everybody just cares tremendously for the problem gamblers. Everybody in the casino industry has a huge heart. This is for them. This is all for them. Not for the casinos, not for the casinos to get regulators off their backs. So what should you think of Seth for taking a job like this? Uh, like Whatever. Um, if it's a better position, if he makes more money, if it's just something interesting to him after he's bored with the World Series, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with taking a job like this. It's just different. A little history on Seth here that I see later in this article that I didn't see before. Said uh, Polanski joined the NFL in 2003 as the first employee of the NFL Network, the league's foray into the cable television industry, overseeing the network's communications department while managing business communication for the league pertaining to television and other media matters. I did not know that. He was pretty young then, too. And then it said he joined Caesars in 2008. Okay, that's that's when I first encountered him. That makes sense. I think yeah, Jeffrey Pollock was there before. Okay, Pollock was there before, and then Polanski came after. Uh, Pollock, I think, came in 06. Pollock was not there when I won my bracelet in 05. I believe he arrived the next year. I know for sure he was there in 07, but I think he came in 06. It said, The role of conscious gaming perfectly marries Polanski's previous experiences with the sports and gaming industries. Using, utilizing his familiarity across the sports, gaming, and media worlds, Polanski is charged with coordinating the industry's adoption of conscious gaming's play-pause offering, promoting the company, and strategizing, uh, strategizing its corporate social responsibility Initiatives as it moves forward. This play pause is uh, it's some sort of thing that stops people from having an active account on these uh, online systems. I'm guessing it looks like to me, and it looks like this is an attempt to bring all the self exclusions together. This is kind of like an industry wide attempt to say if you're going to play online. That if you've self-excluded anywhere, then any company that joins this play pause, that you're going to be self-excluded from all casinos. You can't you can't self-exclude from uh, the MGM platform and then join the Caesars platform if they're both part of this whole thing. So it's, you exclude some one place, you get excluded everywhere. And again, this is all voluntary. They're not re- required to do this by law. But if they can point to these things, if they can say, look, we're using this technology, so we're, this way a problem gambler who self-excludes, he gets self-excluded everywhere. We're doing this on our own because we care. We're doing this on our own because we know how to take care of the problem. And regulators will go, oh, yeah, you do. Wow. We didn't make you do it, and you did it yourself. Well, looks like you've got this handled. Okay, no problem. That's the whole point here. A lot of times it's appearances. A lot of, a lot of times it's what you can point to of what you have done voluntarily without prodding and without requirements. If you can point to that as a company, then regulators may say, they're much more likely to say, that there's no point to make laws to force you to behave the way they want you to. If you've already voluntarily behaved in a similar fashion. And this is very beneficial for companies to do, all companies, not just gaming companies, very beneficial for companies to do because then they get to choose their own terms. 
they get to choose the terms which harm them the least. So they give up a little voluntarily so they don't have to give a, a lot later via laws or requirements. That is exactly what this is. I'd be very surprised if it was not. You may say, well, it's a nonprofit. It's got to be charity. No. Nonprofits can be a lot of different things. Nonprofits, basically, all, <laughs> all it really means is they're not operating for profit, which doesn't mean that they don't have an income. It just means that they are not operating for profit. They're basically operating to break even. They're not operating to lose money. They're not operating to make money, but they that they are not operating for the purpose of generating money. They're just basically running to keep themselves above water while they're attempting to accomplish some kind of non-monetary goal. Otherwise, there'd be no point. You're like, you, don't, you don't have a non-profit that has... If the purpose is not to make a profit, there's got to be some other purpose. So this purports to be a non-profit, but that doesn't mean much. I believe it's a non-profit, but as I said, you can have a non-profit where everybody working there makes a lot of money. Seth Polanski is not working for free. But I'd love to know more about what this really is and who's really behind it and what's really backing it. But I doubt I'd be surprised if I found out the full details. Nothing in the gambling world is what it seems to be. At least not what it seems to be on the surface. It's, it's often what it seems to be if you really think about it or if you really look into it. But a lot of it is deceptive and a lot of it is... Uh, Marketing and glimmering lights meant to distract you. In fact, the whole concept of advantage play spawns from that. The concept of advantage play is that uh, companies that exist for the purpose of kind of manipulating you into losing a lot more money than you intended to lose, that there's really nothing wrong with turning things around and using flaws in their procedures to make money off them. Especially if you're doing it through legal means. I'm not talking about cheating. I'm talking about uh, legal means and in, in noticing flaws in things that uh, casinos have come up with where you can turn the tables and put the odds in your favor because they didn't do it right. They left opportunities on the table for those who have an eye for that sort of thing and are good at analyzing when the odds are in their favor. and But the but the ethics of advantage play is right there. The ethics of advantage play is that uh, if casinos are trying to beat you, and if they're trying to beat you a lot of times in, a, in ways that you don't even realize that are kind of manipulative, then you can try to beat them. If they can do everything within the law to take your money, you can do everything within the law to take their money. I think that's fair. That's why I have always been very supportive of advantage players and why I have uh, engaged in advantage play myself. Okay, I'm going to take a little break here and uh, then we'll continue with the end of the show. Plenty more to get to. We have uh, seven more topics. We are, I'd say, through about the middle of the show. So I'll probably be gone for maybe five minutes, ten minutes. And then I'll come back, and then we will finish. In, in the chat room, Shoeshine Box answered the question from earlier. He said, my kid will be 16 next week. Uh, he, he's my uh, designated driver, and he plays online a little bit, listens to the show with me, likes your take on politics and uh, CV report. I'm not sure what CV report he's talking about. 
Well, anyway, I'm, gl- I'm glad he enjoys it. I don't know if the show's always appropriate for a 16-year-old, but, you know, the truth is uh, I listened to worse things when I was 16. I wasn't exactly an innocent 16-year-old. In fact, I, I actually believe 16-year-olds back in the 80s, when I was 16, I think they were a lot less innocent than today. I think parents, despite the Internet, like some people think, oh, the Internet – you know, kids can look up anything now. They can go to porn sites, whatever. They, they they can access everything. They learn about everything now. I still think that parents can better, not just can, but they are more vigilant about watching what their kids are exposed to compared to back in the 70s and 80s. Because I'm telling you, back in those days, uh, even, even like at my son's current age of 10, I knew a lot of things that a kid probably shouldn't know about at 10 that my son has no clue about, which is good. <laughs> now, you know, seeing him as a 10-year-old, I go, wow, you know, I, th- I think I knew about too many things when I was 10. And, and that was just the way it was. Like, all my friends were that way, too, when I was 10. Kids just uh, were aware of a lot of things in those days. I, I think because because there were not things like devices to keep them distracted when you have less to do, you have fewer options, you start to want to learn about more things around you. And also, kids in those days, they, they just went out on their own. You'd ride your bike everywhere. You'd see a lot of things. Like you just, uh, uh, I, I think your innocence went away a lot quicker in those days. So uh, yeah, shoeshine boxes agreeing is definitely better policed with the kids today. So I I really think that kids are actually more sheltered now than back, 30, 40 years ago. And definitely from my own experience versus my son's experience, that's the case. But I think it's, I don't think it's a parenting difference. I think it's a time difference. Because I looked at everybody around me back then. And yeah, there's stuff people can find on the internet, but if the kids don't really look for it or don't have it that much of an interest in looking for it, it's, it's just different. I'm going to take a break. Then I will come back to cover the other topics. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew. And it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally, and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California. You can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar. And he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, 
Eric at eblawfirm.us. That's Eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin, eric at eblawfirm.us. You know what I realized? I realized that if I did this show every night, there would be two things that would happen. Number one, I would have a sore throat all the time. Because every day after the show, I feel a sore throat. And in the age of COVID, actually, what happens is I go through this every time. I go, crap, my throat hurts. I wonder if this is me getting sick. And then I go, oh, like, like, what else would it be? Like, how would I even get a cold now? I don't even go anywhere. And I go, shit, I got COVID. And I go, Oh, wait a minute. I just did the show last night. Of course I have a sore throat. It's like every week this happens, like I've got this momentary thought of like, wait, my throat hurts. What does this mean? And I go, wait, I did radio last night. Okay. So that'd be number one. Number two, I'd lose weight. Cause I just realized as I was on this break that I eat absolutely nothing during this program, which lasts often up to eight hours. So I don't eat a thing. I do nothing but drink water. That's a long period of the day that I'm up that I'm actually eating nothing. And that's got to help me lose weight. There's, there's, for sure, I've got to be losing weight on the days of radio. Now, the days I'm not doing radio is a different story, but for sure, the days I'm doing radio have got to be good for my weight. And in fact, that's why I lost weight at last year's World Series of Poker. Because even though I would eat like a massive meal after I was done with uh, the day's events, I would go so long without eating anything that... I, I would uh, lose weight. I came, I came back and I was like eight pounds lighter. I was kind of doing an unintentional form of intermittent fasting. So I guess that's kind of what I'm doing here on radio days. Well, the thing is, my, there's no way that I could take doing this every day. It would just be too tough on my vocal cords to talk this long seven days a week. That would really start to, I think it would probably cause me some major problems. But uh, since I have a week to recover, in this case it was six days, because we had the show six days ago, it's okay. That's also why I don't do the show more often. That and, you know, I've got a family to be with, and this, this takes time. It takes time not only to do the show, but it also takes time to research the show. So, okay, moving on. The next topic we have on our schedule is Eric Baldwin and his little battle with uh, WSOP.com which I guess this time won't be with Seth Polanski. Eric Baldwin, who was known as uh, Baseballdy back in the old days of online poker, winning online poker player. I hadn't thought much of him recently. Never had an issue with the guy. I just, uh, I don't really know him. It it just shows you once again what a fail site WSOP.com is. They do so many things that are stupid. And uh, here it looks like they really screwed... Eric Baldwin, and I, I understand their point, and I'll get to in a second what happened. Here's what occurred. 
Eric Baldwin entered a satellite to this stupid uh, 2020 main event this month, that second main event that we've talked about. So Eric Baldwin entered this satellite. The satellite was a $100 buy-in, and this was on WSCP.com. So it says very clearly, and Eric Baldwin posted this on November 30th, or November 29th, actually. He wasn't done when he posted this initially on the 29th. This is when he was playing. There were 41 people left at that point. Baldwin was doing well, and he figured that uh, there's a chance he's going to win this thing. He was uh, third out of 41 left, and there were 97 players. Now, before we go on here, remember, this is a satellite. I want to explain to the listeners who don't understand satellites very well how they typically pay. In fact, some of you may not even know what a satellite is. A satellite tournament is a tournament you're playing in order to win entry into another tournament that's larger. And they have those at the World Series all the time. I'm talking about the regular World Series. But they also have them online, where you're basically winning a seat. And the way these always pay is that they will pay the value of the seat you're winning, sometimes in a ticket to that event to where you can't even uh, use it for something else. Sometimes they'll pay in something called Lammers, which can be used for any tournament, but can't be redeemed for cash. That's how they do it at the World Series at the Rio, that if you win a satellite, they give you whatever that seat is worth in Lammers. And then they'll give you like a tiny bit of cash above that. So like uh, if you're entering a satellite for a 10K event, they'll usually give you something like 10000 in Lammers if you win, plus $100 cash. But almost everything you get is in Lammers. And the Lammers there can only be used for any tournament there, but they cannot be redeemed for cash or used at cash games. Now, some people sell the Lammers. Sometimes they sell it at full value if people want to do a favor. But that happens like under the table. That's technically not supposed to happen. Online, when you win one of these things, uh, I'm not sure the way it's handled on WSOB.com. What they would do on PokerStars is they'd actually give you uh, T-dollars, which is the tournament dollars, and those could be used to enter any tournament on Stars. It's kind of like Lammers. But what do they do if there's uh, an odd amount of money left that doesn't exactly add up to the amount of the seats you're playing for plus a tiny bit of cash? What if there's like some middling sum of money? Like what if there's $5,000 left over? Well, that actually gets paid out in cash. And that's the way, that's the very standard way they handle tournaments is they will hand out seats or lammers that can be equivalent to that seat or tournament dollars equivalent to that seat for as many as they can, depending on how many people enter. And then whatever remains in the prize pool, they hand out as cash, which is always less than what the seat's worth. So like a, like a 10K seat, maybe they will hand out, uh, Three 10K seats and then uh, $4,000 if, if what they have to give out is 34000 What they have to give out, of course, has to do with how many people enter. The more people enter, the more money they have to uh, give seats through. So as I said, in the case where they've collected 34000 in, in a 10K satellite, then they'd give away three seats plus uh, $4,000. That's an example. So in this one, $9,700 or whatever it is and you know, prizes, one seat – for $10,000, and that's it. And they can give it out in just tournament dollars or just give you a direct seat into the event because this is all online stuff. This is an online satellite to a mostly online event. So they could just give him a direct buy-in into the World Series main event, and that would be fine. So now that I've explained this, listen to this. They ended up with 22659 in the prize pool because even though there were only 97 players... 
if you add the rebuys and add-ons to the whole thing, which are also for $100 each. So there was 93 rebuys and 59 add-ons. Then you have uh, well over uh, 200 entries to the whole thing. So what they would normally do in a situation like this is give out two seats plus a little bit of cash. So if the prize pool was 22659 like they claimed, they would make it two 10K seats plus 2659 or maybe two 10K seats and $100 cash plus uh, uh, 2459 in cash for the third place. And the first prize, that first prize was over $22,000. Ah. How did that happen? How does that happen? So why one place paid for $22,659? Why the entire prize pool going to one place? That That's totally non-standard for a satellite. Well, it was a glitch. It was a mistake. I don't know how it happened from a technical standpoint. It was a mistake. It was not intended. Okay? So Baldwin was third out of 41, obviously thinking I've got a decent shot to win this. Of course, it was more likely he was not going to win than win because the, the 41 players left and he's third. But still, he's, he's seeing at that point that he's got a decent shot. And he wants to know that he's really going to get paid what they're claiming. He doesn't want the situation where he thinks he's playing for 22K and then uh, he wins it and then he only gets 10K. So the real reason he needs to know this is not just so he's not disappointed later. It's so he has to make sure that he finishes first. Because in these satellites, what happens is once the money is hit, it's over. It's not like a regular tournament where you play till the end. Once you've gotten to the point where it pays, once everybody's getting the same thing, I mean, you've got to play it through the guy who's getting the partial thing. Once you pass the partial guy and he busts, then if everybody else is getting the same prize, first, second, third, all getting the same prize, then you stop playing. There's no point. So that's how these always work. So he needs to know, are you really only paying one spot? Because I've got to really make sure not to finish second. Whereas if you're paying three spots where two get a full prize and third gets a partial, I don't care if I'm first or second. I just got to make sure not to finish fourth or, or third. So, of course, he's got to know this. And he, being a very experienced tournament player, knows this is super non-standard. So in the middle of the tournament, with 41 left, he tweets out at WSOPcom, how will this tournament be payout? Time sensitive. So that's, that's a good question. <laughs> How will it be paid out time sensitive? That's, that's a great question. I'd, I'd want to know the same thing too. So, uh, he didn't get an answer, unfortunately. Nobody, uh, responded to him. He got a few randoms on Twitter, but that's not what he's looking for. He's looking for an answer from the World Series. Of course, they don't answer. Now, you, I guess you can say maybe they weren't around then. They can't, they can't be there 24-7 to answer this. They can't be out the Twitter right away. So, okay, fine. They didn't answer this in time. Which, I mean, this they should have someone there to see this and jump on it. But uh, let's be realistic. That's, a lot of companies will not respond that fast. So I won't ding them there. So the tournament finished, and, and lo and behold, uh, Eric Baldwin was the winner. So Eric Baldwin assumed, okay, I, they didn't answer me. Said the payout was twenty two k. I I it, it I mean, it's the normal way satellites work, I should have gotten just a 10K seat, but whatever. It said that's the prize pool. I want my 22K. Well, what ended up happening? They wrote to him on December 1st. Dear Eric, last night, tournament number 4545597, that tournament, was misconfigured, which I believe, that part's true. As a result of this, we have deducted your bankroll, 22659, and credited you with the correct first place winnings, a $10,000 main event ticket that can be used for the main event on December 13th. 
Isn't that nice? Isn't that nice? <laughs> so he, they don't answer while he's playing. He wins, and then they go, yeah, um, you know that 22,659 you won? Uh, we're taking it away. We put it in your account. It's gone. It's, it, we're taking it away. It's out of your account. And uh, you get a 10K main event seat, though. You got that. That's what we intended for you to win. That's not what we said you would win. That's not what the system said you were playing for. But that's what we are intending for you to win. That's what we meant for you to win. So that is what you will win. Sorry. Presumably, then, they gave the 10K to the second-place finisher, who must have been really thrilled, who probably thought he was getting nothing. And then uh, the third-place finisher probably got the $2,000 whatever remainder, and I'm sure he was also thrilled about the whole thing because I'm sure that he was believing that he was going to walk away with... Zero point zero. So two guys I'm sure were thrilled about this. Uh, Eric Baldwin obviously was not very happy. So he wrote back, uh, do you guys stand by this as a response? Because he thought maybe it was just some monkey that was answering him at the support. But maybe maybe if he tweets this to at WSOP.com or at WSOP, that they're going to give an answer that... uh, is more favorable to him, which I don't blame him for trying to take this public. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to shame them into doing the right thing. Well, they did not answer. There's no response. So I don't know what ended up happening here. But uh, it looks like they may screw him. And uh, I would really suggest, and I'm sure he's going to, that he would go to Nevada Gaming because they, they can't just make this decision unless it's legal. And I would think that putting... The uh, they're putting the prize pool down in this fashion. Uh, that that's what they have to pay. That they can't say, well, we meant the prize pool to be this way. I mean, you can do this with any tournament because there is no law. A satellite has to be that way. There is no convention of satellites that uh, the satellite absolutely has to pay out seats in this fashion. That's the way they traditionally have been. But it doesn't have to be this way. That satellite technically could have been the way it was. It would be non-standard, but it could be. I don't think there's any kind of law on the books that requires them to be this way. So for them to say the prize pool is this, have people play because they're trying to win the one winner-take-all prize, and then have it end up that they're giving this out to... uh they're going to take away the money from the first place finisher and, and then pay it as they intended to pay originally. That's horrible. That's really horrible. In fact, uh, Baldwin can say that, yeah, he ended up winning, but that uh, he took a lot of risks to be able to accumulate chips and that uh, you know he took risks that, that others may not have because he really thought it was winner take all and that he earned this, and he did. In fact, even the people who busted couldn't make this claim that they thought it was winner take all, and they could demand their buy-in back. They couldn't demand a prize. But uh, I would even see a, a, I would even see some justification for some people, or maybe all people, to get their buy-ins back. But at the very least, they have to stand by the prize. Now, what about second and third? Let's say let's say they honor his prize and let him keep the twenty-two k. Would second and third then have a claim to seats here, or second would second have a, a claim to a seat, and would third have a claim to that partial money? I would say yes, because when they entered, they were expecting 
that that was the way it was going to be. They weren't entering what they thought was a winner-take-all tournament. So it, actually, he would have a good point to complain, as would the second and third, if they did not get what they were presumably given. So who should lose here? Because you can't have everything. You can't have re- you can't have it where Baldwin gets 22k and the second and third get their prize. Then there's not enough money in the prize pool to cover it all. Well, the ones that should eat the money should be Caesars. Caesars screwed it up. They admitted it was a misconfiguration. This was not anyone taking advantage of a bug or a glitch or any kind of exploit. This was a misconfiguration on Caesars' part. And when Caesars makes that mistake and they screw up, then they should pay. Fortunately for Caesars, this is not going to cost them millions or hundreds of thousands. This is going to cost them uh, a grand total of uh, about $12,000 to make it right. That, that's, that's all it would cost if they wanted to pay the second and third place the money that they should have gotten and let Baldwin keep the money he won. That's all it would cost. So just do it. I mean, it's nothing. All they've done is piss people off. There's a lot of angry reactions in that thread that WSOP.com is acting unethically and perhaps illegally. Jay Smith, 84 poker, Jared Smith. I played with him a lot last year in the main event. We cashed for the same thing. He said, only thing to do here is pay second the seat and WSOP eats the difference, letting you keep what you won for first. That's basically what I said, except I think third should get their remainder too. They screwed it up. The tournament played out differently because they're screw up. It's absolutely not anyone's fault but theirs, but I doubt they take responsibility. I mean, that's pretty much what I say. <laughs> Me and Jared Smith, no matter, no, no wonder we finished with the same result. We, we think the same way here. Uh, Dylan's, some guy named Dylan said, uh, if they're taking 12k from him, they should do the 10k seat for second and remainder for third, but that fucks everything up because they were all playing to win. I said that too. What, what, what do you do about everybody else who didn't finish in first, second, or third? Since they took 12k, sounds like that needs to be paid out somehow regardless. Well, I'm, I'm sure that they paid it out, but uh, that they can't just, quote, fix it that way. I mean, this is really bad. Uh, a, name, a guy named uh, Daniel Buzgon, I don't know who he is, but uh, he responded, uh, WSOP, can you guys at least pretend to have a clue? You guys made the mistake. Everyone played the majority of the tournament as if it was winner-take-all because of your mistake. Own it. Either leave it be or pay second and third out of your pocket, not his. And then Katie Stone, who uh, is a pretty well-known uh, New Jersey player, she said, I'm very surprised, I guess I shouldn't be, though, that they actually took money out of the player's account. Yeah, that's really obnoxious. That's a good point. That It's it's one thing that before they pay out to go, whoa, 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 we messed this up. Uh, here's the way we're actually paying, which would still be wrong. But it's especially obnoxious to, like, a day or two later, go, uh, hey, sorry, buddy, uh, we're taking money out of your account. We're taking 22600 out of your account. Uh, we didn't mean to pay you this. I mean, that's, it's not like the, he was, it's not like he won 22,000 and they paid him 44,000 and they're like, hey, you got too much. Like they didn't pull an Eric Lindgren and just overpay him. This, this is, uh, where he got the money it said he was going for. He got the money that it said that it would be paid out that actually was according to the prize pool. So there was nothing that he shouldn't have received here. They misconfigured it, but once they misconfigured it, he played the tournament as the prize pool was set. And there was not excess money paid out beyond the prize pool. This wasn't like that. Uh, it's not like the prize pool was twenty-two thousand and it paid out as if it was two hundred twenty thousand. Then I could understand taking money back from people, going, "Look, this was uh, ten times the prize pool through a glitch, and uh, obviously you guys all knew that it wasn't really worth that much. We we have to confiscate it back." That would be justifiable. Uh, this is where the prize pool just wasn't distributed in the manner they intended to. But tough luck, they didn't set it up right. So the the right thing to do is to pay out to the people who expected to get seats from the places they finished to pay them and also let him keep the money. But they, for some reason, they don't want to do it. 
a guy named Thomas T. Bywington93. He's saying what I'm saying. Should have been two seats and cash for third. Did you play on the attention to winning a seat? You entered. Oh, no, actually, he's not agreeing with you. He's, he's saying, no, never mind. He does not agree with me. He said, you, you entered a satellite tournament expecting to win a cash prize. They all have the right to purge your account if they have to pay a prize pool correctly. No, 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 no. He started out okay, but then went into the weeds. The problem here is once you see they are not paying as you were expected, then you change your strategy. Especially he tried to bring it to their attention. Nobody's answering him. Things okay. Well, it's, it's got to be the way they're posting it. So he played it that way. He won it that way. They've got to pay that way. That's the way it was posted. They can pay extra. They just should not pay less. Jeremy Osmus, final tableist. Played with him before. Very nice guy. I know he's listened to this show before. He said, uh, players play based on the posted prize pool and payouts. To alter those after the tournament is over doesn't seem right at all. Shannon Shore, very well-known player, would second this. What a player t- to do if not make his her decision based upon posted payouts. The fact that someone fell asleep at the wheel at WSOP.com is something they'll have to deal with. Baldwin must be paid in full. Yeah. As he said, you're making your decisions based upon the posted prize pool. You, they can't say, well, we meant to this, so you can't do that. So this should definitely be a complaint to Nevada Gaming. And I think he'd win this one. I think they have to honor the way the prize pool says. If the prize pool says it's this, then they've got to stick to it. But how stupid. I mean, even if they can get away with this, you look so shitty when you do this. This just makes them look like uh, they, they screw people. I mean, it's really obnoxious to grab money out of someone's accounts when they've done nothing wrong. It's not like he was cheating and they confiscated his money. They, they posted the prize pool is a certain way. He wins the prize and they take it away because they, quote, didn't mean to post that. I mean, it's insane. So they're really throwing away PR. They're getting, they're buying themselves bad PR by saving uh, 12K. Congratulations. Really morons running this thing. No matter who's in charge, it's like morons are running this. I don't get it. Where, where's Danielle Burreal? She seems like she's like semi-competent. Like, how is she standing behind this? Why, why is she not intervening and saying this is insane? Why, why don't you have people in charge there that can see this is dumb? I can see this isn't much money, and the company can eat it. Now, maybe someone doesn't want to get in trouble. Maybe this money has to come from somewhere, and it's not as simple as just issuing a customer service credit. So even if the company can afford it, then it has to be justified to the higher-ups why uh, $12,000 has to be fished out of somewhere to pay this. So that actually makes it uh, a little tougher. It's kind of like, uh, it's going to sound weird, but I'm going to give a comparison. When I was younger and a fast food place would screw up my order, and I'd go through the drive through and I'd come home and see it was screwed up, and I'd be really pissed off that uh, I can't eat the food because it's completely messed up. Uh, sometimes if I was pissed off enough, I would go back and just like, I, I just like outright demand a refund. And they wouldn't want to give it to me. They'd give all these excuses why they can't give me a refund. We'll remake it for you. I don't want to remake it. Just, just give me a refund, I'd tell them. And I'd get all these excuses why no, 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 we can't. Well, the reason it's no, 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 we can't is because they've already recorded that transaction in the cash register. And if the cash register comes up short, obviously it looks like they stole. So then they have to explain to their boss why the cash register is coming up short, why they're giving a refund after the fact to somebody because they screwed up their order. And then, of course, uh, someone's going to get in trouble. So 
because of course the food is, is already gone. They've they already given the food, but they gave food that was screwed up food, and then they have to refund somebody. So they don't want the boss to see this. It's not so much they don't want to help you, or they don't want the boss to see that they helped you. Sometimes it's just they're stubborn assholes, but but usually when it's, this happens, it's because they don't want any kind of paper trail that they screwed up, and they don't want to lose their job over it or, or be disciplined in some way. So what I discovered, and this is at a pretty young age, what I discovered was that the better approach was to go there and ask for some kind of food concession because the boss does not monitor how many burgers they're giving out, they don't, unless it's like an egregious difference. But if, if, if a few burgers disappear, if a few tacos disappear, a few chicken strips disappear, uh, they, they don't really pay attention to that. They're not counting that there. So the, these employees know that late at night and they know that they can replace food without the boss ever seeing that there was a screw-up. Whereas if there's even a small difference in the cash register, the, the boss will always see that and it has to be justified in some way. So what I would find is I'd, I'd, I'd sometimes call in or, or I'd go back the next time and I'd tell them about it and I'd say, can you give me my order free this time? Or uh, can you give it to me next time when I come in? Whatever it is, where they're, they're replacing it with food. And then they would uh, always agree to that with only a few exceptions. Why? Because they can do it without any kind of uh, uh, any kind of situation where there's a, a paper trail that they get in trouble. Or even if I notice it while I'm there. Like like what happened to me at Smashburger when I said, you know, when it kept being wrong over and over, and I said, hey, can you give me a, a shake for all my trouble here? And they refused. That was because there, was, there were assholes in charge there, and the, the, the main asshole in charge has been fired. But I asked for that because I was thinking that I don't want to get anybody in trouble, even though they kind of deserved it. I, I wanted to give them an out to where they could give me this shake for my trouble while their boss will not notice, obviously, a shake was gone. Also, the boss, by the way, said they should have given me the shake, and they should have given me more than the shake. But, but that aside, I gave them the chance to not even have this exposed. That's what I was trying to do. And I tried to even explain this to them. I tried to even say, look, you, know, you just, just give me the shake, uh, and I'll forget this happened. But... Uh, in most cases, they will. If I told them, give me the amount a shake normally costs out of the cash register, they'd say no, because then they have to justify where that money went. So this may be the situation here, that, that uh, whoever's in charge kind of agrees that this is what should be done, but then they've got to say, where did this $12,000 come from? They have to ask whoever's above them, is this okay? But it's stupid. That's, that's why there's got to be some leeway here. There's got to be some leeway. And uh, companies understand when they're screw-ups. As long, like if this cost millions of dollars, then heads would probably roll. But uh, something twelve thousand dollars. No Caesars isn't thrilled to lose twelve thousand dollars over this mistake. But uh, mistakes happen. You operate enough time, mistakes are going to happen. Money gets paid, and they can explain it. They can explain the misconfiguration, and uh, yeah, there should be some sort of fund in place or something like this that uh, can be given out at discretion for customer service issues. Because I'll tell you where there is not regulation. There is not regulation as to uh, extra money that can be paid out to make things right. There's very little regulation, that sort of thing. There is a lot of regulation about uh, when money isn't paid, when customers get screwed in some way, when customers think they should be paid and, and aren't. There's a lot of regulations dictating when the casino has to pay them and when they don't. But there aren't many regulations about giving something extra. That's pretty much allowed because it's it's customer friendly. It's something that is for the customers, not against the customers. It's not it's not going to ever bring on complaints that they're giving away too much money. 
there's probably a few regulations about that, but there's not many, and there's ways around it too. So even if they couldn't technically give a cash prize, they can say, okay, well, we'll make you a one-time sponsored player for the next World Series event. Something like that. Like, uh, there's always ways around it if they want to give something away. I can't tell you the exact motivation here, but it's idiotic. I mean, I, I don't even know how this mistake happened. That's a total fail. How does this even occur? Why is this not auto-configuring? This really looks like a human being entered this here and it hit the wrong button. I'm guessing the wrong button they hit was like they hit cash game instead of satellite. But but how is there not something where you're actually just clicking satellite? Like, like if the word satellite's there, it shouldn't even let it be configured this way. It's, it's so bizarre. But I, I bet the software is so crappy. This isn't really World Series' fault because they don't that's not their own software. 88 gives them the software. But this, my guess is that they would type in the name of the tournament and they typed in WSP satellite, blah, 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 blah. And then they have to click a button. You know, is this a satellite or is this a cash tournament? And they probably clicked the wrong button saying cash tournament. But then why is it winner take all? See, that, that would make sense if it was like a nor- if it played out like a normal tournament of a top 10% wins. How do you have a winner take all tournament? That's, a, that's the most bizarre part. Like how, how is that even a configuration option? Is there even such thing as a winner take all? And why would anyone click that? I don't know. It's, it's so weird. Could this be an outright bug? I don't know. I, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around how this happened, but as I've said before, if there is a way to fail, Caesars finds it, and once again they found it again, and then they try to fix the problem by making it worse. It's one of these things where the response to the problem is so much more harmful than the problem itself. Because the problem itself, it just, it, it costs them $12,000 and they actually look good at the end. Imagine if they said, this was misconfigured, but uh, as a gesture of goodwill, we're going to let you keep your prize, and we're going to play, pay second and third as intended in the first place. So second gets a seat, third gets 2000 whatever dollars, and then I bet Eric Baldwin would say, hey, look, isn't this cool? Here's the result. Everybody go, oh, sweet. World Series of Poker is great. World Series of Poker is generous. World Series of Poker does the right thing. Wow, what a class act. That's what you'd be getting back. It'd be great publicity. It is great publicity when you screw up and then you do right for your customers, when you eat it yourself. It's not like this happened to one individual that doesn't have a voice. I mean, the, from a PR standpoint, this is stupid. From a business, Forget what's right or wrong. From a business standpoint, this is stupid. Baldwin was 100% right here, and I hope he prevails. Let's see if he has any update about what happened. Of course, WSB.com mentioned nothing about it. They're just pretending it's not happening. <laughs> yeah, okay, so there's more here. I have an update on the end of the story, which I just found right now. Eric Baldwin, on December 2nd, somehow I didn't see this preparing for the show, but I see it now. On December 2nd, Eric Baldwin said, had a conversation with representatives from WSOP and WSOP.com. The official prize pool distribution has been paid as first place and second place ticket, third place cash, I was offered and accepted additional compensation, which I am more than happy with. Thank you to everyone who is passionate about the health and growth of the poker. I, it is my honest opinion that there are good people at WSP and WSP.com who share that passion. And then now we're getting a number of people who are uh, praising it, but then some who are cautiously praising it and kind of inquisitive, like Mike Timex McDonald, who asked, how much less than the stated first place prize did you accept? And 
That's a very good question. That was my thought, too. Um, Timex brings up a great point, and that was the first thing to my mind, that if he was offered any less than the ticket and the cash minus 10K, because he's getting a ticket, then he got ripped off. If they gave him, like, the ticket plus 5000 it's a big ripoff. Yeah, they lost money out of the whole thing still. They paid out more than the prize pool. But keep in mind, they already gave the second-place person the ticket. They already gave the third-place person the cash. I'm sure that's what they did with the money they confiscated from him. And they gave him the ticket already. So it's a matter of how much cash do you give him above that? The answer is the difference between what he won originally and $10,000. So you pay him 12000 whatever. Anything less than that, even 1000 less than that, is a complete ripoff. Even 100 less than that is a complete ripoff. It said he won 22659 The minimum he should have received was ten k plus 11000 or 12659 That's the minimum. And honestly, the, the best thing to do is not even give him the seat. Uh, just give him the 22659 cash and give the other people what they were supposed to get in the first place. That would have been the proper solution. It kind of sounds like here that he may have been talked into accepting less, but was told, hey, you know, we're going to eat this. It's uh, We didn't mean to do this. It was a mistake. How about we just give you uh, $7,000 more? I'm just making this up. He's never going to reveal it. And don't publish what we're giving you and come out and say everything's fine. Okay. Like maybe he just doesn't want the confrontation and the complaint in Nevada gaming. Maybe this is kind of like a, like a settlement. I, I have a friend who, uh, he won a lawsuit and he was very much in the right. He won a lawsuit and then the person he won it against was avoiding collection for years and years and years and years. And was very hard to collect from, very hard to find, and he actually got the judgment renewed, and then he finally found the person, and they, he had renewed the judgment after more than 10 years, and, and he, you know, he, he finally found the person, and they were working a regular job. And he filed the paperwork to garnish their wages. And he got a call from that person saying, oh, hey, hey, um, can you accept 60 cents on the dollar? And my friend's like, fuck no. You wouldn't. You, you didn't pay what you owed for over ten years. You've been dodging me. I'm not accepting sixty cents on the dollar. Now I'm. Now I've got you. Now you have no way out of this because I can garnish your wages and there's nothing you can do to stop it. Now I can get the whole judgment. I'm going to get it. The, the time to offer sixty cents on the dollar was the was the time before you put me through all this. Can you give me sixty cents on the dollar? Uh, this is kind of similar, you know. Like uh, it, it kind of looks like he would have won a dispute with gaming. And now, and then the World Series of Poker is like, hey, uh, did you want to accept less? Like maybe they gave him the the, the twelve thousand whatever and just told him just not to say. Maybe the agreement is he's he's got to accept this with, with the condition that he won't tell anyone. But why? Like it would be good PR if he said what what happened. Like, like if if they did offer the whole prize minus ten k and gave him the seat instead of that ten k, um, that, that would make WSP look great. This is a little bit weird. But he may have backed down because he was afraid that he was going to get nothing. And just when you think you're about to get screwed and then you only get partially screwed, sometimes it can seem like a victory. And that's a little bit sketchy. I mean, he's saying that there's good people at WSOP and WSOP.com. Okay, maybe, but then why don't the good people want it to be public how much they paid you? This should be a public – it's already a public matter, so the resolution should be a public resolution that looks great for everybody. It should not be a hush-hush thing 
where he's accepting less money and they don't want the word getting around he accepted less money. So he has to just say, I, I'm very happy with this. What the hell? I don't like this at all. No matter what happened, I don't like this. Even even if they gave him the full amount, I don't like this because uh, he should be able to say. Why is this a secret? They did. If they gave him the full amount, this should be nice. This should be something everyone praises. This should be, this should be great PR. So I think they don't want him to say because they gave him less. It's not a good ending. I thought it was a good ending until I read the end of that. All right. I don't know what the hell's going on these days. What is going on over there at the World Series of Poker? Why can't WSB.com do anything right? Why can't they act logically? Why don't they make any sense? Why does the poker world shake our heads in unison at some of the bizarre decisions they make? I mean, Bill Reaney is gone. It's like, you know, you know how sometimes like how Apple behaves in a really arrogant and uh, irresponsible and uh, condescending fashion, even though Steve Jobs, who kind of invented that whole culture, is dead and has been dead for years. It's like Steve Jobs is still alive somehow in Apple, in Apple's policy, in Apple's uh, basic customer service uh, practices. Steve Jobs still lives. Every time you talk on the phone to an Apple rep or you, you go into an Apple store, like a part of Steve Jobs is still alive there. Th- that's kind of how it feels like with Bill Reaney. It's like Bill Reaney is somehow still in charge of WSB.com, even though he's not. Even though he's totally gone, he has no power anymore. Somehow... The incompetence and the st- stupidity and the secrecy lives on. I mean, I can't, I, I don't understand this. It, I can't think of any justification for any of this. The whole way through. From beginning to end, I don't understand any of this. Okay, well, here's a disturbing story that disappointed me a bit about someone I liked. Uh, it's about Clayton Jang, who we had on this show. And if you remember, Clayton Jang was someone who had a very riveting story about losing 90K to a cheating scheme. And uh, it was in a game he wasn't even in, and also his friends had lost even more money. It was uh, He lost 90K through someone he was backing, and then his friends lost even more. And there was some guy in the game, this shady, dangerous guy who was said to have some... Uh, I don't know, organized crime connection, I forgot the story, but someone people were kind of afraid of uh, was allegedly cheating the game. And uh, and apparently the guy running the game was either in on it or was just kind of clueless and let the whole thing happen under his watch. And uh, anyway, uh, the, Clayton told us in the interview that the guy running the game admitted it to him, but uh, but couldn't do anything to make it right. And uh, a long time dragged the whole thing, and finally, uh, and then Clayton said he was getting threats. It was a very interesting story, and he told it all on Poker Fraud Alert Radio. And if you go back and listen to an episode from uh, a few months ago, forgot the exact date, you can hear Clayton tell the entire story. And some people afterwards said, hey, you know, Clayton seemed kind of gullible, and how, how could he stake someone to play in the game he doesn't know very well, and how does he know they're not in on it, and... Has he still know they're not in on it? And uh, there's a lot of things that were said that maybe he didn't uh, watch out for his own interests very well. But in general, he came off pretty likable. And he didn't have to come out and tell this story, which kind of made him look bad. He wasn't really expecting to get paid. He was just outing this game and outing this alleged cheater. And I thought that was noble, and I wanted to have him on the show because he was doing this on Twitter, and he wasn't a huge name in poker. He wasn't even a big name in poker. So I said, let me give him some publicity. I want this story to get out further. 
it was on two plus two, it was on Twitter, but I, I wanted it to be exposed to our listener base, which is, it doesn't always read two plus two or Twitter. So I put it out there and people enjoyed the segment. And in general, Clayton came off well and he was well liked by the poker fraud alert audience. So I was uh, sad to read that this uh, girl that he had staked now had a dispute with him and was claiming that he was acting unethically. He would not identify who this girl was when he was on this show. He said it was a girl who the uh, guy who was running the game told him was a really good player and would be a good person for him to back, which, to be honest, wasn't very smart of him to do. You, You should never back anyone you don't know. But nevertheless, he did it. He did say that he did not believe that this girl, which he didn't name at the time, was uh, doing anything wrong. He didn't think that uh, she was in on the scandal, that she was a victim just like him, and that he didn't have any animosity toward her. And even at the time he was on, I suggested, hey, do you, do you know for sure that he she wasn't in on I said he, re- he really didn't think she was. So... To this day, he does not believe it, from what I can tell. Something uh, has happened between the two of them, and it's come out who she is. So her name is Anna Antimony, and she is from New Jersey. I believe she is a professional poker player. She is known as Bonafide Anna, B-O-N-A-F-I-D-E Anna, on Twitter. On Instagram, she's Instagram.com slash Chipotless. C-H-I-P-O-T-L-E-S-S, kind of like Chipotle, but it's Chipotless. Hard to tell her age. She's not super young, but she doesn't look that old either. She was the one who Clayton had uh, backed in that game. Here's what she had to say about it. Now, again, let me let me bash 2 plus 2 a bit, because it's fun. Uh, she attempted to post this story on 2 plus 2, and uh, the post was deleted. <laughs> Why did they delete this post? Not because they had a problem with the content. They claimed she posted it in the wrong section. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, let me give you a tip at 2 plus 2. Let me tell you a tip here. There's a move function on vBulletin, which is the software you and I both use for our forums. If someone posts something in the wrong section, as they do on my site sometimes, you know what you do? You press the move button, and you move it to the right section. You don't delete the post. (laughs) So she took to Twitter to post about it. She wrote this. This is a recent story. November 18th, Clayton texts me saying he started a 2-5 and 1-2 game on an app and asked me to bring players for rakeback. We chat a bit about rakeback percentage, and I suggest he puts me in. Now, let me stop what she means by that. Let me, let me explain th- to you what that is trying to say, for those of you that don't really know this. That she, he is starting one of these app-based uh, clubs where you join, and probably Poker Bros, something like that. And uh, he asked her to recruit players and said, whatever they rake, I'm going to give you a piece of it. So it's not really rakeback. Rakeback means going back to the player. He, she means... Uh, get a piece, basically be an affiliate for him. That whatever she brings, she gets a piece of the rake. And then while they're talking about what percentage she's going to get, she's like, oh, and by the way, uh, can I join the game? And she said, he said, no pros. I tell him I would give action. So 
I guess Clayton was concerned that uh, he didn't want a good player like Anna in there just destroying everybody and just waiting for spots that they stupidly put their money in bad and just destroy everybody and the game dies. But the reason he doesn't want that is because uh, it's Clay- if it's Clayton's game, he wants a lot of rake to go around and uh, not just have uh, Anna come and wipe them all out and the game's over. So that's why he said no pros. He only wants to put people in the game who aren't that good. So he's saying, hey, Anna, do you know recreational players who will join this? And I'll give you a piece of the action, but I don't want you playing yourself. So when she said, I'll, gi- I'll give action, what she means is, I'm not going to sit here like a nit and wait till I flop sets and stack them. I'm going to, I will play in a more, uh, wild and aggressive style that it, it, it'll still win for me, but they'll enjoy it. That they're not going to see me as just this, uh, person who's just waiting, waiting, waiting to pounce on them. But by the way, that's kind of a form of what I did on Absolute Poker back in the day, where I was—I've told you guys about that. I was very brash and and very aggressive and played a, a crazy style, and uh, it was a winning style. But it was something that the fish enjoyed there. So she said she'd do that. So at that point, Clayton was receptive to it. He said I, he tells me I would love to stake you and to try to bring him some players. The next day, he texts, "Want to play tonight? I'll stake you. It's one k max. He won't cap my rebuys." And says, we'll settle on Mondays. Now, what he mean, what she means by that is that uh, the most you can put on the table is 1K. You can have more than 1K on the table, but only if you win. You, know, you can't buy in for more than 1K. But no matter how times you bust, you, you can keep rebuying, and I'll back you. So uh, I, I'm not going to restrict you that, like, let's say, you, buy, you lose 5K here. I'm not going to say, okay, you're done. You've lost 5K. You can just keep, you can just keep losing. <laughs> I'll let you – I trust you to play – your game and not worry about any kind of cap. And she said, every, and you can keep playing in this game and every Monday, uh, uh, you know, we'll pay each other what we owe. So he goes, so then, uh, she says, I play and I win 2,900. He texts me the next morning saying I'm a beast and invites me to a 1020 game on the app that day. I win 22,200. He texts me early Saturday morning acknowledging what a big night I had. So she's, she's very happy here that she, I'm not sure what their staking arrangement was, but that, uh, while being staked by him, she's won about 25K. And so obviously both of them are going to make some decent money here. He texts me early Saturday morning, acknowledging what a big night I had. Later at 3 p.m. that day, he texts me saying a player wants to play and if I'm free. I say no. We BS about non-poker stuff and the convo ends. Sunday I text him twice, but he doesn't respond. Monday I text him again. He tells me to call him. He starts the convo by asking if it's fair that he is down 80k from that old 2550 game. That's the cheating game I'm referring to. I say, of course not. We got cheated. He says, exactly. We got cheated. So I don't think it's fair that I have to eat the whole loss. Uh oh. So you see what he's saying here. He's saying, I don't think you're in on the cheating, but how come when we both got cheated, I was staking you and you got cheated? How come I've got to eat the money? Why don't we both equally take the loss here? I explained to him, she writes, that he was the one who dropped the makeup on his own accord, and many people I spoke to agreed that makeup should only be dropped 100% in a proven cheated game. So what she's saying is that uh, they already had an agreement that he's not going to make her pay him back anything out of future winnings if he stakes her again. So that uh, they, they're basically going to pretend the whole thing didn't happen and Clayton's just going to eat it, and they already had this agreement. Regardless, I did not ask him to clear my makeup. He cleared it on his own. So she's saying he volunteered to not, uh, that she didn't even have to argue her side. That he right away said, I'm not going to charge you for this. Even though we both got ripped off here and I was staking you, I'm just going to eat the whole thing. 
So he volunteered it back then, and now he's trying to take it back. He then also tries to say that the makeup was only clear if I was not involved in the cheating, basically grasping at straws, trying to make excuses as to why he's scamming me. Wow. So if she's saying that maybe that Clayton was implying that maybe she did have something to do with it. Which, to be fair, he doesn't know for sure she wasn't, but it seemed like up until that point that uh, he believed she wasn't. He knows very well that I was not involved in any way, and even told me how the person who, was dis- who discovered the cheating felt bad for me as I got it in good every time. He has zero proof of my involvement and is trying to think of any possible way to defend him stealing the money. He tells me he cleared the makeup out of frustration and does not think he would be staking me again. Or did not think he would be staking me again back then. I told him I understood his frustration, but he did end up staking me and can't just go back and reinstate makeup with zero discussion of it after he sees that I won. He then proceeds to tell me that he, quote, didn't think I would win that much, to which I responded, so you basically got greedy after I won a big amount and decided just to keep it? And he said, yes, yes, I did get greedy. Hmm. <laughs> At least he admitted it. That's already not looking good. I mean, you can kind of see his point, but once you've cleared the makeup, you've cleared the makeup. Once you've said, okay, I'm going to eat it, you can't go back to the person later and say, actually, now that I'm holding some money for you, I'm going to keep it. That's, that's crappy to do. If Clayton said to her at the time, look, I took a bath here, but the thing is, this is a joint thing, and I think we should split the loss 50-50, even though I was staking you, and uh, I'm not going to make you pay me, but if you continue playing under me uh, and you have profits, the first 40K of the profit should go to me before we do our split. I would actually agree with Clayton that that's probably fair. I would agree. I, I mean, th- th- there's some debate on that, because if he's staking her, he's staking her. That should mean she doesn't have any responsibility. But then again, um, it's only makeup. It's not money she owes. It's only makeup she, money she owes out of winning under future stakes. So I, I think that would be reasonable. But once he said you don't know it, you don't know it. So so basically what happened here was she won 25K, and he's like, oh, well, now maybe – now that she's won a big amount, maybe I can take some of that money back that I would have otherwise paid her. Now I'm going to change it retroactively and say, no, I'm not forgiving it. You can't do that because she wouldn't have played if she knew this. If, if, if Clayton said, hey, can you play for me? But yeah, suddenly the, the 40K makeup's back on, uh, she would have said, forget it. I'm not, I'm not starting 40K in the hole here. Uh, F you. So she played under false pretenses. That, that's why this is not valid. He then named two respected poker players and told me he discussed the situation with them and that one told him I owed the makeup and the other said he should call and discuss it with me. He kept saying, quote, I thought you were just on, I thought you were just on affiliate and checking out the games. I told you no pros were allowed. I said, Clayton, you asked me to play and clearly said you would stake me. If, if you think that I was only, quote, checking out the games and you were under the impression that I was playing on my own, which would mean I'm supposed to get the full 25k that I won. <laughs> Oops. See, when you're trying to make excuses of why you're right and then accidentally make a point for the other side, you can feel stupid, can't you? (laughs) That's a great point. If there was no stake here, then pay me the entire 25K. This wasn't even a stake. It was very obvious he knew he was in the wrong and throwing shit reasons at me, which all contradicted each other, to explain why he wasn't paying. He basically kept gaslighting me, wouldn't allow me to respond, and then hung up on me. After that, I texted him several times trying to reason with him and also asking him for arbitration. If he truly thinks what he did was right, he should have no issue having two outside parties make a fair decision. Kind of like attorney Eric Benzamokin. 
I also reached out to the two people he mentioned, and it turns out both were given incomplete hypothetical situations without details of all the facts. So he was saying there's two poker players who agree with me, two respected pros. And so she's like, hey, yeah, hey guys, uh, how did you agree with him on this? And they're like, oh, he didn't tell me all this stuff. He kind of just threw out some hypotheticals at us, and we agreed with him. But yeah, now that we hear the whole story, uh, you're totally in the right. <laughs> Also worth noting, she writes, one of the friends he asked advice from sent me a screenshot of Clayton reaching out early Saturday morning after my 25K win, after which Clayton texted to me to tell me of what a monster night I had. Once again, zero mention of any makeup. Remember, he then texted me again on that afternoon, asking me to play, knowing full well he was already going to keep the money. He essentially tried to free roll me one last time before Monday. That's a good point, too, that if this... He had already raised the possibility to one of those friends that he's going to keep this money claiming it's makeup and then says, hey, would you like to play a third time? And then I'll keep all the money. Like, <laughs> that was a free roll, but uh, she, like, that she, there was no way she'd come away with any profit here. She could lose, but uh, it, she'd be losing his money. He's basically getting her to play for him without any upside for her. Crappy. If this is the way it really happened, of course. I'm reading her account of it. We don't have his side. Following our Monday phone conversation, he ignored me for days. He finally responded, gaslighting me and refusing arbitration because, quote, he knows he is right and doesn't have the time. I told him what he was doing was straight up theft and he 100% knows makeup was clear when he offered to stake me. He has since completely ignored me. I have spoken to many people about this situation who all told me what he did was completely scummy and if he was if he has well-respected friends in poker, they should know, because nobody would want to do business with him knowing what kind of person he is. Since he himself just spent time outing a cheated game and exposing liars and theft, I truly believed, after giving him time to collect his thoughts, that he would see what he did was wrong and pay. Instead, he chose to reveal his true character and steal from me because of self-admitted greed. Arbitrating this fairly and getting paid what I'm rightfully owed is my goal. If Clayton does not do what is right, or if Clayton does what's right, I will update this post accordingly. But until then, people should know the truth. Below is a link to our whole conversation from start of the new stake until he told me he's keeping the money. I know it's a lot to read, but I want to completely be transparent and show everybody all the facts, which will support my side of the story. So I'm not going to read all that to you, but uh, yeah, um, it supports your side of the story. <laughs> so anyway, um, someone named... Uh, Wug, 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 named Ruben. I've, I've seen him uh, before. He posted, uh, no arbitration necessary. The amount you lost in the game where there's cheating going on isn't your problem, especially once he essentially states he's just going to have to eat that loss. He owes you 12550 for the app game wins, like it's a 50-50 stake. I hope you get your money and move on. And she retweeted that. I mean, wug, 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 wug is right. Well, we have a happy ending to this. A day later, after she outed this, she wrote, Update, Clayton has reached out to me and paid and apologized. Okay, so good, he did the right thing. Now, it's possible he did the right thing because this was outed, and he realized this was going to ruin his rep in the poker world, and that people weren't going to work with him in the future. So that could have been part of the motivation, and it's also possible that he thought about it and was like, you know what, I'm wrong. <laughs> I screwed up, I was just still pissed about being cheated. You could tell when he was on here that he was still very disturbed about what happened. And I don't blame him for being mad about that and losing all that money to cheaters. And maybe part of him is like still a little suspicious that Anna was in on the whole scam. The 
it seems like deep down he doesn't really think she was, but maybe like a little part of him suspects that. And he kind of felt like a sucker that he ate the whole thing at the time. And now she's winning all this money and there's no makeup. And like, I can see in his mind how he feels this is wrong when they're doing so well under this stake, why she doesn't offer to remove some of the pain from this, uh, cheating situation from the early, earlier in the year to kind of split it between both of them. But, you know, a deal is a deal. And if she is playing, believing she is playing under zero makeup, if she agrees to play thinking that she is playing under zero makeup, then she's playing under zero makeup. That's it. Even if he made a bad decision for himself, even if he agreed to something or offered something that was not equitable, even if the fair thing to do was for them to split it or at least split it where she's in makeup, if he said she was not in makeup and she he staked her in the future not in makeup, then she's not in makeup. There's no question. It's not even like 1%. It's a, there's no question. I can understand how he feels, but as far as who is right and wrong here, it's clear that this Anna Antimony, whoever she is, is in the right. So it's good that the next day he paid. It would have been better if he paid before this was outed because you always have to wonder, did they pay because they were outed or did they pay because they were wrong? And usually it's because they were outed. And that's why I always say out the scammers because that's what gets them to pay quickly. The conventional thinking is if I keep quiet about this, then there's a higher chance they're going to pay me because once I out them, they're going to be pissed and they are going to hold it against me and they're out of spite not going to pay me. It's, it's really the opposite. It's the opposite of what, I, what it feels, that the squeaky wheel gets the grease and that uh, scammers love secrets. I'm not calling Clayton a scammer here. I'm just saying that in general, people who are scammers or other uh, otherwise engaging in wrongdoing, they love secrets, meaning that Nobody gets to see what they're doing. And once you shine a light on it, then they are forced to choose between continuing to screw people or save their reputation somehow. That is often the motivation. Now, uh, you always have to consider everything before outing someone. Like if you think they might change their mind, if you think they're going to make a good faith attempt to pay you, or if, let's say it's a, a friend and the friend you know is just flat broke and they're in a bad spot and that they'll eventually pay you when they get some money. And you don't want to create a public spectacle about a friend. You know, Even if you're pissed at how they handle it, you don't want to do this to them. And uh, I've, I've had a few people that screwed me that I said nothing about, not because I thought that that was going to get them to pay me faster, but just for whatever the situation was, I... Uh, I was willing to be quiet and let them do the right thing. And, and believe it or not, uh, almost all of them did. Almost all, And that's uncommon, but it was because the, the ones that happened to, or the ones that happened with were ones I loaned money to or did something that uh, where they would have owed me money if uh, something went wrong, like you know, we split a bed or whatever that, that was on my account and they lost. But whatever it is, uh, I, I would uh, do this because I trusted them not to screw me. And I, of course, I'd be annoyed when it would turn out they would owe me the money and then wouldn't be able to pay. But uh, provided it wasn't malicious, like, I'd say, okay, if I thought enough of this person to uh, pay me, and if I think that once they're back on their feet, they'll pay me, then I'm going to give them a chance to. Or if it's some random, who I usually wouldn't put myself in that spot with anyway, then I'd be much more willing to out them because I would think that... Uh, not even just a random, like someone I, just, I don't have a close relationship with, and I'll say, okay, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I have to out them. But 
if it's somebody who uh, I, I think will pay me when they actually get money, then I'll give them a chance. And that and those, so those people have made it right. But aside from that, you're not going to get paid. So it's a good chance if Anna didn't bring this up, she wouldn't have gotten paid. But maybe he would have calmed down and told her, okay, never mind, here's the money. It's also not a huge sum of money. 12000 whatever. It's not chump change, but it's not a huge sum. So that's the other thing is uh, it's possible he would have just paid it anyway, even just to have her as a stake horse in the future. Obviously, he was impressed with her play because she, she was beating down those games at such a high rate. Yes, in the short term, but like he had heard she was a good player. Then they got cheated, so that didn't say much. He, either way, if she's good or not. But then he tried staking her again, and she was killing it. So he's like, okay, well, whoever told me she was a, right, a good player was right. So maybe he wants to stake her in the future. <laughs> maybe he's like, okay, well, I, I want to work with her again. I'd, I'd rather just pay her the 12K. Or maybe, maybe, his relationship, maybe his reputation, maybe both. Maybe he just decided it was the right thing to do. Who knows? But I'm glad it had a happy ending. I'm glad I didn't have to come on and say, hey, you know that uh, Clayton guy we had on here? Um, it turned out that uh, he was a piece of crap. At least, at least he paid. A happy ending. A rare happy ending to this sort of thing. Okay, so uh, let, let's move on. Pennsylvania has both online slots and online poker. The online poker they have is actually PokerStars. That's the only online poker they have is PokerStars PA. And then they have online slots as well. So how much are the online slots worth to the companies versus the poker? Which is better to have? Well, I, I think you know. Obviously, it's the slots are much more lucrative than the poker, but by how much? And I didn't know. I knew that slots are better, but I didn't know how much. And then when I found out, uh, it was pretty eye-opening. And I found out courtesy of uh, Jess Wellman, who tweeted this out today. And uh, I'll tell you that uh, when I found this out, it was like, okay, I, I see why they're not putting a lot of effort anymore into getting legalized online poker, and that at best it's going gonna, it's gonna to ride along. Here's what Jess Wellman tweeted out. For those wondering why states aren't pursuing online poker, Pennsylvania netted $5.6 million in online poker tax revenue in its first year of operation. Okay, that doesn't sound bad. It's not great by any means. But they, Pennsylvania, the state, got $5.6 million in tax revenue, meaning the money that came into the state for online poker operating through PokerStars. So that's okay for the state. It's $5.6 million they wouldn't have had otherwise. But it's not really exciting. Last month, the state raked in $21.8 million in slot tax in a week Online casino produced what poker did in a year. Wow. That's pretty impressive. I mean, it's not identical numbers, but it's very close. Like, that's pretty much the situation. That every week they make around five point something million through online slots, the state, in tax. The state takes a year to make the same for poker. So online slots in Pennsylvania are worth 50 times what poker is worth. So if you are in a state government, if you're a legislator at one of these other states, 
you know, Pennsylvania's already legalized online poker, so there's nothing to do there. But if you're a state considering legalizing online gambling, um, what do you want? Do you think you want to legalize online slots or online poker? It's obvious. And online sports betting, by the way, that, that will bring in a lot of money too. So you think you want sports betting and slots and other casino games, or you think you want poker? If the slots are 50 times more lucrative, which one do you think you want? Should you even bother with poker? I mean, the 5.6 million, it's, it's not nothing, but it, there's, there's a headache with it. You've got to write all the regulations. You've got to deal with any kind of complaints. There's got to be oversight of it. There, there's costs to having online poker to the state. The state has to oversee the whole thing. So who knows after all that how much money they really make. They, they take in $5.6 million in tax revenue, but then they have to spend money regulating it. So is it worth putting the time and effort and money into regulating online poker if it is making one-fiftieth of what the slots are making online? Or do you just not bother with it? Is it just a headache you don't need for a very small bump in revenue? Well, I'm thinking if the states pay attention to this, they may come to that conclusion. They may eventually decide, you know what, the poker is just not worth it. We will legalize online sports betting. We will legalize online slots, online blackjack. Any kind of casino game online, cool. Sports betting, cool. Poker, not so cool. It just doesn't make enough. Now, some states may say, once we've got the sports betting and slots going anyway, why not add poker? Yeah, it's a little bit more of a pain, but once we've got it all established, we still need a gaming commission. We still need to regulate the whole thing so we can have the same body regulating it. We just have to write some initial regulations. We have to deal with a few uh, consumer complaints. Other than that, uh, it's pretty much free money, so why not add that too? So I'm not saying that online poker legalization is dead. I'm saying that it's got to be last priority at this point. It's fallen way behind slots. It's fallen way behind sports betting. It just is not producing the money. Now you may ask, why would that be? How come it's making so little and yet poker stars made so much if poker really doesn't uh, generate much money? I'm talking about poker stars prior to 2011 before it got out of the U.S. market. How is it making so much money? Well, first of all, poker was more popular then. But second, they were serving a worldwide audience. Pennsylvania online poker is serving only Pennsylvania. It's a much, much smaller player pool at a time when poker is not as popular. Now, there is perhaps an upside, and that is once the states can cooperate and have a bigger pool, even though the states will all have to share the revenue, this may bring in more players because action makes action in poker. Most people don't want to sit at an empty table and wait. If you open up a poker client and it doesn't have your preferred game and limits, if it's just zero 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 zero, you're not going to be the first one to sit there and wait, unless you're a shark just waiting for anyone to sit with you. So if games are already running, then you're much more likely to play. So if these states all combine into one big site, then this will produce more action per state. I mean, I'm certain of that. So... Once that all gets going, that might increase the revenue, but it's never going to increase by a factor of 50. It's always going to lag behind the slots. It's always going to lag behind the casino games and the sports betting. They're simply more popular. In the case of the slots, it's much more lucrative just because uh, 
the, the house edge is much bigger than they're getting out of a poker rake. In the case of sports betting, it's just there's a lot more of it. It appeals to a much wider audience than poker. So poker's going to have to be an afterthought everywhere. It's, it, the days of online poker being considered by states by itself are probably over. And that's different than it used to be. Back in 2013, 2014, 2015, everyone was thinking of poker because sports wasn't possible, and some states didn't didn't want to have online casinos. Some of them said, you know, we're not going to have online casinos. Uh, we don't like the idea of that. But online poker, okay, fine. And sports betting wasn't even legal. Remember, sports betting wasn't legal in any state but Nevada until somewhat recently. But now it's a completely different situation. Now when the states think online gambling, they think, okay, when can we get sports betting? When can we get online casinos if we want that? We, poker is going to be an afterthought, and it may ride along with these things. The fact that these things are, have been proven to be much more lucrative may not be that bad of a thing because it can be a motivating factor to get online gambling at all in those states. And once that's legalized, then adding poker is much easier than starting off with poker only. And I've said that this has been a big barrier to entry, that uh, there's not much money they're going to get out of it for a lot of effort and a lot of uh, potential political ramifications. So now they can add something that's lucrative and then ride along the online poker. So this may be good for online poker, but it also would explain why online poker is not something being pursued by itself by states. You're not going to have... Any states going forward, I believe, that are just going to legalize online poker and nothing else. I think it's going to be they legalize various forms of online gambling and poker or nothing. I think we've seen the last of states only legalizing online poker. Maybe I'll be wrong, but that's what I think. I think that this is what Jessica Wellman is showing us. Like, think about it. If you were in charge of a state legislature, would, would you go after the thing... That is making one fiftieth of the other thing. Would you say no? I don't want online slots. I do want online poker, even though slots are making fifty times as much for the state. Why would you say that? Maybe as a poker player, you can say, "Well, I have no respect for slots, and I do respect poker." But that's not the way legislators think. They're not poker players. They don't think like poker players. They just think, "Okay, how do we get tax revenue, and what is the impact on our citizens?" And most of them see it all as just gambling. Unlike what the PPA tried for years, that poker isn't gambling. No, it is. It's skilled gambling, but it's gambling. So they just see it all as gambling. So they, they don't care if people lose it to poker or if they lose it to the to a slot machine. As, as far as legislators see it, it's all a situation where problem gamblers are going to lose their money. And if they're okay with that, then they can do this for revenue. If they're not okay with that, none of this will exist at all. So I hadn't really thought of online poker legalization in that way, like that is just not going to happen on its own. But yeah, it's not going to happen on its own. So if you want to follow Jessica Wellman, she brings up a lot of good points on her Twitter. She's been in the industry a long time. She's had various roles. She's not really a poker player. She's played a little poker, but she's been more of like a um, a behind-the-scenes gambling industry figure, including poker. She's uh, at Jess Wellman. That's with one L, J-E-S-S-W-E-L-M-A-N, Jess Wellman. And uh, she's a good follow. Okay, moving on here. Let's talk about the coronavirus. So I'm sure you've heard record death numbers, record new case numbers are coming in this week. And there's really no way to sugarcoat this or explain it 
in any way, but this is bad news and this is going to continue. And uh, it's sad. I don't think it was very preventable. Some people are saying, oh, if we only wore masks more. No, look, look at the states which are getting hit the worst. Like Illinois, they've had very strict mask mandates and they're really suffering over there. I've said before on the show, I'll say it again, I've been saying it on Twitter, I've been saying it on the forum, the problem with overemphasizing masking is that it leads to people doing stupid things. It leads to people believing the masks protect them and that they're pretty much... Uh, anti-COVID supermen as long as they have a mask on. It's almost like in the, the, great, the Greatest American Hero. Remember that show when the guy would put on that uh, red suit and then he would have superpowers? They're, they're kind of like That's how a lot of people feel with a mask on, that they have uh, superpowers to avoid COVID and they don't have to worry much anymore. Even if you don't engage in super reckless behavior, you think, well, okay, I wouldn't want to go to the supermarket uh, normally, but if I've got this mask on, okay, I feel safe here now. And there's something to be said for keeping people scared so they don't engage in reckless behavior. That's uh, a basic. That's uh, a basic psychological element of all, even semi-intelligent life forms. That the rats have demonstrated being able to do that. Most animals have demonstrated being able to stay away from danger once danger is demonstrated to them. Fear keeps them away from danger. And uh, the mask somewhat removes the fear because of the way they've been portrayed by the U.S. media. So between them and the anti-maskers who won't wear masks in the first place, we've, we've got a problem. And this is just super contagious. And with people going to places like supermarkets and uh, other allowed places to go indoors that are deemed essential... This is going to spread. This virus doesn't say, well, the, the supermarket's an essential service, so I won't infect anybody here. The, the virus doesn't say that. The virus will try to infect as many people as it can. It doesn't matter where you are, what you're doing, what the reason is for what you're doing, and whether it's a good reason or a bad reason. It, it doesn't care whether you're at an unnecessary party or at the supermarket. It, it'll get you if it can get you. So that's an important thing to know. And uh, you shouldn't try to assign blame, is what I'm trying to say. And if you do, you're going to talk yourself into sounding like a big hypocrite. So uh, if you try to say, oh, if, if only we didn't have President Trump, th- this would be under control. No, it wouldn't. If only these idiot Republicans who are refusing to wear masks, just all masked up, this wouldn't be happening. Yes, it would. If only we had stronger mask mandates, this wouldn't be happening. Yes, it would. The way the U.S. is, the, the yeah, yes, if we were to lock down everything, and I mean everything, to where nothing's essential, you just can't go out, then there'd be a lot of chaos. But if we could do that, which nobody would go along with, by the way, there's no way we'd get compliance here. But if somehow there could be compliance, yeah, that would bring down the numbers. There'd also be a lot of problems. You need to have to close down hospitals. You'd have to really just close down everything from the outside, not let people into supermarkets, deliver them, deliver everybody food in a way that nobody comes into contact and set up harsh punishments for anybody who visits each other, even family. I mean, they, this is just all not feasible. I'm not even advocating this. I'm saying that would have been the only way really to handle this because in a country like the U.S. where people 
tend to be distrusting a government and valuing their freedom and even people who claim to want to go along with what the government says in reality and private will go do their own thing. We're seeing that with a lot of politicians who have been proven hypocritical who say to do one thing and then they do another. In a country like this, you're not going to see everybody acting in the interests of the country as a whole. You see this in some countries in Asia where the culture is different. In the U.S., you're not going to see that from the left or the right. Too many selfish people, too many people who just do what they think is best for them, not what's best for everybody. And that's just the way it is, and that's reality. So a different president, different policy, this is not going to help. Now, there were individual things that were done that have worsened things. The people refusing to wear masks have probably worsened things. The media making it so political that masking became equal to acting responsibly and saving lives to where people over-rely on it, that, that's also been da- damaging, and that doesn't get much press, but it should. Anyway, the numbers are getting pretty bad. We have been seeing consistent death numbers per day in the 2700s, 2800s, 2900s, getting close to 3000, just like we did in the worst days of April, except most of that back then was concentrated in New York and the general New York City area, like Connecticut and uh, northern New Jersey. Whereas now, it's spread out everywhere. Now, there are tons of states having a big, big problem. So nowhere is having as bad of a problem as New York had at its worst point, but we now have a lot of places with a very bad or at least somewhat bad problem, and it's all over the country, which makes the numbers overall worse. Now, don't look too much at the new cases because the ability to test and identify new cases is much greater today than it was in the spring. So whatever numbers they show in New York, and I mentioned this last week, there's actually been a lot more overall cases in New York because they were very much undercounted in the spring. The deaths, I don't think, were overcounted because or undercounted because those they were able to test after the fact, after people died. But uh, the cases, there were a lot of people who just could not get tested, who knew they had it and were not allowed to get a test. A lot of people who would have tested if the testing availability was the same as it is today back in April. So you can forget comparing those numbers of April to now as far as new cases. But deaths, you know, deaths are deaths, and uh, we are up to the numbers in the very worst days of April. And as I said, these are spread out now. And since the caseload is higher, because the, the testing has been available for quite some time now, so we've definitely seen a huge spike. We are seeing a high, the highest number of new cases, at least since the testing has been uh, accessible. And by the way, it's still not all that accessible. It still needs to be more accessible, as I found out when I was trying to book tests for Ken Scaler. But even with the accessible tests as they exist now, uh, the, the numbers are way higher than they were before. And since they're increasing every day, and since deaths lag behind new case trends by about two weeks, because you don't, most people don't just die on the spot from COVID. Most people, it takes about two weeks or so, sometimes more. So when there's a spike in new cases, the spike in deaths happens about two weeks later. So since we're at a higher spike in new cases than we were two weeks ago, you can expect the deaths to increase in two weeks. So who knows how high it could be? It could break 4,000. Who knows what the deaths are going to be per day two weeks from now. It's going to not look good. And this is something you have to prepare for. 
in various ways. What do you mean prepare for it? Well, number one, be careful not to get COVID. This is a time you really don't want it because the hospitals are getting more and more full. I know they built these auxiliary hospitals that they then closed down because they didn't need them when the first uh, wave of cases kind of died down. It never disappeared, of course, but uh, when it was not as bad as it was in April, they closed down these makeshift uh, secondary hospitals. But I, I think it's time to bring them back. I don't know why they're not bringing them back. And they had them already, and you, presumably they could bring these back online pretty quickly. So why they're not doing this yet, I don't know. There has been nobody turned away who's been told to go home and die, like what happened in Italy in the spring. But there are hospitals that are full that are sending people to other hospitals. And uh, there's some counties that worry that people are going to leave and go to neighboring counties. So counties that have room are afraid that there's going to be, tra- be people traveling from neighboring counties and use up their space. And there's talk about what to do about that. There is some possibility that if they don't get this taken care of quickly as far as these makeshift hospitals, that we will run out of beds and people will be sent home probably based upon either prognosis or seriousness. There may even have to be the sad decisions where uh, some people who are very old are just uh, basically sent home to die because they don't have much life left anyway. Whereas somebody who is 50 would have a lot more priority, maybe, because they have a lot of years left otherwise If once they get over this. I don't know how they would do it, but... Uh, that would be really tragic if they actually run out of beds in hospitals and they actually have to send people home. We're not there yet, but they need to act quickly to prevent us from getting there. But don't be surprised if cases keep going up, if they start to run out of room at hospitals. And the death numbers, if you think they're high now, in the high 2000s, this may not be anywhere near the peak. So this is a time not to get COVID. This is a time not to take risks. This is a time that they're not going to give you as much care, as much attention, may not be enough space. You just don't want to get it right now. This is the worst time. And it's most contagious right now because most people have it. So you can get it more easily now when you go out compared to a few months ago. And if you get it and need to go to the hospital, it could be a problem. So these are times you need to be extra careful not to get it. California, 24,000 cases in the period from 5 p.m. on Thursday through 5 p.m. Friday. That's the most they've ever recorded in one day. Of course, California has a very large population of almost 40 million. 248 deaths in Texas, 202 in California. Those are both high population states. There's still a lot of deaths for one state. Not like the thousand they got in New York on some days, but as I said, there's more spread out. 189 in Pennsylvania, which has a much uh, lower population than California. So that, uh, by a factor of about three, so that's even worse there. Illinois, as I mentioned, uh, big problems there, despite uh, pretty strict mask mandates. That shows you that isn't everything. They had uh, 157 cases. Actually, they have about the same population as Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania is actually worse at the moment. Or not cases, but deaths. Uh, Ohio, 129 deaths. Florida, 123 deaths. Missouri, 113 deaths. 
they only have uh, 6 million people. Kansas, with fewer than 3 million people, 107 deaths. Wow. If you translate that to California, that'd be like uh, like way over 1,000 deaths in California, if you translate that by population. Then the Dakotas, still having a lot of problems. They don't, they don't have uh, much as far as population goes. Uh, with only 884,000 people, South Dakota had uh, 31 deaths and uh, 1,050 new cases. And they were actually worse than that before. North Dakota is starting to get things a little bit under control. They only had 12 deaths. But this thing moves. What happens is it will burn through the population and then it will start to die down, like what happened in New York, because it just runs out of new people to infect. It's not herd immunity yet. It's kind of like a partial herd immunity where those who have been going out, uh, enough of them get it to where it stops being able to spread as much. It still spreads some, but it's not. it isn't doing it at the rate it was before. So areas that haven't been hit that hard yet, there's still a lot of vulnerable people. And once this thing gets going and starts rapidly spreading, then if there's a lot of people who are still going out and still exposing themselves, then it'll start hitting them really hard until enough of them get infected and then there's not as many people to still infect. So that that the numbers automatically go down after some point. They, it, it doesn't just keep going, 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 going up, 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 up. Eventually it hits a peak and then goes back down. But in the meantime, a lot of people die. So California is one that is uh, trudging towards that peak, as is uh, Pennsylvania and uh, Texas. And we don't know where the peak's going to be or how long it stays, but that tends to be the pattern. And Florida, has not looking that good there. 10,000 new cases, 123 new deaths. They have a population of about half of what California has, 21 million. Not as bad as Texas, but... Uh, Still not very good. New York starting to have problems again. They had uh, over 10,000 new cases. They have about the same population as Texas. And 57 deaths, but remember the death lag behind. So uh, in two weeks, New York's going to start looking bad again. Nothing like back in April. Now, another comparison between now and April that you have to keep in mind is that in April, they didn't treat this as well. They didn't know a lot of things they know today. So they rely on ventilators less. They've realized that ventilators should only be used as a last resort and that they actually will harm you sometimes, not help you. So they're used much less now. Ventilators are actually killing people before. They've realized that lying people in their stomach when they're having trouble breathing has actually been shown to help. So a simple thing like that has made a difference in death rates. They've got uh, treatments which somewhat work, like remdesivir, and they're using those where they didn't have those back in those days. So the, the death rate has gone down as far as people who come into the hospital. And old people have gotten better at keeping away from it. So the overall number of people going to the hospital, uh, the, the average age of those going to the hospital with COVID has gone down, which means the uh, number of people who are dying compared to who's going to the hospital has also gone down. The percentage of death, the death rate in those hospitalized has gone down simply because People are younger and they're treating it better. But still, with all that, we're, we're getting the same numbers overall that we had in late April. So what does this mean? This means that it's a much worse problem now than in April. It's just it's being treated in a better fashion and the population getting it is younger than back in April. So that shows there's still a lot more cases now than there were in April. Otherwise, the death numbers wouldn't be this high. So this really is the worst time for COVID. In all of the time we've had since COVID showed up in the U.S., this is the worst time. 
except for like localized areas like New York City. It is it is better now to be in New York City than it was in April. But overall, for the country, this is the worst time for COVID, and it will probably get worse. The death number is definitely getting worse in the coming weeks. And the case numbers, it's, it's hard to tell where that'll go, but it's going to stay pretty bad. People are indoors a lot. People uh, just, uh, they've, they've gotten lockdown fatigue, even if they're putting stricter lockdown measures in place. People are just not following them. People are just getting tired of it. And uh, this is not going to stop until the vaccine comes. There, there may be a little bit of a rest as far as uh, it may stop going up, up, up. There may be some areas that improve by themselves for the reasons I stated, but we're going to have a bad winter. We are. We can, I can see it already. We're not even officially in winter yet. We're close, but we're not officially in the winter season yet. And this is exactly what was feared, that the winter would come, more people would be indoors, and there would be a bad wave of this. So that is something that you're going to have to deal with throughout the winter if you have not had COVID yet. And this is very contagious, Many people who get it can kind of point to where they got it from, but they don't know how. It's not like people who get it go, oh, yeah, well, there was a guy who coughed on me. Okay, now I know what happened here. It's not like that. People go out and think they're acting safely and responsibly and wear a mask, and then they get COVID, and they go, what the hell, how did this happen? Some people who get it were ones who were acting recklessly and openly just ignoring all the recommendations, living life normally like there was no pandemic, and then... uh they get it and go, crap, you know what? Yeah, maybe I should have been careful. But there are many people who get it who were doing things right from what they're told, and then they can't even point to how they caught it. They may know where they caught it. They just don't know how. And this thing's just super contagious. It can go through air conditioning systems and heating systems. It can hang in the air. You just don't want to be indoors anywhere that uh, people could be breathing out this virus. We're coughing out this virus or sneezing out this virus or spitting out this virus. It can be hanging in the air and you can just walk right into it. It can be blown into you by a vent. Your mask is not going to protect you from it. may help you a little bit, but it's not a shield. It's not going to protect you from it. You just need to stay home and avoid indoors as much as possible. And I would really suggest you reconsider Grocery shopping that you just, why not just have it delivered to you? If, if you want some tips on this, you can text me, 775-372-8355. I'll tell you what I've learned about uh, grocery delivery. And it's not perfect. I, I have a lot of aggravations with grocery delivery. They, they, they don't do a good job selecting produce and vegetables. They'll sometimes give you expired stuff because they're, they're so rushed. They're not doing it on purpose, but they just grab something in terms of expired a month ago. You've got to check on that. Uh, of course, they're never grabbing things intentionally with a good expiration date like you do when you shop. And then there's things that uh, aren't there and you can't uh, – like you don't want to tell them to substitute because they'll pick a stupid substitute. But if you if they – like then you say no substitutes, you just don't get it. Like there's a lot of downsides to this and it's a pain in the ass, but it keeps you safe. It's one less thing you have to do. It's, it's a mathematical equation. It's the, the more you are in situations that expose you to the virus, the more likely it is you're going to catch it. So if you do one kind of dangerous thing once, you're probably not going to get it. Still not a good idea, but you're probably not going to get it. If you do it 10 times, you're 10 times more likely to get it. You do it 100 times, you're 100 times more likely to get it. It's, it's that simple. It's a mathematical equation. 
you're a poker player, think of it like bad beats. If you play one hand of poker, the chance of you taking an awful beat is very low. If you play a thousand hands of poker, you're almost sure they're going to take a bad beat. So think of it like that. The numbers are going to catch up. It will eventually happen to you if you take enough chance. You may say, well, I haven't gotten it yet. Well, there could be a few explanations. You've just been lucky. Or your area wasn't very hard hit, and it is now. Or maybe you happen to have a resistance to it. Maybe you have a built-in resistance from previous cold you had. You don't know. There are some people that just never have symptoms. But you don't know if you're one of them. You don't know if you've already had it. I guess you could take an antibody test. Or if uh, you've just been lucky. Or maybe your area just hasn't been hit hard yet. Now it is. You just You just want to stay away from it. And I'm going to be very careful in the coming months. The good news is because the these vaccines, which we're going to talk about after this segment, because these vaccines are said to work for 95% of the people, that will really bring the rates down once they get used. Even if they're not used in a widespread fashion, even if half the population refuses them, even at the beginning when they simply won't have enough to give everybody and only the most vulnerable will take them, that will already help. So the more people who are vaccinated, the better we will see this problem getting handled. And the, perhaps the one upside to this uh, spike in COVID is that there may be more motivation for people to take the vaccine who otherwise were questioning it, including me. This is I'm not even saying these are stupid people that need to be motivated by something like this. I'm one of those stupid people. I'm one of those people who at this age, despite how much I fear getting COVID, I also fear taking a vaccine that uh, does not have very much research yet on its uh, long-term and medium-term ramifications. This is the type of thing you need to wait a long time to know. The longer you wait and study it, the better. This, this really was developed much faster than any other vaccine by a wide margin. And not everything is known, and there may be things found out later that the vaccine will harm you. There may be conditions you come down with later, permanent conditions, dangerous conditions, that are a result of taking that vaccine. Okay? That may happen, and anyone who says that won't happen is lying to you. Now, it's possible it won't happen, but if they say, no, 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 it's safe, they've tested it safe, they've, they've checked very carefully. No, you, you can't do that in that short of a time. There are many weird things that can happen from these vaccines that you don't know for a while. It's said that two months is the essential period to study because usually most things that come up from these vaccines happen within two months, but not all of them. Most things happen within two months. There's other things that can take more than two months. Some things can take three months. Some things can take six months. Some can take a year. Some can take a few years. And that's why they usually require years of study of safety of these vaccines before allowing them to be distributed to the general public. But we don't have years to wait with COVID. So you are taking a chance by taking the vaccine. But if COVID is just ripping through the population and killing 3,000 plus a day for a long period of time. And if we're getting worse numbers than ever, and if hospitals are getting filled up, and that's just, if people are seeing that day after day after day, those who were saying, you know what, I'm going to wait to see how people do with this vaccine, are going to say, ah, you know what, I'll take the chance. <laughs> I'll take it. And that's what I was thinking. As I was watching this happen, I was saying, I said today, if it stays like this, then I probably will take the vaccine as soon as it's available. I will take the chance. Because the higher chance there is that I'll just catch COVID by going out a few times, and 
the higher chance that there's going to be a crappy hospital situation waiting for me if I get it and need the hospital, then that's more incentive to take the vaccine. Then the reward for taking the vaccine becomes greater, and that makes the risk more tolerable. It's a risk-reward equation. That's all it really is. So if you're very old or if you have major pre-existing conditions, then the reward is very high compared to the risk. If you are young and you're not likely to really get harmed by COVID very much, then the reward is low and the risk is, is unknown, probably higher. If you're in the middle, it's a tough one. So I'm in the middle. I'm kind of in the middle, more leaning towards the old side, but I am in the middle. So my initial plan was I, I think I'll wait a few months, at least a few months, to see further what's going on. And of course, I have to wait at the beginning anyway because I can't uh, take it. But I would love to see uh, like a mass population take it before I take it. I want to see like two months after the mass population takes it and see what happens to them. Then we'll get a better idea. We'll also have more time for those that took it early to see what happens to them. So we'll start to see four-month, six-month results, which will give us a clearer picture Not a completely clear picture, but a clearer picture as to what happens to people who take this thing. But if it stays like this, then it's it's probably worth taking the risk for someone my age. And I was talking to my girlfriend, who's a similar age to me, and she feels the same way. She was at first saying, hey, I think I'm going to wait. And then she's like, yeah, actually, maybe I won't wait. She was thinking exactly what I was thinking. And I think a lot of people who are middle-aged will come around to that thinking, or already have come around to it, so that could be the one benefit, if there is any, of this uh, big spike, is that maybe it will pressure people to uh, take the vaccine. There will be plenty who won't, especially younger people, but I think this may get more cooperation for the vaccine than otherwise we would get. Because if, if there really was full cooperation for the vaccine, and the vaccine really does uh, take care of 95% of these, unless the thing can mutate quickly, then that could really put an end to the coronavirus completely. And uh, we really could be done. I'm not saying we will be done, but there's a chance that a 95% effective vaccine could wipe it out completely. If everyone took it. But everyone's not going to take it. So it'll be a weird year next year. But yeah, it's depressing seeing these numbers. Worrisome. And... It's not only worrisome for me, it's, it's because I, I don't expose myself much to this, but uh, yeah, people I care about who aren't as careful as I am about this, I, I worry for them. And I am powerless to make people behave the same way I do regarding this. Everybody makes their own decision with this. I just hope that uh, the people that I care about that aren't treating this the exact way I am, that they uh, are not sorry. If I get all the way through this, and everybody else in my household gets all the way through this without catching COVID, and then I get the vaccine, and then this disappears... I will be very happy with all my decisions on how I chose to handle this. 
if I somehow get COVID anyway, I'll be frustrated <laughs> that I put myself through all this just to get it anyway at some point. In fact, maybe at the worst point. But if I get all the way through this and never get it, I will be quite happy with not just the result, but but what got me to that result, the uh, caution I was showing. Sometimes you can look back on how you handled something and say, I handled that in a crappy way and I wish I did it differently. And I have things in my life like that. And then you have things you look back on and say, yeah, I'm proud of how I did that one. Wow. So I'm hoping that my decision about what I'm doing here is correct. And I encourage you to be careful. You also don't know what this is going to what it's going to do to you permanently. There's a lot not known about COVID. There's a lot of effects from it that are not known for the future. There could be things you don't even consider right now that may be a problem for you down the line, maybe even five years, ten years away, that it will have damaged your body in some way that will become apparent deep into the future. It's something that is uh, very harmful to your body in many ways that are not understood at the moment and you just don't want to get it. That's the the only way to ensure that you're not going to have problems down the line from this is not to get it. So that's also something to think about. Don't just look at the death rate. Don't look at the immediate death rate. Look at uh, the quality of life decline you will have if you get permanent lung damage or permanent brain damage or you lose some of your sense of smell or taste permanently. There are some people who get back the taste and smell and it's wrong. Suddenly things smell terrible or taste terrible that shouldn't. Just your brain is processing it wrong. And COVID has damaged your brain's ability to process these smells or tastes correctly. And that may never come back. Some people just don't even get the senses back. You don't want to chance it. And almost all of you will be around after this is done and you can resume normal life. And even if we never go back completely to normal life, you can at least resume normal life of whatever is normal at the time when there's a much better handle on the situation. This is the worst time to do things that are risky. Why not just wait? I'm not even that young and I'm going to wait because I'm not that old either. I'll, I'll have time to do things that I'm not doing that I'm putting off now. I'll have time to do them in one year, two years, three years, four years. So I'm going to wait. You should too. Even if you're older and you say, well, I don't know how much time I'll have. Uh, Well, if you're that old, if you catch COVID, your time might be zero. And you really don't want to be in the hospital if they're overworked. Even if you get a bed, even if that doesn't become an issue, do you really want to be there when it's just totally full with people dying of COVID? How much attention are you going to get? How fast will they be treating you? How much will they be monitoring you? What's the potential for mistakes? Do you want healthcare workers working on you who've been up for 23 hours? I mean, these are all very legitimate questions. If the answer is a big fat no, then be careful. I'm not trying to lecture you. I'm just trying to say that uh, it's easy to not take precautions while you're healthy and you go, I'll just deal with it when I get it. I'm sure it'll be fine. And you probably have friends who went through it and it wasn't a big deal. 
But I'm telling you, there's a, a wide range of people that I've known. Some I've known uh, people very close to me. Others are ones that uh, are just peers, but I, I know them or know of them well enough to observe what happened to them. And I've known people who've died of this who are under 55. In fact, I know someone this past week who died under 55. Not a poker player, but actually someone in Las Vegas who was only 45. This was not a close friend of mine, but I knew them. And it can happen. Now, you may read that most of the people dying have pre-existing conditions. Yes, most do. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to do the scare tactics the media does. That's true. Most have major pre-existing conditions. There are some who don't. There are some middle-aged who don't. And there are many middle-aged who have permanent damage from this. Many. You don't have to be that unlucky. You may want to know what happened to Eric Benzamokin and Ken Scaler. Well, they are 100% better symptom-wise. And as far as we can tell, it does not appear that either has taken permanent damage. We don't know for sure, but so far, it looks like that uh, neither of them is suffering from any kind of uh, extended damage from COVID. They were just uncomfortable. Yeah. That's good news. Master Scaler still testing positive after over a month. He's very frustrated by this. He has no symptoms anymore, and he's testing positive. Eric Benzamokin finally got his first negative test. Now, he got his two weeks after Ken Scaler. So Ken should have gotten his negative test two weeks before Eric, with everything being equal. But nothing's equal with this virus. So Eric is uh, now testing negative and feels no symptoms anymore. Very happy that uh, my attorney and friend Eric Benzamokin has gotten fully better. And I was concerned for him, but uh, that concern is no longer there. And it also appears that he's okay. He's 48 years old, so I'm glad that he did not get uh, that permanent damage from what we can tell. And Ken Scaler, who's 50, who I've been friends with for 30 years now. It looks like he got out of that as well. He just has to test negative, which is frustrating him. But that can happen. You can just have this lingering positive test. He, he's, he had this stupid conversation with me, though. He said, someone who I know, who I respect, told me that a beard, having a beard, can make you continuously test positive when you're not really positive. <laughs> I said, come on, Ken. He's like, no, no, I'm thinking maybe I should shave off my beard. And I said, come on, Ken. There's no way a beard makes you test positive. He said, no, 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 this guy, like, he, he, he knows. Like, it's someone I respect. And he didn't tell me who it is. I don't know if it's someone I know. or <laughs> but it was, Someone told him that his beard is causing this. So... I didn't even bother to Google this. It sounded so ridiculous. Well, then Ken sent me an article that talks about coronavirus and beards and how it, it, it could be dangerous to have a beard and have the coronavirus. So I go, well, wait a minute. I have a beard. In fact, I have a long beard right now. So I, I go, well, I better read this. <laughs> is, it, is it possible my beard uh, could be dangerous? I couldn't imagine how, but I, I thought maybe the, the coronavirus, what if that gets, gets caught in the beard and keeps reinfecting? I, I couldn't quite understand how this could happen. Or maybe it affects the test somehow that gives it a false positive. But I hadn't heard of any of this. You'd think that they would have made that pretty public if beards are somehow causing a worse 
result with a coronavirus that's pretty easy to take care of. You just shave off your beard. But I, I wanted to know. So I read this article, which Ken portrayed to me was uh, proving this guy's point. Well, it turns out this guy was full of crap, as was – the article wasn't full of crap, but it uh, wasn't the way Ken thought it was. What the article was saying is that people with beards, especially big beards, it can cause masks not to fit well over your chin. And it can kind of puff out a mask. And this, what happens is then uh, when you breathe and when you talk or when you spit or when you cough that uh, the virus gets out more easily. The mask doesn't work as well when the beard is kind of getting in the way and not making the fit as good for the mask. And also, if you're wearing a protective mask, like an N95 mask, that that could really be a problem because you really need a good seal there for the N95 mask to prevent the virus from getting in, and beards can get in the way of that as well. So, yes, if you're wearing an N95 mask, especially in like a healthcare setting, and you need it to fit perfectly, it may be advisable to shave off your beard. However, since that is not me, and I don't have any N95 masks, then the beard doesn't matter, and it definitely doesn't make you test positive more often. It's not going to influence whether you test positive or negative. It will not influence very much you getting the disease. It's more about preventing you from spreading the disease. Because remember, this is the beard more has to do with preventing you from expelling the disease to other people. Not about you catching the disease from other people. The the beard is more something that could be causing others to get it from you. So in short, this is not why Ken keeps testing positive. I don't know what's going on with him, but he keeps testing positive. But he doesn't feel anything, and even the CDC claims that he is not contagious at this point. I'm not sure if I buy that. I I would not want to see him right now. I told Ken, when this is all done, he's one of the few people I can see because he will have already had the coronavirus. But... I am not going to see him with a positive test result or any time near a positive test result. I want to see everything completely negative before I even think of seeing him. And uh, he's waiting for that positive result uh, or that negative result, and he's frustrated that that just isn't ending. So, okay, let's go on and talk about the vaccine here and uh, some new details about the two mRNA vaccines that are most likely to be rolled out in late December, the ones that you probably will be taking in 2021. So the two vaccines we're talking about, the mRNA vaccines, are the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. Both companies are claiming that after two doses, about a week apart, that after the second dose is finished taking effect, that you will have about 95%, uh, you have about a 95% chance of not getting symptoms from the coronavirus, that your body will have learned to fight it off. And that's one of the best vaccines out there. I mean, that's that's really an excellent rate. Way, way better than the flu virus uh, vaccine. And, uh, I mean, by a wide margin, flu is like about 50% effective. So this is 95% is, is tremendous if this is true. But in early studies, that's what it's showing for both companies. So the two vaccines, which are this new technology, mRNA, which actually uh, teaches your body how to fight the virus without actually injecting the real virus into you. And in this case, uh, these uh, the vaccine is actually teaching your body how to fight viruses with those spikes that coronavirus has. You know, when you see a picture of the virus, you see those scary-looking spikes? That's the funny thing with the coronavirus. It not only is scary, it actually even looks scary. 
<laughs> it's, it's one of these things that looks scary and actually you have a reason to be scared of it. It's like even by virus standards, it's scary looking because of the spikes. And those spikes are the problem. They attach themselves to your lungs. They, it, It's the spikes here that uh, can really make this thing tough on you. So the, the, these vaccines are uh, basically teaching your body how to fight off any virus with those spikes. So then when you get the coronavirus, even though you haven't actually had the coronavirus, your body will already know how to fight that off. It'll have the antibodies. It'll already know how to take care of a virus with spikes, and the coronavirus won't get anywhere. That's the, that's what's uh, behind these mRNA uh, vaccines, which have never been tried before. It's been theorized that this can be the future in medicine. In fact, it's been theorized that it can be used to fight cancer and other diseases, not even just used for vaccines. As I've said several times on the show, it is possible in the future that mRNA therapy will be used for many major ailments and that people will look back and say, wow, before the before the 2020s, that was the dark ages in medicine. The same way we look back on the early 1900s that no antibiotics was the dark ages of medicine. So it's really exciting, the future of what mRNA treatments and vaccines will be able to do for us. But this is the first utilization of one. And it's unknown what effects it might have on the body. And it's also unknown uh, how long these things are effective as vaccines. And there's also factors that are scaring people like fertility, that they have not done enough studies about fertility. And at the moment, it's unknown what it does to fertility. And this is scaring some people of childbearing age that uh, what if they take it and become sterile? It's not that it's been found that it makes people sterile, but this is something that hasn't been studied. This is one of these things that would be studied if it was uh, we had years to study it, but we don't. So people are going to have to jump into this and take it and worry about their fertility. Again, another reason young people are not going to want to try this. Now, for me, who is close to 49 years old, and I'm with someone who is near my age, I don't worry about fertility because she's not going to get pregnant. So it's not like I'm going to go, oh, no, now I'm not going to be able to (laughs) get her pregnant anymore. What if that happens? Well, I've already uh, known that's been the case for some time. So uh, people my age unless they're with someone much younger, are not going to be concerned about fertility. But people uh, who are young, they're going to say, wait a minute, this has not been studied, that is not good. So that that's another possible barrier to people who are younger taking this. So there's a lot of concerns about this mRNA, but it is very interesting. It, it's basically a way to teach your body how to fight things uh, without actually injecting the real disease into you. This is the first application of it. But uh, there's something else about it that they weren't really saying at first and now has become more public and still hasn't been put out very widely, but you, you need to know about it because uh, it's important for all the information to be put out. And that's, there's been a lot of problems with the, the communication involving the coronavirus, and this includes the media. There's been a lot of problem between the communi- the, the politicization of it and the covering up of information which they're afraid the public's going to take the wrong way. I'm not a fan at all of covering up information 
in an effort to make the public behave a certain way. It always backfires. This never works. The, the way it works is you put out the real information and then explain why you should behave a certain way to achieve the desired result. Have trust that the people will do the right thing, for the most part, if given all the facts and having the facts presented clearly. Do not lie to people, because once they figure out you're lying or hiding information, then they're not going to trust anything you say. So that's why a lot of things are not put out. Why, why do you think you're not getting a lot of clear communication of uh, what percentage of people are dying of this have major problems uh, coming into this? Uh, what, what percentage of them had major major uh, pre-existing conditions? What, what percentage of the people dying are uh, 65 and up? Uh, what percentage of people are dying are 35 and under. You can find this information if you really look for it, but notice the media doesn't like to put this out. The media just doesn't even mention it. It's because the the goal here is to scare everybody. The goal here is to not make anyone dismiss it. But the problem is it backfires because then uh, people find this information out through other means, and a lot of times the information they find out is flawed or skewed or uh, even it's you know, down, downright untrue, and nobody knows what to believe. This is why official channels should put out very clear and easy to access and easy to see information, including the media. They need to put out the whole picture so everybody understands it and then say, this is why everybody should do this because of reasons X, Y, and Z. And then try to convince everybody to do that. Don't, don't just mislead people. Don't, don't make people think that the, the 25-year-olds are in grave danger of this. And then, so everybody must take it so seriously because 25-year-olds everywhere are dying. No, don't, don't say that because the 25-year-olds know other 25-year-olds and the, all their friends are healthy, even the ones who got it. So they'll say, okay, the media is full of shit. We're ignoring everything they say. So that, that's why it's a mistake. So I'm a little afraid that the same thing's going to happen with this, uh, these mRNA vaccines because there is one detail about them that has been uh, made public, though not emphatically made public. I think it should really be made there should really be mass awareness of this and it needs to be communicated very clearly or we're going to have a huge backfire the problem here is and i know there's going to be a lot of pushback because of this the problem is that the vaccine either mrna vaccine is going to get you sick some people very sick it's not going to kill people but it's going to feel like you have the coronavirus for some people at least it is likely, if you take it, you will feel sick. Some people will feel a little bit sick. Some people will feel just fatigued. Some people will feel extremely sick. The good thing is that it is said to just about always clear within two days. So unlike the real coronavirus, which will hang around for weeks and then maybe escalate and kill you or do major damage to you, the effects of this vaccine will stick around for two days maximum, sometimes only one, and then will go away no matter how severe they are. But there are some people that said this is the sickest they've been in their life, this is the most fatigued they've been in their life, it was very, very unpleasant, it was awful. These are people who've already taken the vaccines in these trials, and some have lodged massive complaints about the way it made them feel. There's been others who said they were tired and didn't feel that good, but they got over it soon enough. But there's others who said this was just awful. It was uh, like a very bad illness for two days. 
Now, this tends to happen on the second dose. Remember, these mRNAs need two doses. So the first dose you'll get, supposedly you're going to have more like localized pain. You'll have some fatigue, and the area where they gave you the shot will be sensitive, and maybe you won't be able to lift your arm that well, and things like that. But you're not going to feel all that sick. You'll be kind of in pain, and uh, you feel kind of tired, but it won't be terrible. It's the second one that apparently really makes people feel like crap. But it always resolves. Every case they've seen in two days, it's gone. But... Sometimes for two days, you feel like you have the coronavirus. You don't, but what you're getting is your body's reaction to the coronavirus, which is really what is making you feel crappy when you really get the real coronavirus. You're feeling the body's reaction for the most part when you get sick. In fact, that's actually killed a lot of the people is their body's reaction, not really the virus itself. So you're getting somewhat of that reaction from the vaccine, except the difference is you don't really have the disease and it's going to go away within two days. But that's a problem. There's going to be people reporting how awful they feel. And it's kind of hard to get through your head when you feel this way. It's not actually harming you. It's going to be hard for some people to take this knowing they have friends who got really, really sick for the, for two days. And they're going to think, wow, this has got to really screwed them up. People are already suspicious of vaccines as it is. You inject them with something they know is going to make them really sick for two days. It just has the feeling like something bad was put in you. So that's going to really dissuade a lot of people from taking it. I'm afraid the media's approach is going to be, let's not talk about this very much. Let's let's downplay it. Let's say, you, know, you might feel a little bit sick. And a, a very small percentage of you might feel like you have COVID for two days, but it's really not that bad. A lot, a lot of you will feel fine. And it's going to be downplayed. And then you can have people on social media posting about how awful it was. It was the sickest they've ever been. They, they couldn't do anything. They, they, they felt close to calling uh, 911. I, I can only imagine what's going to be put out there by people who already didn't like the vaccine idea in the first place and reluctantly did it and then felt awful and now are convinced they've been injected with uh, pure death. Like, I can only imagine what's going to be out there because I'm afraid the media is not going to be honest. And they just need to tell everybody and put this out over and over and over and over again. This is going to get you sick. Small chance it won't, it probably will. Some of you a little bit sick, some of you moderately sick, and some of you a lot sick. But it's not really doing any harm to you. In two days it will get better. When you get sick, this is just your body learning how to fight the coronavirus. That's all you're feeling. It will be gone in two days, and then your body will know how to take care of the actual virus. You put it that way, you keep putting it out there, you're going to have some morons that are going to go, no, 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 I don't believe it, but most people will understand. But if you try to downplay it, then people will get their information from the conspiratorial internet and they're not going to want to take it. But the problem is the media is so afraid to tell the truth about anything. You don't believe me? You don't believe me? Well, think about how honest the media has been about everything this year. Think about all the things that uh, they've told you, only the stories in the way they want to tell you the stories to make you believe the narrative they want you to believe. They're not just reporting facts anymore. This isn't conspiracy stuff. This is the truth. Even As I said, even with COVID. It's selective information dissemination. And it's causing harm, and it's going to cause harm again next year about the vaccine, unless they are very clear what this is doing to people and why. I understand it. I bet you understand it. I think most people will understand it. 
I'm not looking forward to taking a vaccine that's going to get me very sick for two days, but if I know it's only going to last two days and I know it's actually not going to harm me and escalate into something that puts me in the hospital, then I can say, okay, this sucks, but I know I, in two days it's better. And that's, that's so much of a better feeling than when you don't know what's coming. You know, Tom Petty was saying waiting is the hardest part. That is so true. You don't know. The waiting and the unknown is the hardest part. It really is. And if you know when it's ending, then you can deal. The psychological problems I had two years ago, I didn't know how long this was going to last. If someone could have come to me from the future and said, hey, by the time you get to mid-November, you're going to feel a lot better. I'd say, okay, well, this kind of sucks. i got to be stuck with this for three months this way. But okay, at least I can look forward to three months from now when I will feel mostly better. But I did not know. I thought maybe the rest of my life would be like this. It was very possible the rest of my life was going to be stuck that way. It wasn't even unlikely. And I am thankful every day that it was not. But I didn't know at the time. And that was that was so stressful, I can't even tell you, to think I might be stuck that way forever. And that there was no way to tell. But here there's a way to tell. Here you know that in two days you're going to be better. So put that message out. But they're trying to a little bit. I've seen it uh, in some mainstream news outlets, but they're not pushing it that hard, which is fine right now because we can't take the vaccine anyway. But once it's time to take the vaccine, they've got to put this message out front and center really hard and be very clear and not try to downplay it. Do not try to say only a small percentage gets sick when a large percentage gets sick, which I'm afraid they're going to do. I've seen this before, by the way. I've seen this before where they, they, they claim like a side effect is rare and then it turns out it's not that rare or, or 9% get this and it turns out like like 75% gets it. Like I've seen a lot of lies about side effects from pharmaceutical companies where you know it's being like super downplayed. Like you read something 9% and like everybody you talk to, like, like almost everybody's gotten that side effect. You go, are we like the most unlikeliest group of people ever or is this uh, – were they not honest about the side effects? So I'm afraid that the media is not going to be honest about the side effect because the media has this fear that if they don't manipulate people into taking the vaccine, that people aren't going to take it and COVID is going to continue on and kill more and more people. So they, the media, must be the heroes and give us the messages we need to hear in order to make us do it. They must trick us into all taking the vaccine in mass numbers or otherwise they have not done their job because their job is to trick us to do the right thing, not to tell us the truth. And I say their job should be tell us the truth and tell us why we should do the right thing. And that's what I do on this show. So my advice is, uh, you probably should take it, especially if you're over 40. But be aware of what's coming when you take it. You're going to get sick for two days. You may get very sick for two days. It's going to get better. And that uh, if we're, we're in a very bad COVID situation, I recommend not waiting. If it's not that bad of a COVID situation, if you're middle-aged, uh, waiting is reasonable. If you're old, you should take it right away. That's my advice to you. Okay, now I'm going to talk about a decision I have to make that isn't easy. It's a personal decision that really uh, most of you won't be making, but you may have similar decisions if you also have uh, procedures coming up. I have a colonoscopy coming up in January, mid-January. And I have uh, some thoughts about whether I should delay it, not cancel it. I, I, knew, I know I need it, but should I delay it by a little bit? And there, there's a positive and negative 
to delaying it. And I'll get into that, then you can text me at 775-372-8355 if you have an opinion on this. So first of all, I have a family history of colon cancer. Colon cancer is actually a completely preventable cancer, one of the very few cancers that if you handle it responsibly, there's a actual there's actually uh, not only a small chance that it will kill you, the chance that it will kill you if you handle it responsibly is 0.0. That is because colon cancer is a slow cancer to develop. It's a semi-slow cancer. It's not like prostate cancer, which can take 20 years, but it's one that takes uh, several years to develop. And it also pretty reliably hits people who are uh, 45 and older. Occasionally, they get unlucky and get it before 45, but the, the vast majority of people get it 45 and older. So if you get a colonoscopy and then they find a polyp in your colon, it always starts with a polyp. It, it, that, that's how these uh, cancers start in your colon. So if they see any polyps in your colon, benign or otherwise, they cut them out. And provided that uh, they have not gone cancerous yet, even if they're super close, because they, they all start out uh, as, as non-cancerous polyps, and then some of them will develop to become cancerous. That's why they're all removed. Uh, there are certain ones that look very close to becoming cancerous that they cut out. And uh, if they get one of those, you should be thankful you went in because there's a good chance you were going to die otherwise. So they look in your colon. It's a very unpleasant procedure in a few different ways. But uh, I shouldn't say very unpleasant. It's invasive and somewhat unpleasant, I should say. And it requires, uh, not requires, but it's recommended you get uh, put out with propofol. But the good news about it is they look in your colon. If it's clear, they tell you it's clear. And then you're for at least three years, usually five years, then you have zero risk of colon cancer at that point with no polyps. If they find polyps, then they, they cut them out, and provided there's no cancer in there, then uh, you're also safe. And then you come back in three years, and they check it out again. And you keep doing that for the rest of your life. And provided you responsibly do that, you will not die of colon cancer, because they can always stop it before it progresses to cancer, because of the timetable that it can't just show up. It can't just show up and, and become cancer in a month. It, it takes years to go. And if they get the polyps out, then the, the, for a new polyp to grow and become cancerous, again, it, it takes too long. Whereas if you, as you keep coming back every three years or, or five years if it was clean, then uh, you're not going to get colon cancer. They've also found that colon cancer is very hereditary. That if your family history has zero colon cancer in it, your chance of getting colon cancer is pretty low. If you have relatives who have had colon cancer, then your chances are much higher especially if they are close relatives like your parents or siblings. But even grandparents can be a problem. Well, on my side, I have a grandmother that died of colon cancer in the early 70s. The only grandmother I don't remember. I have one grandparent I don't remember. They were all alive when I was born, but one died when I was one year old. So it was that grandmother, and I never got to know her. She knew me as a baby. She died of colon cancer. That was my dad's mom. My dad who is still alive, probably would have died a long time ago if he had not gotten a colonoscopy at the age of 55. His first one, it was not uh, recommended as strongly back then, but at the age of 55, he got a colonoscopy, and they found one of those polyps that looked just about to go cancerous. It looked about as bad as they can be without actually being cancerous. 
So it got cut out. It was tested. It was not cancerous yet, but it looked super close to going that way. His mom had died of it. And had he not had that colonoscopy at 55, it probably would have been cancerous. Very high chance of that. And then he wouldn't be here anymore. In fact, he would have been gone a long time ago. So from a hereditary standpoint, it's, it's almost like I should assume he had colon cancer, even though he didn't and won't get it because he goes for colonoscopies now very regularly. And he, that, you know, that will not kill him. But, uh, for hereditary purposes, it looks like he would have had it too. So that's bad. On the good side, my mom's family has zero history of colon cancer. So one side of the family is totally clean of it. One side is pretty bad. So, uh, of course, I hope I inherited my mom's side of that, but there's no way to tell. Maybe in the future there will be. Maybe in the future they can test your genetics and figure out which side of the family's uh, genes you've inherited for this. But at the moment, they cannot do that. So I could have gotten either one. And for that reason, I actually should have gone in for a colonoscopy already, because I'm way past 45. And I'm not that far away anymore from 55, where my dad almost had colon cancer. I was going to go in early this year, and then COVID happened, and at first it wasn't even allowed to go in. And then I was like, "Ah, I don't know if I should do it when there's COVID around. I don't want to go in and catch COVID, so I've been putting it off because of COVID. Well, I, I decided to do it anyway, and I scheduled the colonoscopy for January. And uh, that was before there was this big spike in COVID. And uh, now that I'm seeing what's happening, I'm trying to decide whether I should get this done as scheduled or if I should call up and say, hey, can you move it maybe to March or move it to April? And there's a, a good reason to do it and good reason not to do it as far as delaying it. I don't have to decide immediately, but... I have to decide fairly soon. The reasons to do it as scheduled are, number one, I'm already late doing it. I should have done this when I was 45, and I'm getting close to 49. Number two, I have this uh, one-side bad family history of it where uh, had there not been intervention, I probably would have lost not only my grandmother to it, but also my father. So very bad colon cancer history on half of my uh, genetics. And uh, number three, I had a blood test for something else back in October, which revealed a new issue that I never had before. And that was very mild anemia. Never had that in my life. Now, I don't feel anemic. There's a lot of symptoms of anemia. I have none of them. I don't feel even slightly anemic. I am slightly anemic. That's at least according to that one test showed a very mild anemia, just a tiny bit below normal. Tiny bit, but nevertheless below normal. And I never had those results like that before. Now, it's possible it was some sort of uh, outlier. It's possible there was something weird going on with my body that day, which caused that. So I'd, I'd probably need more tests to determine that there's a real anemia issue I have. But uh, that test showed some kind of anemia, albeit very mild. What that can mean is that there are polyps in my colon. That is a common cause of anemia is polyps in your colon, not, not necessarily cancerous ones. And I did not show any anemia 
in a blood test in March. So in March, there probably were not any polyps. Now there could be a polyp, though uh, there's a much higher chance now of there being a polyp, but there uh, is no indication that's a cancerous polyp. It could just be a polyp that has just formed. And if that's the case, I want it out. And I, even waiting months isn't a good idea. Especially maybe, maybe it was there before and it, it wasn't making me anemic. Maybe uh, sometimes anemia is a sign of colon cancer that's come on. Now, again, I don't have any other signs of colon cancer. But anemia is one, a sudden anemia is one sign of colon cancer. So if that's what's happened, if I have very early stage colon cancer, I, I would want to have that found right now and not wait a few months. That could be a very critical few months. I have a friend who had colon cancer at 44, very unlucky, but uh, now he had some outward signs of it that were found during a physical, which I don't have. But uh, they treated it, and fortunately it hadn't spread, and he's, he's fine. So he's lucky. This happened uh, six years ago. But uh, this is giving me more motivation to get it done, which I, I found this out after I had already scheduled it, by the way. This wasn't why I scheduled the colonoscopy. So with all this said, why would I then delay it? Well, if COVID is, it's actually, if COVID's at its absolute worst point in mid-January, which looks like might be the case in California, then is it that smart to walk into a clinic to have this done where there is a COVID risk? If I can just wait a short time and the vaccine will greatly take down the numbers, even if it doesn't eradicate it, if the vaccine greatly takes down the numbers, or maybe if I take the vaccine, which would really lower my chance of getting COVID there, uh, might this be smarter than to walk into a clinic where there's definitely a risk of COVID just to save a few months on a colonoscopy that I've been waiting years to take? Like, are a few more months going to matter? Now, if I had some very obvious signs that something was wrong, like I had colon cancer, yeah, of course, I would want to go in tomorrow. But um, given that it's only the anemia, maybe for COVID risk purposes, it's, it's better to, to wait. Since Now, if there's no vaccine on the horizon, that would be a different story. Then I'd say, well, this could be forever. It could be the same a year from now, so might as well get it now. But now that we see the vaccines coming out, the vaccine may be out uh, in late December for healthcare workers and very old people. And uh, so at the very least, uh, I mean, I, maybe by that mid-January, those, those workers at the uh, place giving the colonoscopy will have taken the vaccine. But then again, maybe they won't have gotten it. And maybe if they got it, it won't have taken full effect yet. And definitely the patients coming in will not have gotten it. So maybe if I waited till March or April, that uh, there would be a significant reduction in COVID. But do, do I really want to walk in at the absolute peak of COVID? Also, I'm required to take that awful COVID test there, which I guess is good because uh, that lowers the chance of a patient there having COVID. But I hate that test. I, I hate the idea of that test, that one that goes way up your nose, that that, that <laughs> is very, very unpleasant. I really don't want to take that test. And there's still a, like a 30% uh, false negative rate on it, so it's not even protecting me that well from other people taking it. So are these months that critical is the question, or might it be smarter just to wait those few months until we get a significantly better situation? Or at least to see 
if somehow it doesn't improve, let's say we don't get enough people taking the vaccine or the vaccine's not as good as we thought, uh, maybe, or maybe, you know, maybe wait till I take the vaccine myself and then I don't have to worry about COVID. Maybe I don't have to take that stupid, uh, COVID test if I could bring in proof of, of being vaccinated. So that's, that's another thing I can get out of that obnoxious test is I could just take the vaccine and then, uh, show them proof and, that's that. And then I also have to sweat out COVID there after, after being in there. That's, people get COVID from being indoors. It's not just having people directly breathe on you. So yeah, the doctors can use all the, all the precautions they, they can, but if anybody comes in there with COVID and that somehow that test doesn't catch, then uh, it could easily spread through the ventilation system or who knows how. And yeah, they do all the cleaning and sanitizing. And yeah, I, I know they do that, but who knows if that is something that uh, really helps. In fact, uh, I think all this cleaning and sanitizing is ma- mainly performative at this point. I don't think it really spreads through surfaces very much. The other thing is it's possible it will be canceled on me, which would place me to the back of the line. Because you always have to schedule these way out. And uh, if I were to change it now to something down the line then I probably have a better choice and dates to change it to than if they cancel everybody's colonoscopies at once and they've all got to reschedule. That's another possibility with rapid shutdowns coming. Remember, earlier this year, you could not get a colonoscopy. It was not allowed. There were various, what they called, uh, voluntary procedures, which even if medically necessary, if it wasn't urgent, then you could not do them. So we may go back to that if COVID keeps getting worse. So the choice may be taken out of my hands anyway. So I'm still trying to make this decision. It's not an easy one. I'm not sure. I would feel really stupid either way if I make the wrong decision. If I go get the colonoscopy and they say, okay, you're clean. There, there wasn't There wasn't even a polyp there. Everything looks great. And I go, good, oh, great, great result, thank you. And then three days later, I go, why can't I taste anything? Oh, shit. I would feel like a moron for having gone in there during the peak of COVID. On the flip side, if I don't go in and reschedule it for April, and then it turns out that I have colon cancer, and that those three months could have made a big difference in the treatment and in the prognosis, I would feel like an even bigger moron. So I don't know what to say. I can't even ask the doctor. I can't say, hey, you know, your office seems unsafe right now. Uh, do you think maybe I should reschedule for a safer time? They, they couldn't even legally tell me yes, because then they'd be admitting that it's unsafe. So, like, I I don't know what the right thing to do is. It's one of these things I have to come up with myself. I can't even ask anybody. I can ask people for their opinion, but I can't even ask the office doing it for the, for the truth because they won't give it to me. But yeah, uh, I'm going to have the colonoscopy. They're going to, I'm going to get the propofol and everything. Be only my second time being put under. It's only been, uh, and I, I hate that idea. I hate the idea of being under general anesthesia, but, uh, if you don't do that, it's a very unpleasant procedure because you, if they just sedate you, you feel it and it's, it's, it's not good. That's the way it used to be done. 
I actually got some tips on uh, colonoscopy for my sister who got one done, which surprises me. She's a lot younger than me, so she kind of, I, in my opinion, I think she did it too early, but whatever. Hers was very, hers was clean as you'd expect. But uh, she told me that uh, this awful prep that people have to do, because a lot of people say that the prep is much worse than the procedure itself. And there's two complaints about the prep. The first complaint is that uh, it tastes really, really, really bad and it's hard to get it all down. And and number two, that it causes awful shooting diarrhea. <laughs> That's, it's like watery diarrhea and you're like doing that all day. I guess the third complaint is you can't eat for 24 hours beforehand uh, except for like really soft stuff like Jello, And then for the last like, I think, Eight hours, you can't even drink water. That's the third complaint. But uh, some of the tips my sister gave me were that, uh, first of all, you should eat like a massive meal beforehand because you're going to feel hungry the next day and that eating like this, the few allowed things you can eat or it's not satisfying at all and you're going to feel very uncomfortable. And I'm like, I think I can handle that. You guys think I can handle uh, eating a massive meal in one sitting? Have you, you guys ever seen evidence I can do that? She can't really do that, but I can't. So uh, that's not going to be a problem for me. Uh, but uh, she didn't do that, and she was sorry she didn't do that. She also said that uh, I should not do the – there's two different preps they do. There's one called Sue Prep, and there's one called Miralax. And apparently the Sue Prep is the one that tastes terrible, it, like tastes salty and terrible. And the Miralax, you actually are supposed to combine it with Gatorade, unfortunately not the two flavors I like, which is uh, – the red and the orange. It's any Gatorade but the red or the orange. But uh, you you are supposed to combine it with Gatorade, and apparently that doesn't even taste bad. Like it, it kind of tastes like Gatorade. It, like it doesn't change the Gatorade test taste much. You've got to just drink a whole lot of it. But other than that, it's the same. So I'm like, why would I not do the Miralax? <laughs> That's what she said. She said the soup prep. So they tried to tell me to do the soup prep, which I guess is like a tiny bit better, but there's not much difference. And I'm like, why would I? Why would they suggest the freaking soup prep? I guess because they don't have to drink the thing. So she told me definitely do the Miralox. It's way easier. So at least I don't have to dread drinking an awful thing. I will have the shooting diarrhea, but I don't have to dread the, the, the actual taste of it. And they go, well, the soup prep, you don't have to drink as much of it. Like, I don't care. I'll drink a ton of Gatorade as long as it doesn't taste bad. I'll, I'll get that down. So I'm going to do the Miralox. That was a good tip on her part. And she gave me some other good tips on it. So that was I was glad she at least went through it and was able to tell me things about it that uh, I wouldn't have thought of. So I'm getting ready for you. You know what also sucks is you can't take aspirin for like several days beforehand. I'm not sure how many. you have to look this up. But there, it's like a, several days you cannot take aspirin or Advil. And with all the headaches I get, that's going to be torture. You can take Tylenol, but that doesn't really work for me. So I guess I'll be... Uh, either lucky without getting headaches or I'm just going to be stuck with headaches for those days. But it, that, like, it, it thins your blood, so they, they don't want that because it could cause a, a dangerous condition with bleeding from your colon, so you don't want your blood thin from this being done. That kind of sucks. So believe me, I'm not looking forward to this thing, but it needs to be done. I just got to figure out when. Like I, I don't want to delay it, but it kind of feels weird to go into a clinic to get something done at the very, very peak of COVID with a vaccine like right, o- right over the horizon. I guess one other thing I could do is get a blood test and see how, what my anemia looks like. I guess that's one other thing I could possibly do. 
Of course, I guess I'd be taking a little bit of a risk that I get COVID during the blood test, but uh, not much of one because you're in there very quickly and out of there very quickly. So I guess we will uh, I'll have to decide here what I do. Okay, now uh, we're going to get to my editorial and we're going to be done. I, I saved all the personal colonoscopy talk for the near the end because I knew that uh, it's not a poker and gambling topic for those of you that are listening for that reason. Some of you will listen to me talking about anything. Some of you don't care what I talk about. They just want me to talk. They just want me to sit there and talk. Some of these listeners to this show would be happy if they could just sit there every day listening to me talk about random things for like the entire time they're awake. They just wish they could walk around with headphones on of me just rambling about things, which I don't understand. I don't understand why you'd want to hear that much of me, but I appreciate it. But let me tell you about this editorial and what my opinion is about this matter, which I think will become pretty clear pretty quickly. The editorial this week is about voter fraud and voter non-fraud and how I don't feel that these claims match up with common sense. And something that's pissed me off this year has been the lack of common sense with the way people interpret real situations right in front of their faces, usually ones that become politicized and that they have to try to take a position which backs their side of the aisle. And that has never been me. Now, I will admit I have a conservative bias. I admit that I am a Republican. I admit that I prefer to see things that uh, make the Republicans look better and let and make uh, my worldview look correct. And everybody has that bias, and if you deny you have this bias, you're lying. However, at the same time, I like the truth. I like reality. I like uh, seeing things for how they really are even ones which are not pleasant for me to think about. So I am not one who's going to delude myself about things just because uh, it makes me feel better about the side that I vote for. And unfortunately, this year especially, there has been an effort really on both sides to not give in even the slightest point to the other side. And this results in a lot of delusion and ridiculous arguments and ridiculous statements and denial of obvious reality. One bit of denial we're seeing right now of obvious reality has to do with the voter fraud claims. There are people on the right who believe that Trump really won, that he was cheated, that truckloads of fake votes were brought in to beat him in the swing states that there is rampant voter fraud, that there's lots of evidence of it, and that he was really the victor, that he should be going on for four more years, and that Biden cheated. And they believe this, and Trump himself says it. Trump himself says that he believes he was cheated. I don't know if he really thinks that, or if he just feels like he has to say that to try to save face, or to try to get the election overturned in some way, but he's been saying it, which isn't good. And there's a lot of people who believe it isn't good. So that is delusion. That's delusion. There, there's no evidence to point to this. And just because something is theoretically possible does not mean it happened. You need to see evidence it happened. Or at the very least, see evidence that it is likely to have happened. Sometimes you can't prove something, but you see evidence it likely occurred. But if you can't even see that, then it, it's meaningless. You can't assume it happened because it happens to benefit your side. 
there would have to be a massive amount of voter fraud, either a massive, massive amount on a small scale or a massive amount on a large scale that's done all at once that would have resulted in a change in the margins to allow Trump to win. Because in an individual state, it wouldn't matter. If Trump really won Georgia, doesn't matter. He still lost. If Trump really won Pennsylvania, doesn't matter. He still lost. If Trump really won Michigan, doesn't matter. He still lost. If Trump won Arizona or Nevada, doesn't matter. He still lost. It has to be a combination of uh, three of these states for him to walk away victorious. So there wouldn't just have to be voter fraud in one state. It would have to be multiple states. And it would have to be enough to erase a fairly wide margin that Biden won in some of these places. Not all of them, but uh, but none of them were razor-thin close. It's not like uh, Florida in the year 2000 when it came down to like 500 votes. If you're talking about 10,000, 20,000, 150,000, 80,000, any margins like that, there really has to be a lot of voter fraud. Like a whole lot. And it's not just voter fraud. It has to be voter fraud that lands on the other side. Because if there is a ton of voter fraud, but the voter fraud is equal on each side, then that cancels each other out. The only way voter fraud matters is if the fraud occurred on one side disproportionately and if that were to change the result of the election. We do not see any evidence that this occurred. We do not see any evidence that there was massive small-scale voter fraud where there was a whole lot of incidents about of people doing this, uh, like, like families uh, casting one or two fraudulent votes uh, for Biden, or that tons of people were returning the ballots that they were getting erroneously. And we don't see any evidence of any kind of large-scale conspiracy. And this whole Dominion thing is BS. That's, that's a made-up conspiracy. We don't see any convincing evidence that there was any kind of large-scale conspiracy to slip in hundreds of thousands of extra votes to screw Trump. You can say it might have happened. You can say it's possible, but there's no evidence at all that it occurred like this. So you can't just say, well, what if it did? What if there's a small the small chance it's true? Well, then it happened, and, and there's no detection of it, and it's unfortunate. But uh, you can say that about a lot of things. What if this happened? The Dodgers just won the World Series. What if they were cheating? What if they found a way to cheat like the Astros did, but just did it better? Should we just assume the Dodgers aren't the champions and the uh, the Tampa Bay Rays are the champion? Because the, the what if the Dodgers cheat? No, there's, there's no evidence the Dodgers cheated. So you can say what if. I'm not going to say it's impossible, but I'm going to say we have no evidence it happened, so we assume it did not. And that's, that's how life works. You can't just make up things and say, well, because this theoretically could have, I'm going to decide it did. And that's the way the people who have been stating that Trump really won have been going about this. And and uh, it, it, there's been some right-wing shows that I usually watch, like on YouTube, that I used to enjoy, that have uh, obsessed over this cheating thing and are trying to show all the reasons why it probably happened. And I won't even watch it. It's unwatchable. I'll give credit to Ben Shapiro. He doesn't do that. Ben Shapiro is actually pretty fair about it. He he kind of thinks along the lines that I do about this. But some of these shows, are, are they're putting forth stupid stuff just because they think their audience wants to hear that, and it, and it sucks. It shouldn't be happening, and it bothers me to see and hear this stuff. And uh, when you say this stuff, you just destroy your own credibility. 
because I feel there's a lot of things that the right has been saying that's very valid, not about this election so much, but about uh, other matters that the left denies that they should be saying more, because I think the left is in denial about a lot of things or lies about a lot of things, and I think that uh, you should focus on those things and say those things. You should not focus on this election where Trump lost. That's not the right thing to be obsessing over and to be pushing on Twitter. That's not what you wanted to see happen, but it did happen. That's the way elections work. So you move on. So that's where there's delusion on the right here. And common sense, it doesn't match up with what they're claiming happened. You just you just can't match this together of what common sense would dictate, what the evidence dictates, and what they're claiming happened. So that, that's on the right. Here's on the left, though. The left, we've got a problem as well. A lot of people on the left claim that uh, this was the most secure election ever, and they talk about the official that claimed that, and they use that as the reason. Look, this is a Republican who's saying it was the most secure election ever. He got fired, by the way, I just read. But, uh, yeah, he's saying it because it was his job to make sure the election was secure. So, of course, he's going to say it. It doesn't matter what party he's in. But we've had people pointing uh, on the left who point this out as a rebuttal to those on the right, saying, well, look at this. You think Trump won, but this was actually the most secure election ever. And look, even a Republican says this. The Republican in charge of the voting says this was very secure. The most secure ever. Not just very secure, the most secure election ever. And we have people on the left who talk about mail-in voting, that it is just as good, just as secure, if not more secure, than in-person voting. I'm talking about Universal mail-in voting, where you automatically get a ballot in the mail. Not not absentee balloting, which is different. That universal mail-in voting is just as secure as regular in-person voting and absentee voting. We've heard this for months. Ever since there's the talk of we're going to do the universal mail-in voting because of the pandemic, uh, the talk has not been, okay, this kind of sucks, but we've got to do it because uh, a lot of people otherwise can't vote because of uh, fear of coronavirus. Instead of putting it that way, we're being told, no, safe, safe, secure, secure, no fraud, no fraud. This is this is going to be a completely secure process, a great process. Don't worry about it. Totally secure, totally safe, very fair election. That, that's what we're hearing. Just as good as the other one, if not better, we keep hearing from the left. And the left said this because they knew that, that uh, the, the mail-ins was benefiting them. They knew that uh, more of their people are going to be voting mail-in and more on the right are going to do it in person. So the more you incentivize those on the left to vote, it's better for them. That was the reason that was being pushed on the left. And so to explain it, oh, it's just as secure. There's no problem with security, no problem with fraud. That's a lie. Of course there's a problem with fraud. Of course it's not as secure. So I say, okay, well, let me explain why it is not as secure. The opportunity to commit voter fraud is much, much higher. The opportunity and the ease of committing the crime is much, much higher with universal mail-in voting. To commit voter fraud when there is no universal mail-in voting, you either have to show up in person and claim to be somebody else and risk getting caught and maybe even risk having that person already have voted and looking, you know, getting caught right there on the spot for saying that. Or you have to send a mail-in ballot to your address that is phony. You have to do a phony registration and then a request for a mail-in ballot, a a request for the absentee ballot months in advance 
under that phony registration sent to your address, which you then send in. Is it impossible? No, it's not impossible to do either. If your next door neighbor says, eh, I never vote, I, I don't want to vote, or, eh, I'm not even going to vote, I'm not going to be in town that day. Well, then you just, you, you, well, not your neighbor because they'll, they'll recognize you. You can't go twice to your same precinct. But let's say someone in the next precinct over, a friend of yours, says he's not going to be around. Yeah, you, you could go and vote as him and no one will catch it. Uh, and, and, and if you uh, are really dedicated, you can register fake people to get uh, absentee ballots and mail those in and get away with it. But you know what this requires? This requires effort. This requires planning. This requires premeditation. This requires more risk. This requires a lot more dedication to committing the crime, which most people don't have. Most people are kind of lazy, even as far as committing crimes go. If it's too hard and there's too little reward, they won't do it. It's not that nobody will do it. It's that very few will do it. Very few will put forth that effort. What about universal mail-in voting? Well, you get ballots for other people showing up at your house. A lot of people have gotten that. If you've ever had someone living at your address before, there's a decent chance you will get a ballot for them, and there's a good chance that they no longer live in the precinct. The precincts are pretty small. Someone can move uh, a little bit down the street, the street meaning like a major street, like they can move down to the other side of the city, still be in the same city, there'll be a different precinct. Precincts are kind of just a very localized area. And most people who move are usually moving because they're moving to somewhere at least slightly different. They're moving to a nearby city. They're moving out of state. They're moving across the same city. But they're they're usually moving to somewhere that is more convenient for them compared to where they are now. Or they're moving to a better place, like from an apartment to a house, which isn't necessarily – like in the exact same neighborhood. It, it may be close by, maybe five miles away, but that sometimes will put you in a different precinct. So often when people move, they don't remain in the same precinct. Not all the time, but usually when people move, they are out of the precinct, which makes it much easier to commit voter fraud. And if their ballot lands in your mailbox, you could fill it out, send it in, and it's unlikely to be caught. What about signature verification, people scream? Well... I'm proof that signature verification is crap because my signature has changed since I registered to vote. In fact, I don't remember exactly what it looked like. I just know it's changed over the years. And uh, I sent in my ballot with a different-looking signature than I originally signed for. If they compared them, they weren't going to match. Somehow my vote got counted. Now, there was nothing illegal. I was It was my vote. I voted legally. But how do they know that someone didn't fill out my ballot? Because the signatures didn't match. They got counted. Why? Because they don't have time to scrutinize these. I know a few precincts actually do it. There's a guy on the forum who talked about how he actually worked for a precinct that verified mail-in voting, and they were, very, they were very, very diligent with it. And I'm sure there are some precincts like that, but there's a lot that are not. There's a lot that do not try very hard to verify the signatures, especially knowing that people's signatures have changed over the years. A lot of people have, and so for that reason, they're pretty lax about it. And there's just some lazy poll workers who just gotta, you don't feel like really scrutinizing very much. Because remember, they're doing it over and over and over and over again. So they don't have much time to do it, and they don't feel like really putting that much effort into it. So there's a lot of signatures that get by, including mine. Mine did not get rejected. So I'm living proof that the signature's not matching does not stop it. But it's very easy to do. If you get a ballot landing right in your lap, you don't have to request it. You don't have to premeditate it. You could not be thinking of it, and then you get a ballot for somebody else, and you go, wow, I hate Trump so much. 
oh, here's this ballot right here. And in fact, this guy who used to live here, I know where he lives now. He lives in Colorado now. He's, there's no way they'll, they'll even keep track of this. It's, there's no chance they're going to see double votes for him in this state. Yeah, I'm just going to send it in. F it. You know, forge a signature, just going to scribble something, hope they don't catch it, ship it in there. And if ever asked about it, I'll deny knowledge. They can't prove I did it. I'll say I threw it away. Someone must have fished it out of the trash. They're not going to do any investigation. In fact, have you heard of any investigations of this? Have you found anything where there's small-scale voter fraud investigated and caught? Have you found one case in the news about someone sending in two, three, four ballots and uh, they've gotten arrested for it? Show me one. Show me one story of this. Now, I'm not talking about like a massive voter fraud attempt. I'm talking about someone who sent in a few ballots and that it was caught. Does that mean it's because it didn't happen? Or does it mean because it's very hard to detect and catch? And when they do catch it, that they don't have time or the resources to investigate it. So they just invalidate the ballots, but they, they, they don't do a full investigation. Has anyone been arrested for this? Small-scale voter fraud in 2020? I, I haven't seen it with mail-in ballots. I have not seen it. If I'm wrong, send, send me proof. So this is much easier. It requires no effort. It requires no forethought. It requires no premeditation. And you can do it from the comfort of your own home. Just fill it out, sign it, mail it in. Easy. Much, much easier. Much more tempting. Basic human psychology says that a bad thing that you are tempted to do is much more tempting if it's easy. If it's easy and you think you can get away with it, you're much more tempted to do it than if it's hard or riskier or scarier. It's a lot scarier to walk into a polling place and say that you're somebody else and fear that you're going to get caught, fear that someone's going to figure it out and the police are going to be right there to arrest you as you try to exit the polling place. You have to have some balls to do that. I'm not saying nobody will. I'm not saying nobody does. But you have to have some more guts to do that than just send in a ballot that you, that already landed in your mailbox of somebody else's that you know they're probably not going to catch. Very different. And you have to have a lot more dedication to want to sign up a phony registration for absentee. But if the thing lands right in your lap, why not? I'm not saying everybody will do it. I'm not even saying most people will do it. I'm saying some people will do it. Now, did some people probably do this and vote for Trump? Yes. Did some people do it and vote for Biden? Yes. Do I think it happened more for Biden? Yes. Why? Because there was more anti-enthusiasm against Trump than there was pro-enthusiasm for Trump. There was a lot of people in this country who absolutely despised Trump. Now, their vote counts the same as someone who kind of mildly liked Trump or just hated the Democrats so much that they voted for Trump anyway. But still, as far as passion... There were a lot more passionate Trump haters in this country than passionate lovers of Trump. There were a lot of passionate lovers of Trump. Trump had a lot more passionate followers than Biden. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about people who hate Trump so much that they are willing to commit voter fraud by mail to beat him. I think there's more of those people than ones who love Trump so much that they're willing to commit voter fraud by mail to support him. Additionally, the people who hate Trump 
really believe that he's an existential threat to this country and in some cases to the world. And therefore, if you really believe that, then uh, committing an act like that of civil disobedience, that's not that bad, right? If, if you're really sure that this is uh, really one of the most dangerous leaders in human history and you can submit extra votes to beat him? I mean, you could morally justify that. So that's what a lot of them think. You don't have to be some awful bad person. You you just have to be someone who thinks that Trump is so dangerous to humanity that you just have to do it. So I think there is more of it for Biden. And I think a lot more of it happened than in a normal election where there's not much mail-in voting. I know there's little mail-in, universal mail-in voting, depending on the state, but way, 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 way more universal mail-in voting this time around in 2020 than any time in history. And the opportunity to do it is so much greater. The ease of doing this is so much greater than ever before. And when the opportunity and the ease is so high compared to before and the risk is so low compared to before, a lot more of the crime is going to happen. It's basic human nature. And if you deny that, you are delusional. So how do I put the two together? How do I say that the people who are saying that Trump got cheated are crazy, but those who are saying that voter fraud wasn't going to happen at a high, much higher rate this time are also crazy? Wouldn't these be contradictory statements? I'm sitting here telling you we're getting, we got a lot more voter fraud this time around than any other time. So how can I be sure that Trump didn't get cheated? Because of the margins involved. If Trump lost by 500 votes in the one state that would have swung it either way, let's say Trump won uh, Michigan and he won Arizona. And uh, let's say uh, Pennsylvania came down to uh, 500 votes. Okay. That would swing the election. If it came down really to a matter of 500 votes, just like it did in 2000, I'd be willing to believe that there could easily have been 500 fraudulent votes net gained for Biden that could have swung it. That's not that many. I believe there was enough voter fraud to where there easily could have been 500 extra votes for Biden. But do I think there's 80,000 extra votes for Biden? No, not even a chance. Do I think it was like that in several states? Definitely no. So that's how. It's about the scale. I think there was a lot more fraud, but not nearly enough to swing the election, because the election was not that close. That's what someone with common sense would say. And look at this. I'm not agreeing with the narrative from either side. I'm not agreeing with the narrative that Trump was cheated, and I'm not agreeing with the narrative that mail-in voting is wonderful and safe and just as secure and we should totally trust it. Why can I say this? Because I am a logical human being who can put aside partisan politics and look at a situation for how it really is, and I can concede certain things to the other side because they make sense without having to give up my conservative card. That's why. And I hope that those on the left who are saying stupid things that uh, they know are not really true, if they really think about them, that they can do the same thing, that you can say, yeah, um, I, there probably was more fraud in this. Yeah, mail-in voting sucks, and we've got to look at it. We, we, we shouldn't continue with this uh, universal mail-in voting because it, it, it really has a high potential for fraud, and next time we have a super close election like 2000, uh, it's going to be a disaster. 
So let's let's not even get there. Let's let's try to find an alternative to this. And we definitely shouldn't continue this once the pandemic is over. Like the, like these conversations should be had. There should be an admission that yes, this voting system sucks. For several reasons, not just fraud, for other reasons too. The fact that it took so long to resolve is is outrageous and makes the United States look like a joke. But you can admit that and also say yes, but Trump really lost. You can do that. There are some on the left who are terrified to admit that there's any possibility of any fraud problem because if they do, they've validated the rights conspiracy theories and then they lose the argument. So they, they must just deny it, deny it, deny it and say this is secure and safe and mail-in voting is wonderful and if you say otherwise, you're, you're a conspiracy nut. No. Same with the whole situation with the riots that occurred. If you dare admit that there are certain bad actors on the left, like Antifa, who take it way too far, take protest way too far, and commit crimes, and do really bad things, and it's counterproductive, and it's dangerous, and it hurts innocent people, and these are awful human beings who should be put in prison for a long time, if you dare say that, if you dare say that BLM is a crap organization that's violent, if you dare say this, then you've killed your argument, you think, that there needs to be reform in uh, police brutality and how uh, people of color are treated by the police. You can say both things at the same time. You can say you feel that there needs to be a lot of reform there, that there needs to be a hard look at how black people are treated by police, that there needs to be more of an effort to get racist cops off the force. You can say these things. You can say the people who are protesting, you fully agree with them, and that the protests... You can also say these were very dangerous protests. They shouldn't have 60,000 people out there during a pandemic and that those people are reckless and, and, and very bad. You can say that too. You can say they're very irresponsible. You can say I agree with them or what they're saying, but they're acting irresponsibly. You, but they can't say that either. Why? Because if you dare criticize the protesters at all, any of them, then you look like you're giving ammunition to the right. So you just got to deny it. It was safe to have 60,000 people out there in major cities shoulder to shoulder screaming during a pandemic. Totally safe, guys. And uh, it's there was no voter fraud. And all the rioting that occurred was was greatly overstated and it was really hardly happening. And it was it was mostly peaceful. And it was really instigated by white supremacists and the, the, the people who were Violent on the left were mostly just uh, goaded into it by people on the right or the cops attacking them that uh, Antifa doesn't really exist. Hey, guys, this is all the truth, because if we say anything otherwise, then the right might look like they have a point, And we've got to make them all look like they're delusional and crazy. So we must deny the basic truths. And we must put out these denials in the media. So the people, the people who are kind of in the center and trying to figure out what to believe, we confuse them enough into thinking the right's just crazy and that they have no real points. It's dishonest. You can stick to all your liberal and left-wing values and still admit the truth. You can say that a segment of your party, a small segment, is garbage and should be in prison and are violent and are assholes and are counterproductive. You can say that and keep all of your left-wing views and be just as valid. And I'd respect you so much more if you did that. Because I don't expect you to agree with me on everything. But I hope you can at least recognize reality, and I hope you realize you can criticize certain people within the 
over 100 million people you have in your party, that there's going to be a segment out of that 100-something million that doesn't behave well, that are pieces of crap, that are criminals, that are violent. Why can't you admit that? Is everybody who votes Democrat a wonderful, caring person? Or are there Democrats who are pieces of shit? That doesn't mean everybody's a piece of shit. That just means a, a small percentage are awful. And you can admit that a small percentage are awful and they don't represent you. They don't represent what you believe. They're doing things you disagree with and they're, they should not be supportive even if the cause that they are backing you feel is noble. But if the way they are protesting it is harmful and violent and nasty and selfish and destructive and spreads a pandemic, you can say, these people suck and I hate them. <laughs> and I agree with the, the main point, but I hate what they're doing. You can do all that. Just like I can say that I don't like all the people who are going along with this narrative that the election was stolen from Trump and that he shouldn't concede. And you know who I really hate on the right are the people right now saying that you should not vote for Republicans in Georgia for the Senate runoff to punish the Republicans in Georgia who won't go along with Trump and his the election was stolen from me narrative. That is really bad. I really don't like those Republicans. They're, they're traitors to the party to want to screw this, these super important Senate races for their own party because they're mad that certain Republicans in that state in power won't go along with this delusion that Trump won there. If you support that, you don't give a crap about the party or conservative politics because if you support that, if you support people staying home and not voting for the Republicans there, then the Democrats are going to have all three houses and they're going to do a hell of a lot more, which you don't like, than if the Republicans have the Senate. So if you don't want the Democrats going through with a lot of their far-left plans, then you should vote Republican. But if you think you're going to punish Republicans by electing the party that you feel you felt cheated them, which is really bizarre. Like, why would, why would you do that? Why would you say, we got cheated, so we're going to reward the cheaters? I don't feel that there's any cheating, but if this is what you think happened, why would you ever reward the cheaters and then bring want to bring people into office who are going to do exactly what you don't want? It makes no sense. It's self-defeating and it's stupid. I can say those people suck. I can say the white supremacists suck. Obviously, the white supremacists wouldn't like me, a Jew. I wish they weren't part of the party. There aren't that many of them. It's, it's exaggerated by the left, but uh, there's some. You know, there's, there's some out there. I've battled with them on, on Facebook groups. And I've been in conservative Facebook groups where some of them pop up, and I, I battle with them. I tell them they're trash. So, so why is it hard to say Antifa's trash? Why is it hard to admit they exist? Why, why downplay the riots? Why blame the rioting on the right? Why deny cancel culture exists and say uh, this is an, the, the right's imagination or the right does it just as much? No, they don't. Like these, the, This is the type of stuff I'd love to see just acknowledged and said, hey, this is wrong. We don't support it. We don't agree with you. We don't agree with your politics. We think a lot of your politics and political beliefs suck, but we don't support this stuff. You can say it. And I always make sure to say it. I always make sure to look at what my own party's doing. If I see things I don't like, I'll say it. 
And I can cite a lot of examples if you think I'm lying about that. I hope you can too, whatever your politics are. But don't deny common sense. Don't, and, and I always hate, well, um, show me proof now this happened. If, if something's super obvious, like I, I got this idiocy thrown at me today on Twitter. Show me proof that even though it's easier to cheat in an election where you get ballots landing in your mailbox that aren't yours, and even though there's more opportunity, it's easier to do, show me proof that this actually happened. Or show me proof that people are more likely to do it. Show me the studies of that. I go, come on, this is obvious. There's some things that are just obvious. You don't need proof. You don't need studies. Super obvious that if something's way easier and you have more opportunity to do it, that you're going to do it more than if you have to put out a lot of effort and take risks to do it. I mean, it's a, that, that doesn't require studies or proof. And that, that annoys me. That, that means that people are, are just trying to find any way to deny the obvious. I'm hoping going forward that eventually this stops. Eventually the desire to always defend your side at all costs and deny looking at reality ends. And that's really the only way that the country can become even somewhat unified ever again. Otherwise, it's going to become more and more distant and it's going to become almost like a, a war of two religions. Even though it's not about actual religion, it'll be become like religion. One side of believers versus the other side of believers. And that's sad. That's why I don't block anybody who disagrees with me politically. I don't hate anybody who disagrees with me politically. I don't define people by their politics. And uh, if you do, you need to look at yourself and say, and ask yourself, why do I do this? I almost appeared, I guess it's still possible, but I was offered to appear on somebody's podcast that uh, was going to be about uh, why people would vote for Trump if they're not evil or ignorant. That was, that was going to be the topic. Like, like why, why would you possibly vote for Trump if one of those two things didn't describe you? And uh, I, I was having a hard time convincing somebody who normally is pretty logical and pretty smart. I was having a hard time convincing him that it's possible to vote for Trump if you're not evil or ignorant. And every time I tried to give him reasons, I was, I was trying to shoot them down. <laughs> it was pretty. So he said, well, I have a podcast. We'd like to come on there and say it. I said, yes, yeah, I'll come on there and say it. And then so far it hasn't happened. So I, I guess I can ask him what's going to happen with that. It was his idea. But uh, that's another thing. Like you can't just characterize someone of if you vote for this person, then you're awful. No, that's, that's just about never true. Like, it, it, there's very, very few times in modern history that, or even semi-modern history, that any form of that could be true. And unfortunately, there's become that thinking that you can define someone by who they vote for or what side of the aisle politically they reside on and that the, you get this moral superiority that you think, well, how could someone think the other way? It's just so evil and terrible. And why not ask them? Why not ask people why? Why? Why are you voting this way? Is it 
I, I know I'm trying to assume – you don't have to say you, you assume they're evil, but you may be thinking in your head, I bet it's because they're evil and selfish and awful and terrible. But ask them, just, just honestly. I, I'd just like to know, why did you vote this way? And why are you a Democrat? Why are you a Republican? It may open your eyes when you hear the real reasons. I know you'd like to think that it's going to be evil, terrible reasons, but uh, when you hear the reasons, you go, okay, well, I'm, I don't agree with these reasons, but I, I kind of see where they're going. I, I kind of see why they believe this and why they're not necessarily stupid, that we just disagree. And if we could get back to that, that would be great. Okay, well, uh, I've been on a while. As usual, we've got a long show here. Thank you for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Uh, we are going to be back on Friday, hopefully with more than 12 people in the free roll, a week from now on, well, speaking of 12, it's going to be on 12-12. No, it won't be. It'll be partially on 12-12. It'll be on 12-11 through 12-12. We're going to start and go past midnight, finish at 12-12, or on 12-12, not at 12-12. And uh, that'll be December 11th will be the next show, followed by the next show on December 18th. Will we dare have a show on Christmas? Will we dare do that? Do you think a, a Jew like me is going to say, no, I will not have a show on Christmas? Do you think I would dare do a show on Christmas, given that a lot of the listeners maybe not, may not appreciate me doing a show on Christmas? May not want to listen live on Christmas. Well, here's what I have to say to that. Has got the AIDS this year. Okay, thank you, Tiny Tim. That's what I think about doing a show on Christmas. The answer is yes, I will be here on Friday, December 25th, Christmas Day, for the final show of 2020. Who knew Christmas was going to end up like this and 2020 was going to end up like this? Who knew a year ago? Even though COVID actually may have already been in the U.S. on Christmas last year. We just didn't know. But we didn't know. We had no idea what was coming. Then the first show would be on January 1st of 2021. I also plan to do that. I'm not going anywhere for New Year's. I'm, I'm going to be at home for New Year's for the first time in many years. First time in nine years I'm going to be home for New Year's. This will be not New Year's Eve. This will, of course, be New Year's Day when all the festivities would be done anyway. But there won't really be festivities. I'm going to be watching the ball drop in what's presumably going to be empty New York streets. <laughs> Weird New Year's. Okay. I'm going to uh, shut this down here. Thank you for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. 
you know, you have many choices for what you listen to here for gambling and poker podcasts and live radio programs. And I'm glad you chose this as at least one of them that you listen to, especially if you invested all like seven, eight hours of this. That's pretty impressive. When will I get this in the archives? I don't know. If you joined us, like, in the morning, if you just woke up, especially the East Coast, and you're like, oh, he's still on. Wow, okay. Well, I can't wait to catch up on this show when it's in the archives very quickly. I'm not sure if I'm going to add it to the archives before uh, I go to sleep or uh, after. uh, I don't know. I know some people are pissed that sometimes it takes me more than 24 hours to get into the archives, and... I understand that's a bit excessive, so I, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to make any promises. But I'll get it there. It always ends up in the archives. Unless it didn't record somehow. That would be pretty painful to know I wasted eight hours on this. You know, I actually got Bad Guy's blessing to restart the free roll. After he complained so much, and I wouldn't restart it when we only had 12 people. He said, no, no, you should restart it with 12 people. It's embarrassing. I just never do the right thing. I, it's like, I feel like a baseball player who swings when a bad pitch is thrown to him and then takes the pitch when it's right down the middle. It's like I never know the right time to restart the free roll. Never get that one right. I hope I've gotten this show right for you this year in 2020. It's a, It's been a strange year for the world and even for poker and gambling. I hope the presence of this show has made it a bit easier to get through all of that. And that this is something you can look forward to each week, something that hasn't gone away during COVID. And we will continue through the year 2021 and beyond, and soon enough we'll be on our 10-year anniversary in March 2022. Thank you very much for listening, and shalom. Shalom.